This is Jocko Podcast number 403 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I had the biggest, fattest head of any baby that was ever born into the human species. My head was and remains a combination of the head from the alien and alien and a prize-winning albino cassava melon from the Iowa State Fair. I feel truly sorry for my parents, Patricia Shea Whitman and Robert Bob Wilson, when I imagine them cradling my doughy giganticness in the rain-soaked winter of 1966 on their houseboat in Seattle. I was one of those tots that you see and gasp under your breath in quizzical horror. I wasn't one of those babies that made it easy for viewers to hide their surprised revulsion. I'm sure no one knew that I'm sure no one knew what to say when they saw my white, bloated Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade head lolling about on my snowy, damp potato sack body. I was like some kind of larva. I was the color of grub worms that have never seen the sun. Picture an ashen manatee with a tiny human face. Now picture this creature screaming to have its diaper changed. You get the idea. No, you don't. I need to keep going. I'm not sure if you fully understand the large-headed pale horror of baby Rain. If there were a maggot with vaguely human features wrapped in swaddling clothes, that would have been me. The University of Washington Hospital probably bleached the entire pediatric ward after I left due to my resemblance of a life-size blood, white blood corpuscle. I was like Louis Anderson with the head of E.T. If the nurse at the hospital had swapped me with a big-eyed albino hippo baby, that would have explained everything. Instead, my parents were handed a lumpy Jabba the Hutt-like infant that made sounds like a calf being strangled by an octopus. Me. And that right there is an excerpt from a book called Bassoon King art, idiocy, and other tales from the band room written by Rain Wilson. And Rain Wilson, if you don't know, besides being a large-headed baby, is an actor, comedian, podcaster, producer, writer, director, philosopher, and I made the term spiritual voyager. You might know him because in 1997 he played Casey Keegan in the iconic ABC drama One Life to Live. In 2001, he played Guy in Supermarket on CSI for one short part of an episode. He was the janitor in an episode of Law and Order in 2002. But he's most well known for his portrayal of Dwight K. Schrute of Schrute Farms on the TV show The Office. Now, this show came from the British version, and my wife, being a Brit, we had already watched this program and we were somewhat obsessed with the British version of The Office, but the American version of The Office ran from 2005 to 2013, which were, for me, some rough years. There were some rough years in there. Those were the war years, and I put my family through a lot during those years, but we got through it through deployments and distance and death. And one thing that no matter what was going on, one of the things that always connected us was that show, The Office. It was funny, sentimental, it was reflective. 
and we still watch it and we reference it and we quote it and we are thankful for the joy and connection that that show brought us and we are thankful to have rain wilson here with us tonight to share his experiences and lessons learned along the way rain thank you for joining us jocko <laughs> echo bros i'm so happy to be here oh. that was just, i was hysterical that is some fucking funny writing that's a funny writer who wrote that yeah, shit that's guy's talented your ghostwriter is a skilled individual <laughs> <laughs> he did a great he or she did a great job it is true though i i would always see these baby pictures and family pictures from like the late 60s and i'd be like I'd be like, that was me? I mean, it, I'm not exaggerating. It was like this watermelon-headed. My head was the same size as my body. It was something are, really are, are wrong. Are your parents large-headed at all? Or is this like a skip to yeah, a my generation? Dad, my dad's a, you know, my dad whole side of the family is Norwegian, and they call Norwegian round heads, and they that side of the family has big, round basketball heads. No question. Uh so let's talk about you. Let's talk about. Let's start at the beginning. You're growing up. You're born of this. Obviously, this giant head. Your 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 name is Rain. Yeah. Legitimately, R A I N N. Yeah. Uh, you. The immediate reaction is your parents are hippies. Yep. And but then they're a little bit old to be hippies. True hippies. Yep. A lot of a lot of people in the SEAL teams. You'd meet guys that had weird names, right? And it was just so obvious. You know, they'd be like, "Oh, my name is whatever Harmony." You'd be like, "Oh." You know, born in 1969 or born in 1970, the parents were hippies and they just, yeah. that's what they're doing to rebel against their parents, by the way, because their parents are probably still hippies. Right. And so they're like, I'm going and be, be yeah. a freaking commando. They're like, hey, listen, Harmony, you can do anything with your life what you want, but don't go into the military, man. <laughs> so, of course, 18. Yes. Boom. boom. That's what we're doing. Um, what's up with your parents? So they, they're a little old to be hippies. That's yeah. correct, right? It's hard to it's hard to sum up my parents. They're... Uh, they're a strange lot, you know. Um, they weren't hippies in the sense of like, well, my mom, I think she did some, she did some alternative uh, substances, shall we say. <laughs> but, um, but like my dad in a weird way was very like, he was very like in later years, very Reagan, kind of Reagan Republican. And, but at the time, and he was, so he didn't have like the long haired kind of thing, but he had the kind of bohemian artsy kind of thing. So he, he's this, my dad, let me put it this way. For 20 some years, my dad worked in sewer construction. He was office manager, sewer truck dispatcher, billing accounts, et cetera, like that. Total blue collar guy. Yep. Then put that aside, he would get home, put on opera and start painting abstract paintings, murals, like crazy, fantastic stuff. And then when that wasn't enough, he was writing like crazy science fiction books that no one ever read on the side. And he was a member of the Baha'i faith. So it's this weird thing of growing up and it's like this real blue collar home where he didn't have any money at all. I don't think he ever made over 15 grand in a year. And uh, we lived in little rental concrete, 900 square foot houses, and yet we had this bohemian artsy kind of thing. So that's what was going on when I was born. Like they lived on a houseboat. He was a pancake 
chef when I was chef. He was a he was a short order cook <laughs> when I was born, but he wanted to be an artist at the same time. So it's just it was a, it was a weird time. Did he grow up in the Northwest as well? No, I uh, thought he grew up in like Wisconsin, Illinois, Illinois. Illinois yeah, right. yeah, mom's from Wisconsin, dad's from uh, Downers Grove, Illinois. Yeah. And this, you, you, what year were you born? Sixty six. Yeah. And yet, in nineteen sixty eight, your your parents get divorced. Yeah. Yeah. And what are your memories of that going on? Well, I don't remember any of that, but that was a, you know, it's one of the defining, you know, events of my life when I look back on it because I've been in a lot of therapy around it. But, um, yeah, my mom uh, took off when I was two. My dad then remarried when I was three. Um he moved to to Nicaragua. I'm sure you have your Nicaragua questions oh, there got, for we me. Got freaking, <laughs> we got Nicaragua highlighted like a boss here, <laughs> up the wazoo. But um, yeah, it was it was kind of crazy because I he would never answer why they got a divorce. So I would say, Dad, why did you and Shay? She mm-hmm. went by Shay because she changed her name. She kind of went hippie. She went all she went all hippie. In, right? Yeah, she even joined like a weird like cult mm-hmm. called like. Well, don't you kind of. Isn't that part of the gig when you're going full hippie? Yeah, yeah. if you're going full hippie, there's got to be some kind of cult membership. Um, and then she worked in an insane asylum in Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, and she had a goat named Angel of the Morning. So she went there. Yeah, She went there. We used to do training. There's a, there's a site, and I forget what state it's in. But it's an old, insane asylum. So we used to go in there and like clear buildings and do like extra military type yeah, exercises. Yeah. But it was in this the freaking creepiest place, and you have all these Navy SEALs and be going through like everyone is on it. Like, freaked out, <laughs> yeah, scared yeah. shitless. It's all weird. There's and there's some like old dilapidated wheelchair in the corner with like yeah. a blood stain on it, and you're like, Ugh. yeah. There's old like you could like weird gurneys all. It was creepy, yeah, creepy thing. But that's where your mom worked. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. So, it, when I finally kind of, uh, I didn't really see her very much between two and fifteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just a handful of like visits where we'd have like a sandwich or an ice cream cone or something like that. But then when I got to know her, and around eighteen, nineteen, I asked her why she uh, left my dad and what happened there, and and she admitted that she had had an affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a theater director because she was doing experimental plays. And I never knew, like, why did I have this impulse to be an actor? Like, I didn't know anyone that was an actor, but I just in my body, like, I always wanted to be an actor. I wanted to make people laugh. I wanted to do skits. I wanted to do characters and stuff like that. And um, turns out I didn't even know this, that my mom had been an actor when I was a toddler. She had done the ex- crazy experimental plays where she'd, like, been topless and like painted her torso blue and run around in the audience. I know you've done a lot of that kind of <laughs> stuff, Echo. And um, Echo's uh, already a fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she had an affair with the theater director Ugh. of the crazy theater play and left my dad and left me big headed toddler. And um, but I do want to say, like, um, she came back into my life. When I was 15, 16 years old, she committed to coming back into my life, getting to know me. She felt bad about what she had done. She wanted to repair the relationship, and she really worked hard to have a relationship and uh, and atone for her mistake and 
And, you know, this is a shout out to anyone that's, you know, had a kid and didn't raise the kid for whatever reason, no judgment. You can always come back. It's never too late. And she made a big impact in my life Mm -hmm. when I was a teenager. Like she had a big heart. She really knew about emotions and she put her arm around me and just talked to me how I was feeling. And no one in my existing family did that at all. And it made a big difference. And probably I wouldn't have been as successful as I am today without kind of a mom coming back into my life and from like 16 to my early 20s, like really being with me in that way. And one thing I noticed about this, and I I was going to talk about it later, but I'll spring it up now. So I found it interesting that your dad like kind of didn't tell you. And to me, that seemed like the right thing to do. Like if I was to get divorced from my wife and my wife did some heinous things and my kids were little, I wouldn't, I would try not to be the dad that's like, your mom's a filthy, disgusting. Yeah. You know, I would try She's not to be, whore. <laughs> I, did, I would try not to be that guy yeah. because I would think that the best thing you could do is try and give them the best possible image and when they grow up, they'll figure it out. It seems like that's the move. You, it, you hear about this all the time. You hear about these painful divorces and you hear about both sides putting the kids in the middle Yeesh. and like bombarding the kids with like, well, your dad did blah, 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 yeah. blah. And with the secretary, well, your mom stole all the money and spent it on the blah, blah, blah. And the, you know, these poor kids are being traumatized in the middle. Like it was, and my mom, Shay, was shocked when she said, and I remember, I'll never forget the expression on her face. I'm like, I'm like, why did you guys really get a divorce? And she's like, you mean your dad never told you? Salute to your dad. And uh, he didn't do it. He didn't say one bad word about her. Not one bad word. And uh, and she broke his heart. God. And dude, you've got this picture that your dad drew in the book. Oh. <laughs> And again, this is things that the book is, hey, get the book. This book, you got another book out called Soul Boom. This book is called The Bassoon King. Get the book. It's freaking fascinating to read. But you got this picture in there that your dad drew. And it's like, it's like disturbing. It's like your dad's like laying on an altar and there's a woman and she's got a knife in her hand and it says. It's an operating table and it's like he's being like tortured by her as like this naked doctor. It's very. It's very crazy. Yeah. And. But your dad never told you. Never told me. No, and that was that. Uh, you know, he he had some real integrity mm-hmm. around stuff like that. You know, um, in fact, I will say, like my dad rarely said a bad word about anyone. That's such a good way to be. Yeah, I yeah. recommend that course of action for yeah. for pretty much all humans. Yeah. Um, you mentioned okay, so your dad gets divorced. Your dad gets custody, which I guess you you probably didn't know how that was happening, but I guess. If your mom's doing all this crazy stuff, he was probably able to make it work. He, which never happened in 1966. No, hell no, hell no. Babies didn't go with dads. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was just the fact that she couldn't have supported your head carrying you around. <laughs> and it was like no option. <laughs> he had enough upper body strength to be able to, to, to make it manage. Yeah. <laughs> they looked at you and they're like, no. Uh, but he gets he remarries some a uh, woman named Kristen. Yeah. And like you said, they moved to Nicaragua. You said there's some highlights. You definitely got some highlights from Nicaragua. Here's some highlights. From Nicaragua, I remember Kristen getting caught in quicksand on the muddy beach and being pulled out of the sinkhole by a guy with the tree branch. I remember a friend of ours emerging from the ocean after a swim. He was screaming and falling to his knees covered in jellyfish things. I remember running and flying kites on the hilltop with the local kids, all of them barefoot, me in giant rubber boots that cheese grated my ankle bones. 
I remember Devil Day, the local equivalent of Halloween, when terrifying men dressed as devils in outfits adorned with wings ran around with fireworks. They would chase kids, pick them up, and scare the holy bejesus out of them by tickling them and screaming in their faces. I was so horrified that this would happen to me that I refused to go outside. I'm pretty sure this was the work of the Catholic Church turning a fun pagan festival into a helpful traumatic reminder of the evils of Satan. <laughs> I remember bulls being driven and herded up and down the mud streets in Nicaragua by Nicaraguan cowboys who lived in the jungle. I remember the best oatmeal ever made, served up by our cook, Antonia, and the fresh and the taste of fresh shrimp and fried plantains. What's that? Plantains. What's a plantain? It's like a it's like a banana kind of thing, but it doesn't have the sweetness, and they fry it up. You haven't? They, okay. All in Central America is yeah. really big. I have. I've only been to Central America a couple of times. I went to Panama. Yeah, and that's it. You go through this list of the freaking animals, and you got mosquitoes, dogs, parrots. You had a pet sloth named Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. How do you get to keep a pet sloth? Is that legal? Is Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. There weren't many laws around there. I mean, Nicaragua is a pretty lawless state, but then the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, which, by the way, Theo Vaughn is a buddy of mine. I watched his episode with okay. you. He talked about Nicaragua. But that area, Bluefields, is where I lived, where his Theo Vaughn's dad. We're going to do a Nicaragua trip, oh, me okay. and Theo. At some I'm going point. with you. <laughs> Would you provide 100%. security? Yeah, provide security. You in? Yeah. Yeah. Echo's going. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a it's a really lawless part of Nicaragua. I mean, it's 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 there's Indian tribes that wander down from the swamps, and there's cocaine cowboys, and uh, it's all different. They don't barely speak Spanish there. It's a lot of Creole, a lot of English, and it's crazy Germans and. Uh, it's it's pretty nuts out there. There's crazy Germans in Nicaragua. Yeah, yeah, on that in that little part, in that huh. little chunk. Yeah, it's are pretty, these the ones that couldn't make it to Brazil, <laughs> or what? Maybe there's a <laughs> maybe there's a Nazi connection. I didn't even think about that. Theo Vaughn is a Nazi. Uh, maybe his daddy Vaughn. Yeah, was yeah. from there. So, anyways, it was so there weren't many laws, but. What were we talking about? Like, oh, the sloth. Oh, so, the sloth. You guys had a pet sloth. The, talk um, about the legality of that. The, the most hysterical thing, which I, I have vague memories of the sloth in the cage, but I don't, my dad would always tell this story that they would put my, the sloth in the cage, and then every morning they'd get up, and the bars of the cage, because sloth's obviously super slow, but really strong, right? Kind of like Echo. Mm-hmm. And slow, the bars would be pulled open, and the sloth wouldn't be there. But they're so slow that they just had to like walk <laughs> around, and they knew within like 30 or 40 feet, and then he'd find him in a shrub, and like pick up Andrew, and put him back in the cage, and go, and bend, the, bend the bars back, and then repeat that every single night. But I think eventually they just put him in the jungle and let him go. Uh, Are we got, gonna talk about the worms? Yeah, let's talk about Are oh, you gonna go there? I, well, Is it the, a bit much? We got oysters, we got amoebas, we got monkeys, we got and then we got worms, which is like you really you want to go there? I don't know that you do. I mean, the one quote that I self edited and self censored was the opening line, which says, "My most vivid memory of life in Nicaragua involves worms coming out of my butthole." I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna leave it out. You know, sometimes you write things when you're younger, and you're like, "This is so edgy and flashy," but now I was gonna do the courtesy, and we're not gonna put it in there. But you know, you brought it up. I think Obviously, you're, you're, I this think is a fond memory of yours. You got a tough <laughs> listening audience. I think they can handle this. No, it's 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 not that. It's just 
I had worms. Most people have worms. You get worms down there. That's what happens. You know, the little eggs are in the water bins and whatnot. And uh, then you take deworming medication. But, you know, what happens to those pesky little buggers? Well, they got to come out somehow. They're not coming out this way. So I remember uh, walking down the street. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, and I was to my Kristen, my stepmom, I was like, Mama, I got to go poop. And it was like, oh. <laughs> and then I reached down and pulled out a worm longer than this. <sighs> and then this knife wiggling. And there were a bunch of neighborhood kids around, and they saw this happen, and they were like, ah. <laughs> and I threw it on the ground. And I, for, I forget how to say, like, kill it in, uh, in Spanish. But my stepmom was like, Muerte or muerte, muerte or whatever to kill it, and like some kid came out with a shovel and they were stabbing it and and crushing this worm yeah. that had just come out of my butt, and then they laughed at me and mocked me, and that's why I have the personality that I have. I I mean I'm I don't know if normal people I don't know what that does. what does that does to your brain. You should have ended up in the your mom's asylum in North Dakota. I know I needed After some that treatment evolution. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you get done with the worms. You end up moving back to Washington State in 1971. Yep. That's your next move. Mm-hmm. And and you weren't really quite sure, it seems like, why you moved back there. Like, what was the reason for that? They just ran out of money uh, in Nicaragua. They, my dad tried a bunch of different vin- business ventures. Uh, he had an oyster farm for a year or two. So he was, they had just oysters, chock-a-block with oysters. And he was shipping them up and sending them to like nice hotels in Managua and then shipping some back to the United States and stuff. But there was so much corruption that everyone wanted a piece of his profits, mm-hmm. you know, and he couldn't make it work. And they just, they kind of ran out of money and came back. So he got a job in the sewer company, <clears throat> the, in her family sewer company. Oh, convenient, nice. Yeah. You say this in the book. My family was poor. Not food stamps or Haiti poor, but poor. We rented a two-bedroom cinder block house with a dirt yard in Olympia. My dad got a job working with kids at the high school. It was a program for juvenile delinquents and troubled teens just out of jail. He taught art and English and Spanish and made $5,600 a year. I truly have no idea how we lived off of that. Kristen was a housewife, as most women were in those days, and had never learned to drive for some reason. So she was truly a stay-at-home mom. I remember my dad's shaggy juvies often dropping by the house in their bell-bottoms and leather-fringed vests. Kristen would stare as if the Manson family had just stopped by for a chat. Here's how I remember our poverty. We drove an old used Edsel from the 50s and then a 1972 powder blue Ford Pinto replete with exploding gas tank. I drank powdered milk instead of regular and got all my clothes from the Salvation Army. I had about seven toys and 11 books and stared in awe and wonder at the grip, at the nip knops and the rock'em sock'em robots. You don't, I don't remember, I don't remember those things. From the 70s? No, I didn't have them. It's like a, it's a toy and it sends a little ping pong balls sort of thing. And they had... It's like Stretch Armstrong uh, and no, Rock'em Sock'em Stretch Robots. I, had, I remember those. Yeah, it was one of those kind gnip of things. Gnips. Yeah. That one slipped by me. Normally when I'm reading stuff like that and I see something I don't recognize, I, I look it up. I didn't do that with Gnip wow. Gnops. You really did not come prepared. Kind of a, kind of a shortfall. Rock'em Sock'em Robots and Light Brights and Lawn Darts and Twisters and Vibrating Electronic Foot... Electric... 
football sets that the other kids in the neighborhood played with. We never took vacations and eating out was a complete luxury. When we did, it was usually Bob's Big Boy, Shakey's Pizza, or this crappy restaurant that overlooked the local bowling alley where I once found a rubber band in my cheeseburger. We never owned a washer and dryer and our weekend was always marked by a major trip to the laundromat where Kristen washed her clothes for the week and I wandered around trying to fish quarters out of the machines. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. The good times. Good times. And it's so funny because you don't, I didn't feel that poor. I mean, my friends had nicer toys, but I wasn't going to live in my life like, oh, I'm, we're so poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was. I wonder how old kids are when they start to realize like what money is and how much they have or don't have. Isn't that a junior high adolescent thing where all of a sudden like you have this like. You're 12 or 13, you have this like burgeoning realization of like who you are and how you fit in. Like, oh, I remember like being 12 and like, oh, I'm one of the nerdy kids. <laughs> oh, they don't, they all don't like me and they don't play with me. And like, and like, you know, that realization of like where you fit in the social strata, you know, and like, not only I'm nerdy, I'm poor and nerdy. Yeah. It's like, you got the hand-me-down pants and the whole nine yards. Yeah. So my parents were both school teachers, mm-hmm. which is uh, not a high-paying job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, but you always had a job. You know, that's what was nice. Like, my parents always had a job. And so we always had food, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember, but we didn't have, like, the cool stuff, you know, like everything that you just mentioned, like that electric uh, football thing but it was like yeah you set up your moves and your plays i saw it but i never had it never had the rock'em sock'em robots the i think one of my sisters had the light bright thing light bright making things with light there you go it's fun making things with light bright i remember all the commercials (laughs) from the early 70s yes and your your family obviously had enough money to have a tv we had a tv because you start talking about tv and this is again, how old are you right now? 56, 57? Yeah, 57. Okay, I'm turned yeah. 52 in a few days. Um, so, yeah, all this stuff is like very familiar to me. Welcome to the 50s, man. It sucks. <laughs> Everything starts going downhill. <laughs> Everything's been going downhill. Oh. Um, Adam's family, MASH, All in the Family, Laverne and Shirley, Three's Company, Happy Days, WKRP in Cincinnati, and Taxi. I'm assuming that you just watched all these television shows all the time because that's what we did. Yeah, that's what. That's what. When I say we, I mean the United States of America. It was like yeah. we. Yeah, collectively, that's yeah. what we did. It's it's interesting now. Everyone talks about parents, you know, with kids, and talk about like screen time, mm-hmm. like limiting screen time, because now there's so many more options. Like mm-hmm. my son can open his phone and he can go on social media. He can play a game you know, or an app, or you can watch YouTube, which has 18 billion videos on it, you know, or he can get Netflix on, on his phone, or he can turn on a TV, or he can turn on his computer, do this, you know, there's just all these options. 70s, black and white RCA, turn it on, and just three channels, yep. and then whatever was on, was on, mm-hmm. but boy, they knew how to do those reruns, and uh, yeah, I was you know one of these. I won't say I was a latchkey kid because my 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 stepmom Kristen was at home, but it was the TV was just on from three p.m. till I went to bed at at eight p.m. and it kind of raised me mm-hmm. and kind of taught me about the outside world. And uh, <laughs> we don't have to get there now, but I talk about this in Soul Boom 
about how two of my favorite television shows from the 70s, uh, for me, were kind of taught me about spirituality. And uh, you want me to yeah, go there? go for it. You can talk I'm about Cain. I can cross-pollinate yeah. the we two can, books. You can do whatever you want, man. So um, Kung Fu was a show a lot of young folk don't know about because it's not played. It's, it's so boring to watch is why. <laughs> but it's brilliant. So Chinese Shaolin monk martial artist Kung Fu master mm -hmm. goes to the Old West and wanders around. He's looking for his brother. So he's always encountering like these racist guys and like aggressive mean guys and he's very peaceful and he tries to like solve all the conflicts but then there has to be a couple of ass kicking fights throughout the course of the show. And the other show that meant so much to me was Star Trek. I just, I love that original series. I saw every episode like 10 times. Um, I, I had one or two Star Trek books that had like how the ships worked and stuff. I memorized it. And to me, I was kind of, when I was writing more about spiritual themes later on in Soul Boom this last couple of years, I was thinking about these two shows as like a, a parallel of our spiritual journey because Kung Fu is like our personal spiritual journey that we all have. We are all, we have our skill set. We have um, ways in which we, you know, deal with forces that come at us. And we seek to be wiser, kinder, gentler, to grow our spiritual qualities as we go about our individual path in the world. But the Star Trek story is interesting because I find it to be a very spiritual story because it's about humanity has gone through World War III, and, uh, which was horrific, and it's come together united as a species on the planet. And out of that unity, and they, because of technology like the replicator, they're able to feed everyone. The, the races all get along and um, they're able to go out into outer space and boldly seek out new life and new civilizations. And this is like the, the collective spiritual journey that humanity is on. And that's one of the points of the book that I make in Soul Boom is like, we don't put enough focus on that story. Like when people talk about spirituality, they usually mean church uh, or they mean some kind of like, I do these three or four things to kind of make myself feel better, like meditation or, or whatever, or read inspiring quotes or whatever. And, you know, I'm going about my spiritual path. I'm trying to be just more peaceful in my life, let's say. But we don't kind of have a conversation about like, hey, where are we going as a species? And how can we spiritually evolve collectively to kind of make the world better? And what is our individual responsibilities to making the world better? Not just making my life better and my family's life better, but expanding that vision of what our family is and, and trying to make the world a better place. And we do that in lots of different ways. You can do it through your church. You can do it just on a community level. You don't have to do some, you don't have to feed starving kids in Africa. I mean, you can, but you don't have to do stuff like that, but that we all have a role to play and a kind of a certain spiritual responsibility. And that was really taught to me by by Star Trek and thinking about thinking about that collective journey uh, where humanity has kind of matured and kind of realized its full potential. It's interesting to think about when, when you sit here and talk about that, you would think that, look, everybody watched Star Trek, right? And how many people miss the whole idea of, hey, work, we're working together to try and go towards a more common beneficial scenario. Yeah. And with Kung Fu, 
it's just interesting to me that, or what does it take? And I, I mean, I guess I kind of know your life story a little bit from reading your, your books, but you, not everybody gets there, you know? Not everybody gets there. There's people that are just mad. There's people that are, they're not happy unless they're undermining someone else or taking from someone else or make, you know, I, I know, known many people like this in my life. And it's interesting to think about, like I'm thinking about, again, having just read your books and thinking about even what you just said about your mom coming back to you when you were 15 or 16 years old and how that had such a big impact. Like what if she didn't? If she didn't do that, is that the thing that made you start saying, oh, you know what, she helped me, I should help other people or I should feel good about, well, this is where I, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, this is what I should be doing. And, and you just wonder where those where those holes that don't get filled in, what do they get filled in with? If they get filled in with something negative, if your mom would have come back and been like, I never should have had you, you little bastard, you know, whatever, would you have been, would you have taken a, a, a left turn instead of a right turn or a right turn instead of a left turn? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's fascinating. You know, I, I love that that whole way of thinking and and, you know, part of the, you know, sometimes therapy gets a bad rap. I think people are more understanding of it and appreciative of it, appreciative of it these days. But it's been one of the great things about therapy is to kind of unravel this really complicated childhood that I have and had and be like, how did it lead me to be the man that I am today and doing the work that I'm doing today as a goofy actor, as a storyteller, as a producer, but also as a writer, someone who's interested in kind of spiritual themes and topics as well you know how did that how did that come from but i do think that you know a lot of parents want their kids to like do good or do good in the world or give selflessly or whatever but the parents aren't doing it and i think we learn it from the people around us you know you hear people about that do great work you know in service to others and they'll be like you know why do you do that well i saw my grandfather doing that or i saw my dad doing that or my mom would always go to church early and do the the meals at the soup kitchen or, or whatever it is that, um, you know, we mirror that behavior. So it's super important for parents to understand that, that they, you know, it's deeds, not words, you know, you got to practice what you preach. And, uh, so, you know, I had a lot of people around me that were trying to make the world a better place in a lot of different ways. I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith and, you know, Baha'is are often working, trying to make the world better and, doing service work and um, looking at, Baha'is look at service itself as an act of worship. So um, that idea that, you know, we give to others is is really the ultimate, just like in Jesus's example, you know, you know, serving the poor and the downtrodden is is a kind of a, a worship uh, in, a, in and of itself. So you're putting this together post situation but in the 70s when you're watching star trek you're just like this is freaking cool yeah it's just cool <laughs> yeah laser guns <laughs> beat me up uh and then you you got this again you got this section in your book we were talking about comic sidekicks you go through all again all these characters that are characters that i grew up with as well squiggy from laverne and shirley yep. radar o'reilly from mash yep. Reverend Jim Ignatowski, what a great name, from Taxi. Les Nesman from WKRP. Horshack from Welcome Back, Cotter. You, 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 you go through those characters and you actually have a, 
a guest author that comes in and write Dwight K. Schrute comes in and writes his opinion of each of those, which is <laughs> which is really funny. Uh, get the book, and and it's weird too. Like you, you mentioned, your dad was, you know, doing his day kind of blue collar job, and then he's doing this kind of wild stuff at night, writing all these books and doing this art. You you've got a list. You got a list of of the books that your dad wrote, <laughs> and I got to run through these titles. Ghosts of Ea. Is that how I say it? I have no you have idea. no idea. Ghosts of Ea. Curse of Gitan Mu. The Chromium Kid. The Subways of Ur. Clarissa of Tomb. Arizona Hospital. I don't know how that one fits into it all. The <laughs> Lords. A, I'll, of, I'll explain Arizona Hospital because <laughs> it's set in the far post-apocalyptic future. And the only places, the only institutions that are still working are hospitals. Mm. So there's like Arizona Hospital, Minnesota Hospital, Virginia Hospital. And that's where humans have congregated to fight off the legions of mutants that are <laughs> always attacking the hospital. And the lead character's name was Romeo Sierra, which you know from call signs, mm. Romeo Sierra. And that was that was the hero's name. Yeah. And most of these don't even exist anymore. I don't know what happened to all his. It was before like. Word Before processors. He, he was on typewriters. He was writing yeah. these things. So well, and, and not so, to mention now you have Amazon Publishing. So he could have written these things and published them tomorrow yeah. afternoon. And they might have done well. Yeah. And people could be like, oh, my God, have yeah. you read Tentacles of the Dawn? Which yeah. is the one that did get published. Yes. Do you have a copy of Tentacles of I the have, Dawn? I, I have anytime they come up on eBay. Now, I shouldn't tell people this. Oh. I buy Tentacles of Dawn so I can have it in my collection. But, yeah, I've got like seven or eight Tentacles of Dawn. We have blown out books. You know, I've covered some old kind of historical out of print books. Yeah, and, and then they're just gone. Yeah, and I would bu- I would buy a couple copies for, you know, $4 or $3.99 or something, and then we do a podcast and they're $280 or $350. So, yeah, if you are looking for Tentacles of the Dawn right now, good luck. You're going to pay a pretty penny for that. Oh, damn you, Jocko. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're nerding out, um, and I think you say this in the book, uh, before nerding was cool, you're full-on D&D. Dungeons and Dragons. You are Ragnar the Radical, who, this is your character that you play, 11th level fighter adept with both bow and sword with a moral alignment of chaotic neutral, (laughs) with a chaotic, with a a moral alignment of chaotic neutral, which meant he could do it every place. How ingenious was that, the inventors of Dungeons and Dragons, that you had a moral alignment of your characters? Lawful good, which is like paladins, chaotic good, which is like, uh, I don't know, the Lone Ranger, Mm -hmm. like he's doing good, but he's off on his own, just kind of doing it in his own Mm -hmm. way, not part of any structure. And then there's neutral, chaotic neutral, lawful neutral, then evil, chaotic evil. And so, you know, the dungeon master, you know, if you if you start to do behavior that's different than your moral alignment, then your moral alignment changes and the dungeon master can change that. So it's fascinating. I love it. You didn't you didn't nerd out in this so, you didn't do D and D? Come on. So, you beat up the kids who played D and D. So didn't I, you, Jocko? Well, I you gotta you're gonna Because your name is Jocko yeah. and it's not like Nerdo. Sordo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my buddy Jason Gardner, who's a SEAL with, with me for many, many years, thirty years he did, but he's like heavy D and D. In fact, he's no stranger to putting on a putting on chain mail and picking up a broadsword and poke picturing putting a picture of himself on uh, on Instagram or whatever, but he, I so I remember D and D, and I probably tried to play it like four times or something, mm-hmm. and was just 
I just couldn't. I couldn't get into it. Echo Charles, could you get into it? Did they even have it in Hawaii? I vaguely remember <laughs> something. I don't know, <laughs> but I dig it though. I dig it. So. Okay, that's the most I'll, I'll freaking politically so, correct answer you've it's, never it's, heard of it, but you dig it. Okay, it, cool. I see what you're doing over there. The the chaotic neutral and all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I saw that spectrum somewhere, and I was like, oh, that that makes sense. Yeah. But I didn't know where it was from. Yeah. So yeah. now I do. There but you, you talk about in the book, you're f- you guys are full on. Full on. Hey, have you ever seen LARPing? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever done it? I haven't done it, but I've uh, I've watched it. Yeah. I've gone to LARPing. <laughs> I've gone to LARPing festivals. Well, I don't know what they call them. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I guess they call yeah. it LARPing I'm festivals. A spectac- I'm a spectator. I'm like the popcorn. I'm like. Yeah, yeah. Hey, down here in San Diego, they have like a bat. And speaking of Jason Gardner, he would send me pictures like once a year. They have like full contact fighting with yeah. swords and oh, shields it, and stuff like. But it's not, it's not role on, playing. It's, you could you can see real. videos on YouTube and it's it's real and people get hurt and they get like their arms cut off. Yeah, so that <laughs> sounds intense. cool. A little yeah, bit. You'd be there. you'd be into that if you could actually bash people in chainmail with a morning star or something. <laughs> a mace. That, that does sound like fun. Uh, so no, we would get out of we would get out of school. No joke. This is not an exaggeration. We would get out of school at three o'clock. By four o'clock, we were at my friend Sean Higgins' house. And I remember Sean Higgins' house because his parents were uh, divorced. And the dad was a fruit uh, importer, importer, exporter of fruit. So they never had any. And they were really poor, big Catholic family, suburban Seattle. There was never any food around, but they always had boxes of fruit everywhere. And a lot of it was going bad. So it was like stale fruit, stale basement fruit. So, but it was cool because we could go like, you know, like, hey, do you have any food? It's like, we don't have any food, but we got this crate of pears, (laughs) you know? Oh, cherries just came in. So we would like, and we would just be shitting like, (laughs) and uh, rolling the 27 rolling the dice dice and eating fruit. And occasionally we'd splurge for a pizza, but we would play. So we would play from on Friday night, four till 11. Um, Saturday morning, we'd reconvene like 10 a.m. and play till 11, 12, however late we could make it straight. Some, you know, we'd get some food in there somewhere. Sunday, we would meet again, like 11 or 12. After, I think after he went to church, after Sean Higgins and his brother Tim Higgins, who was a dungeon master, after they'd go to church, we'd play from like 1 to like 6. And then from 6 till 9 at night, that's when we did our homework, homework. for the week. How old were you at this time? That's just like between 10 or 11 and like 13, 14. So multiple years. Many years of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Two or three weekends a month was that schedule. Damn. Yeah. Just getting after that D and D. Oh, just it's all about the treasure. It's all about the loot. And is it does, you it's leveling up? It's you all can't about really win, can you? Can There's you no win? winning. It's it's like life, Jocko. Hey, I you just, just remember, keep going forward. I, wait, I just remember something from uh from D and D. Stormbringer was this a sword? Stormbringer. I remember was, a sword called Stormbringer. Yeah, Stormbringer is a title of, here I'm gonna nerd out, of a fantasy novel by Michael Moorcock about Elric of Melnebonet, and his sword was called Stormbringer, and that was a Stormbringer series of books, so good memory. Uh, those are from Daw books uh, from like 1968 through 78, 
And uh, that was a big inspiration for D&D. But that soul, you do not want to go LARPing with Stormbringer because if it kills you, it sucks your soul Oof. into it. So no afterlife. Forget the afterlife, Stormbringer. Yeah. There's something about naming weapons. Some Occasionally guys would name their machine guns. Oh, I don't know if I like that. And my friend had a, he had a, he had a machine gun. And his, I, I think it's the best name ever. He had a machine gun. His name was Roadblock. And I just thought that was epic. That's pretty cool. Roadblock. He'd be That's like, cool. don't worry, I got Roadblock. <laughs> uh, okay. So you're full on. You're going full on this nerd stuff. Um, and if people think I'm making fun of you, this is all the self-admitted nerd activities. Yeah, right? I, I I'm no not problem. trying to corner you. I have no problem with this. I own this. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter yeah. five. I was not a Navy SEAL. Okay. Can we just like, <laughs> yes, can we just get that out of the way? Can we just say that? I don't know how to hit people. You know, um, I will thumb wrestle the fuck out of you. <laughs> But I stand down. I, I I do not accept this challenge. <laughs> this is roadblock you, you right, right here. here. Yeah, <laughs> roadblock. So. Uh, chapter five, because just when you don't think it could go any more nerd, chapter five, the bassoonist. Uh. I ask you to savor the following sentence. For several years, off and on, I was a member of the following clubs at school: marching band, pep band, orchestra, debate club, computer club chess club, model United Nations, and pottery club. (laughs) (laughs) Note, the above list does not include any of my aforementioned role-playing gaming, Baha'i youth activities, medieval weapons sketching, kung fu movie obsession, or vast Columbia record and tape club cassette collection featuring Journey, Styx, Asia, and Ario Speedwagon, and you do a big tangent about the whole uh, that whole scam, the Columbia Record Tape Club. I remember that thing too. I never got, I couldn't afford the whatever, even get in the program in the first place. And then, if that wasn't enough, I decided to play the bassoon. Boom, universe explodes, then implodes, then explodes again, quickly folding in on itself, only to create infinite other bassoon-shaped universes. So, <laughs> the bassoon, what's up? Talk to me about the bassoon. You want to get into bassooning? Look, I don't want to get into it, but maybe a brief description would be good. All right, get into it. Let's go. No, man. <laughs> Here's the deal. You start You start out in band. I'm on the recorder. That's cool. Then they're like, okay, pick your instrument, you know, in sixth grade, right? Did you guys play at all? It's band at all? I, like, I, I made it to recorder. Okay, recorder, not pass recorder. Didn't you didn't go to trumpet or, or no, anything No, because I got a guitar. That? I got a bass and a guitar. Yo. Let's go. Um, so <laughs> then I went to clarinet. Okay, whatever. And then I played a little saxophone on the side. And then I wanted to play saxophone. Saxophones are cool. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that. Like the saxophone section, they could wear Hawaiian shirts and have sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Bill Clinton was going on, like mm-hmm. doing the rock'em sock'em rock and roll saxophone, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and then I, so I said to the band teacher whose name was, and I'm not kidding you his name was john law john Law. yeah yeah and i was like mr law i want to play the sax and he's like we've got enough sax players but i've got something really cool for you (laughs) Uh, i have got an instrument everyone is gonna flip it's amazing it's so cool it's called the bassoon i was like oh i was very susceptible at that point you know after my 
long 48 hour weekend long Dungeons and Dragons. I wasn't thinking straight. I'm like, sign me up. He profiled you too. Yeah. Like this was just, he got right yeah. in it. Yeah. He was like, the girls are going to be all over you. They're going to be licking your bassoon. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, mom. So bassoon is a big double reed instrument. You assemble it. It's like this big. You, you hook it around your neck and it's, and it's, it's pretty big, you know? And then it sounds like this. <laughs> so I spent many years playing the bassoonist. I actually got pretty good. And I was like, uh, you know, it's another, you talk about these life choices. Mm-hmm. There's another, there's a parallel universe where mm-hmm. this guy <laughs> is a professional bassoonist <laughs> with the St. Paul Symphony Orchestra. Hell, hell yeah. So... Thank God I dodged that bassoon bullet. Uh, now, despite all this nerdery, mm. you're still kind of you're still doing some rebel-ish type things. You're forking lawns and toilet papering trees. Um, yeah. You get rolled up by the police at some point. I do. Yeah, I spent my time. I did my time. <laughs> I spent 11 minutes in the Lake Forest Park, Washington police precinct. My parents being called at two in the morning because we were out. We would do, we called ourselves the taco terrorists because we would do unusual things to people's lawns. <laughs> and one time we would, we would taco them. What does that them. have to do with tacos? Oh, okay. We would go to like a, buy stale tacos in big, in bulk. And then we'd put them all over. We'd get like um, shaving cream and make like shaving cream tacos and cover people's lawns with tacos. Mm-hmm. So we were imaginative. Who we had a lot of fun. Who would you target? Assholes. Like assholes from school? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes friend assholes, like friend, like they're really our friends, but we kind of like wanted to get them. And sometimes it was like just the the asshole jocks. Did they ever seek retribution? No, not really. Did you not guys maintain that. anonymity? We did, except to the police, the, that crack police force of Lake Forest Park, Washington, that arrested us. Arrested us. We went into a Seven Eleven at two a.m. to buy eggs. And bought out all the eggs from the Seven Eleven, mm-hmm. and the 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 cashier guy was like, "Hey, uh, Marty, down in the precinct, we got a bunch of twelve year olds buying eggs at the Seven Eleven. You, you might want to roll up on this." And boop, and they we got some reports of uh, people's houses getting toilet paper. Let me uh, search your pockets here. I didn't. We didn't know like our rights. Be like, "Hey, you can't search me. What's the probable cause here?" Mm-hmm. And. Uh, <laughs> So then we got put, and then the parents got called, and that was it. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I did my time, man. I've been there. The big oh. house. <laughs> uh, 1982, you're 16 years old, and you end up moving to Chicago. Yeah. Again, I'm, this is all in the book. Funny-ass stories, details are in the book. Get the book. Um, but you end up moving to Chicago, and there's a transition that happens here. Yeah. Especially a musical, tra- well, we'll start with a musical transition. So, you know, it was Billy Squire, and it was Air Supply, and it was Sticks, and it was other lame music. Yeah. You get to Chicago, and you actually didn't cover really where this introduction came from, but you get to Chicago, and all of a sudden, it's Violent Femmes, it's Who Screwed it's The Clash, Joy Division, Psychedelic Furs, B-52s, X, Joy Division, English Beat, Talking Heads, and Black Flag. Yeah, right on. Hell Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was. Where, how did so, that happen? Well, it's this. It was this weird con that was being played in the American people, and it may not have happened in California because people in California were cool. But in Seattle, in the late seventies, early eighties, the only way you could get 
music was through Columbia Records and Tapes Club or and because no one had any real money to go buy into a record store and uh, we bought some records but even at the record stores you couldn't find punk rock or new wave or indie rock or any of that kind of stuff and um the radio stations KZOK and KISW all they played was classic rock 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 <laughs> which is pretty awesome I love my classic rock but that's but there's this whole other world going on at that time, you know, that we just didn't, they didn't play any of those songs. And so I, I wrote, I'll never forget, like this girl, I can't remember her name. We've got to figure out her name from from my Seattle school. She's like, listen to this. Yo. And she gave me a cassette tape. And it was the early police, like Zenyatta Mondada on mm-hmm. one side. And it was The Clash, like Ooh. on the other side. And then she gave me another cassette later. It was like Elvis Costello and like, early kind of talking heads that was way more punky and i was like oh my god i had no idea that this world of music existed that was angry and crazy and i mean we got some like black sabbath stuff but not like this really smart edgy weird experimental music and so i was all i was all in Mm -hmm. all of a sudden on that so so that actually happened while you were in Seattle. Yeah, and as I was leaving, yeah, it was the summer that I left. And then you get, so you get to Chicago and now you're kind of like into that music. Yeah, and so I change up my whole wardrobe. Mm-hmm. I get rid of my nerdy wardrobe. I bought a tie with a piano, oh, keys on it, the damn. skinny one. And uh, I had a ska tie with the checks, you know, the oh, ska, nice. like English, yeah. bead English specials. Beat specials. And, um, yes, uh, indeed. And uh, yeah, and I wore like a, it was a John Hughes movie. Yeah. I basically walked into a John Hughes movie, essentially. That's yeah. when you got to Chicago. Yeah. This is also kind of, uh, I believe, where the, the acting thing started. Because yeah. yeah. you're in Mr. Rutenberg's acting class. Yeah. And he wa- he tasks you guys. Is, does everyone take acting? Or do you enroll in acting? Was it your elective? Did you just get thrown in there because you were late? This is one of those things where I'd always, you know, we talked earlier about like all the comic sidekicks on the TV shows mm-hmm. that I used to watch. For whatever reason, even though I'd never met an actor in my life, I didn't know that my birth mother had done acting. I just had this, I want to do that. I could do that. I, d- I don't know what it was. I don't know where that comes from God or it comes from within. I don't know. It's like, I want to do that thing. That's what I want to do. And so here's my chance. We go to Chicago, has a great theater department in this big high school in the suburbs, and I sign up for an acting class. That's really my first acting class. And then, um, uh, yeah, so our first assignment, I'm the new kid with my piano tie, and he assigns, uh, it's called uh, public and private, or private and public, something like that. Like, how, how would you act in your room? Just be what you would do in your room. So I brought in a like a record player and I put on Elvis Costello's song Mystery Dance and um and I put it on and then no one knew me and I just went ape shit cuz this is what I would do in my room I just was like dancing around and like air guitaring and thrashing around and pogoing and um and it brought the house down and all of a sudden for the first time in my life Jocko Welling um girls talk to me and all of the cute girls in the acting class came up and were like hey patting me hey you're you're new here from seattle nice piano tie (laughs) will you sit at the lunch table with us we sit over here say hi my name's 
you know, and, and I would meet all these girls and and they were just like, that was so funny. That was so great. And I was just like, uh, and I was like, that's it. <laughs> Fuck the bassoon. <laughs> I'm in. I'm all in with the drama nerds now. And I found my tribe. You cover this in the book. I had crossed over. Not from the movie cliche of unpopular to popular. I'd crossed over within subgenres, you see. I had moved from the regular old geek nerd to the very top of the geek nerd hierarchy, drama geek nerd. And the reason that drama geeks are at the pinnacle of the food pyramid of geekdom, it's not the tragedy comedy logo or cat's pins on the raincoats. It's not the black eyeliner on both the boys and the girls. Neither is it the ability to burst into song or a tap dance in the school hallway at the drop of a theater reference. No, the thing that separates theater dorks from the rest is one word. You guessed it. Girls. There were and are and always will be pretty girls who sing and dance and act and improvise and joke around and are willing to make fools of themselves. And this is the most important point of all. And they're willing to hang out with geeky guys and even go to rap parties and occasionally make out with them. This sets up drama geeks as the lions of the dork Serengeti. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how it went down, huh? Yeah, that's how it went down. Yeah. No uh, looking back at that point. Are, so. you, are you doing any sports at all? No. No sports. Just P P E, you know? <laughs> you put what? your you put your clothes that you wore all week mm-hmm. and then you forget to bring them home on Friday, so you're like, ah fuck it. And then you wear them the <laughs> next week and they just Reek. stink and you're doing kickball and stuff like that. So But you know, I I, I played some sport. I pl- I play uh, I play tennis. I play tennis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your grades are good? Yeah, straight A's. Straight A's. Yeah. Are you try- you're trying in school? Yeah, I try, yeah. Smart, I read books, yeah. Um, you have a rock and roll band? Yeah. You don't play the bassoon in your rock and roll no, band? No, I don't. I'm the, the singer. The band is called Collected Moss. Right, because of Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. Look at you. Say, we were horrible, <laughs> horrible. <laughs> two gigs, I think we had two gigs, yeah. Not bad. Could be worse. Could be worse. Um, you so now you start applying to colleges. You get rejected by Brown. You get rejected by Stanford. Yeah. You get rejected by Oberlin. Is Oberlin in the league of Stanford no, and Brown? I don't. You just no, threw it in not. there. I just for balance. I don't know. <laughs> Screw them. They're uh, weird. They're weird. <laughs> they're weird. Cornfield hippies. Uh, but you get into Tufts. Yeah. And Tufts is a great school. Yeah. Did you go visit it? Yeah, you went and visited and you loved it immediately. Yeah, yeah. What did you love about it? I mean, it's like, it was like seeing those movies of like what a college is. You know, it's like these buildings and churches and trees and a quad, Mm -hmm. you know, and dorms. And it's like this pretty little New England kind of vibe. And and they had a really good theater department. So so. you're thinking theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to secretly be an actor. I was studying international relations, psychology, English, but... Really, I wanted to. Uh, I knew I wanted to be an actor, but I just I was on the fence about how to how to take that move, mm-hmm. you know, to fully commit. You had a roommate, Rob. Oh, like I think I'm paraphrasing, but basically like a long-haired, muscly dude from Arizona. Yeah, yeah, he's like Who, exactly the kind of guy who listens to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds like an awesome dude. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was it was cool. I'll, I'll just tell the Rob story real quick. 
So I move in to my uh, dorm room, and there's this guy, shoulder-length hair, like built. Um, he came in his truck. He drove from Prescott, Arizona to Boston. He's got his guitars. I think he's got a gun rack. I'm not sure if he brought his gun to school. <laughs> he's got uh, Jethro Tull posters all over his half of the dorm room and like some velvet curtains and stuff like that <laughs> and his bong, right? <laughs> and we couldn't be more different. He doesn't talk to me for two months. And <laughs> finally he admits, finally we start to talk. And finally he admits like, oh, I, I, I found out you went to this suburban Chicago high school that was kind of wealthy. And someone told me like, oh, those are, that's where rich douchebags go. So I thought you were a rich douchebag. So I didn't talk to you for those first two months. But then after that, we became really good friends and it was awesome. We hung out a ton and he's a great guy. I think he's a chef now. He's like a. Well, world-renowned chef somewhere. Hair still, hair still looking good. I think the hair's gone. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a bummer. Yeah, it happens. Um, you, you, you kind of talked through the, well, we talked through already. This is when you kind of, or de- now really reconnected with your biological birth mom. Mm-hmm. You kind of get the backstory on all that, um, and finding out that she had gone through this whole acting phase. Yeah. Do you think that made you think this is sort of genetic thing? I mean, what else could it be? I mean, I, I mean, my my parents were really great in that they supported me in doing the arts. You know, a lot of parents, you know, kids have an artistic inclination, like that's not practical, and they kind of shut it down. My parents were very supportive because my dad really wanted to be an artist, mm-hmm. and he was kind of like, eh, he was kind of a failed artist, right? Because he didn't he didn't really apply himself. He didn't try and get his paintings out there. He didn't like really try and publish his books. Like, um, so I had this inclination, but I, you know, I didn't know any actors or anything like that. It was, it was mind blowing to me at like 19 to find out that my birth mother had been an actor for several years. And I, cause I was, again, I was just filled with that longing to go, to go down that road. So it's gotta be genetics, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did it scare you at all? Like your dad, is kind of tried the art thing but not really getting it done. Your mom sounds like she kind of tried the art thing and now she's not kind of really getting it done. Did you think? So, you know, we make these life choices. We don't know how they they go down. But here's one thing that I do know, that if you want to be a professional artist, you have to devote yourself to that craft, to that art, to that discipline. Um, Hardcore. You've got to give it 10 years. And you've got to work 16 hours a day at it. And there's no other way. I mean, there are some actors that have stumbled into it and other artists that have kind of fallen into things. And that's all fine. But that's not that's not the standard, right? So here I am growing up. I have a failed artist dad, kind of a failed artist mom. And I know I have this longing to do acting. I'm pretty good at it. I'm not like this prodigy, but I'm pretty good at making people laugh. I'm playing characters and, and stuff like that. And that's when I'm like, okay, Rain, if you're going to do this, you have got to give yourself to it and commit your life to it and your work to it and your 100% of your focus. Um, otherwise, you will never make it. So I, in that way, I'm grateful for what my parents taught me 
from what uh, from what they didn't do and the choices they didn't make. I remember having conversations with my dad when I was like 12 or 13. I'm like, how come you never go and try and sell your paintings? I'm like, oh, well, I went once or twice and they rejected them and I just don't blah, 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 have all these excuses. And even at 12 or 13, I'm like, no, just take your paintings, go down to art galleries and you know, knock on the door and say, hey, I got this really cool paintings. You should sell them. And he would never sell himself. So when I finally made the decision to be an actor, I knew that this was going to be a really important decision because I was going to have to go all in. There's no half-assing it. And, you know, you got to put both feet in. And so I applied to acting schools. I left college. I was at that point, I was at the University of Washington in Seattle. And, um, you know, I auditioned. I moved to New York City. I was 20 years old. I didn't have a pot to piss in. I had like $307 in the bank. And, you know, I went to NYU and went to acting school. I'm like, I'm in it to win it. And I'm going to do 10, 20 years as long as it takes. Uh, um, I'm all in. But I'm so great. I'm grateful because I knew what the alternative was, that if you just kind of try it and like it but don't fully go in, I see where that road takes you. Mm-hmm. And it's also no guarantee that you could go 100% in and you could dedicate your entire life to music, art, uh, acting, and you can still be working as a waiter or whatever. I was. I spent the first 10 years of my life as an actor, an artist. I never made over 20 grand in a year. First 10 years of working as an actor. Because I was mostly doing theater. I couldn't get into TV and film. No one would audition me because I was kind of weird looking and they didn't know what to do with me. So, um, yeah, and but I just kept going. I just kept going and then came out to LA and then got some jobs and, and then, you know, ultimately the office. But, you know, there's a lot of times I was thinking about, about pulling the plug. And you applied, so you applied to Juilliard mm-hmm. and you didn't get in. I didn't get in, no. And then you, you auditioned at NYU mm-hmm. and there's an interesting thing that you talk about in the book. You're, you're doing the C, C monologue from Long Day's Journey into Night, which I went and watched on YouTube because I do research things when I, when I don't know what they are. <laughs> but I went and watched somebody doing it. Um, it was interesting. A woman named Zelda Fitchlander. Fitchandler. Fitchandler. Yeah. She told you, like, take all the performance out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like you were going over the top. I was acting. <laughs> I came in with my audition. Uh-huh. I was like, I forget the first line. It's like, you told me stories about your life. Do you want to hear some of mine? They all have to do with the sea. Here's one. Actually, oh, that. Gosh. And then, I, and then he tells this monologue about being on this boat, right? Mm. Which really happened to you, Gene O'Neill, the playwright. He was a merchant seaman and sailed around the world on these boats. So he was telling this story. And, you know, I did it and I did my performance and scene, you know. And she's like, okay, shut up. Stop it. Like, just. Then there was a guy, there was like the dude there, the dean, like just pretend he's your dad, look at him, and just just say the words. And I start again. You told me some stuff. No, no, stop. Just, 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 just talk to him. Like, okay. You told me. No, no, no. Right. Just <laughs> literally just talk to him like you're having a conversation. I was like, you told me some stories about your life. You want to hear some of mine? Ooh. And then she's like, good. Keep going. They all belong to the sea. I remember one time when I was on, and I connected with, I started to cry. Like I was just, he started to cry. Like we had this like, and I was like, oh fuck, that's what acting is. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't all this drama club shit. It's like, 
And and so she's like, boom, come to New York, kiddo. So now it's on. 1986. Yeah. New York City. Yeah. New York City at that time was mayhem. Uh, drugs everywhere. You gangs no everywhere. Idea. They talk about now, like on Fox News, the deterioration in the American cities, which is happening. But, dude, yeah. go to New York in nineteen in the 1980s. Crack epidemics, graffiti everywhere, dilapidated, you know, empty lots, broken bottles, people. I mean, it was, it was, it was nuts. This is when I was going to New York. So I was a okay. kid. I was grew up in Connecticut and I was like uh, into the hardcore scene, into the punk rock scene. And so I was going into New York City. We'd take the Metro North train down. It cost $8. I'd bring like 20 bucks for the weekend. $8 to get down, $8 to get back, $4 for a pizza. Yeah. And we'd go to CBGB's. We'd go to whatever shows were yeah. going on. We'd go to the new music festival. We'd go to just mayhem. But that place was totally insane at that time. Yeah. It was crazy, like walking through Times Square was, I'm you, not kidding. You took your life in your hands. I'm not kidding, every four steps that you took, somebody offered you crack or Coke or whatever. Like literally every four steps, Echo but, Charles. Dude, they would go, I would go down on 8th or 9th Avenues, because I had a girlfriend that was living in New Zealand and I buy stolen calling cards. Remember calling mm-hmm. cards, like a sprint yeah, calling yeah. card and you'd have to dial an 800 number and then boop, 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 mm-hmm. boop, in order to make, and I would buy stolen calling cards mm-hmm. for like 20 bucks, but I would get $200 worth of calls off of them. But they were, I mean, they were offering like, here's stolen license plates. Do you need a passport? I mean, there was, you could get any, the, the dark web was on the yeah, streets. It was on the street. The, the hookers would yeah. be out, it was crazy. Like we'd go to a show, we'd leave at nine o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night to go to, the sh- to, go to a show somewhere um, in, on the Lower East Side. And we'd be walking and you'd see the, the hookers out and they're like looking nice, ready for the night and then we'd come back at three o'clock in the morning and they'd still be there. Yeah. Now they're looking like, you know, they've been working all night. It was freaking horrible to see, absolutely horrible. Yeah. And so New York was t- totally insane at the time. You got. You say mugged slash attacked a couple times yeah, there. Yeah. You got you got hit in the head with a stick by a random dude, and you got gay bashed, yeah. which I which I found interesting. Yeah, I got gay bashed. Yeah, yeah. I um I couldn't sleep, and I went walking at like one a.m. I was living in Chelsea at the time, uh, which wasn't even a gay neighborhood really at the time. It kind of became one later, but uh, it was kind of they used to sell drugs up and down Seventh and Eighth Avenue, so it was it was kind of dangerous. This is eighty eight. And um, and I went down, and there were a couple of guys, and they they were like called me. I don't know what I can say. The f word and uh, maracon and some other things, and they just started swinging at me. And I wanted to be like, I'm straight. No, <laughs> <laughs> but I, for for some reason, I was like, I did your jujitsu mm-hmm. shit like they couldn't land a punch on me for some reason i got so instantly i didn't i didn't punch back but i was like whoo whoo it was like slow mo matrix it was like <laughs> have you ever had that happen in a fight you can kind of see it like and then i took off and they got jumped in their car and they took off after Damn, me these were determined dudes. they really wanted to bash some gays that weren't really gay kind of gay like metro sec half metro, gay metro, metro yeah i was kind of metro bash they wanted a metro bash and uh i ran down like 13th which was the wrong way and then i crawled under a 
staircase under by some garbage cans and I like pulled the garbage can back and I was like (gasps) (laughs) and I was just yeah and I stayed there for like 45 minutes and then made my way back it's brutal what do you do at acting school well Jocko (laughs) what do you do in acting school People watching this are like, what the hell? Can you bring back a general, please, to talk about leadership? I'm trying to figure (laughs) out, like, what do you do in acting school? Now, I will say this. uh, Acting is not easy because people think it's easy, right? People think, Mm -hmm. I could do that. And then they try and do it, and they look like idiots. Yeah, And the really good actors make it look so simple. Mm -hmm. They make it look like Brad Pitt, one of the best actors in the world. Mm -hmm. He makes it just look like just effortless. It's really hard to do mm-hmm. when Brad Pitt does. Really fucking hard. And that's what they teach you at this acting school thing. Although he never went to acting school, but terrible example. But mm-hmm. yeah, so, you know, the whole thing in acting school is we're going to teach you how to be theater artists and theater actors. And from that, you can do TV. And if you have that skill set, mm-hmm. you can do TV and film. So that it wasn't really like on camera stuff. We did a little bit of that. But so we did Shakespeare, we did clowning. We did circus skills. We did, which is all about physical kind of courage and daring and kind of putting yourself out physically out of your comfort zone. We did tightrope, trapeze, juggling. Does everyone do this? Is these like the everyone. general qualifications for acting? Is everyone, everyone in this program did did it. And it's, again, you know, there's some, you know, fat kids in there that couldn't really walk on a tightrope or whatever, but you do what you can, yeah. you know, and you're supported. But you do voice, you do speech, and you do scene study, and you do stage combat. So we did a lot of like yeah. sword fighting like we're doing a Shakespeare play mm-hmm. and learn learn how to do that, which comes in handy when you're shooting in film and you have to pretend combat and stuff like mm-hmm. that, how to take a punch or fake a punch, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And, um, and, you, and the main thing you do is scene study where you go, you you work with your scene partner, you memorize your lines, you come in and they, they give you notes on it and stuff like that. And there were some amazing teachers and I was really lucky. And you played Hamlet uh, twice. Yeah. Yes, yeah. How's that? Yeah, we, we did Hamlet, they cast me as Hamlet, uh, which was an incredible experience. And then the guy who directed, was directing it was really bad director and I was totally lost and we would have a rehearsal and then he would give me a grade on how I did in the rehearsal. So he would write out a thing like, (laughs) so is this a a course that you're taking? No, it's just a side play on the side of the courses. We would do plays on the side of evenings, but it's part of the college. Yes. Part of the college doing plays, but you get no credit for it. It doesn't work like that. It's just like you're going through this program and you're there from nine in the morning till 11 at night every single day. Well, five or six days a week Mm -hmm. and part of that is doing plays so it's not really picking and choosing courses this kind of so he i went to the main acting teacher i was in tears um because i was like i'm so lost i don't know how to play hamlet i don't know what to do and then he came and watched some rehearsals and he's like oh this guy's an idiot and he fired him and he took over so we shut down and then i had another chance we had done like two weeks of rehearsal shut that down and then Ron Van Lu, an amazing acting teacher, came in and then he directed me in Hamlet and it was an amazing experience. There's something like 30,000 words that Hamlet speaks in Hamlet. Yeah. H- how do you go about memorizing that? 
So I knew I was going to be playing him like in the winter and then over Christmas break, I memorized all of the Hamlet monologues. I memorized all the the soliloquies Mm -hmm. to be and not to be. That is the question. And um, so I came in and then I memorized a bunch of his longer speeches before we started rehearsing. But what people don't understand about like the memorizing lines, first of all, when you're 22, it's way easier. You can memorize things really Mm -hmm. quickly. But... You're spending hours on your feet saying the lines and listening and responding and trying it in different ways. And so it's getting in your body. You know what I mean? It's you're not just kind of like it's hard to memorize when you're just sitting there with a book and you're just like trying to memorize it. That's almost impossible. But when you're you know, you're on your feet and interacting with people and stuff like that. So we did a big cut down version. So it was probably only 20,000 oh. words. Um, we cut big scenes out and stuff like that. But it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, I went and saw a version of Hamlet, and man, it was impressive. Oh, cool! Where'd you see it? Right here in San Diego. Yeah, great theater I, in San Diego. Yeah, I saw I saw one version at the Old Globe, which was like the cool one, uh, well, normal one. But I also saw another version at some like other place, and it was all modern and crazy. Yeah, but both those dudes had to memorize a lot of words. Yeah, the thing that. Why, one of the reasons Shakespeare is famous, he's famous for so many different reasons, and that's one of the things that makes him so amazing, why people are obsessed with Shakespeare, but the fact that in 1600, he's written this play, Hamlet, that is all about psychology. It's as modern as Freud and Jung and any psychologist or any Christopher Nolan movie that involves psychology. In this, in 1601, he wrote that. And it's all about who am I, life, death, should I live, should I die, should I kill this guy? Why am I doubting? I should kill him, I was told to kill him, and I don't, why is that? Is it my own failing? Do we have souls, like, I'm in love with her, but should I tell it, like, it's this all this stuff, and that's why, that's what made him, like, head and shoulders better than anyone for hundreds of years. It's not until Chekhov, you know, two, 300 years later that all of a sudden playwrights are like, and Ibsen and Strindberg are like going into the psychology. We covered Henry V on this podcast, which obviously makes sense, but I was gonna do Hamlet and I had uh, an, uh, an actor that I was, that I met that I was like, and who had played Hamlet. Mm. And I thought, oh, if I can get them to come on, that would be kind of epic and it just didn't I haven't pulled it off yet yeah but maybe you're that guy let's let's do it I'm the mm. I'm a middle-aged doughy white <laughs> Hamlet you know <laughs> uh so, so that's what you're doing you're doing this that sounds like a long ass day every day that's yeah. what you're doing yeah you you graduate from NYU and there's one thing that you explain um there's like a draft it sounds like a draft that happens at Juilliard yeah. where you do like a couple a couple performances or something or yeah. a couple monologues or something. It's like the NBA draft. I've never heard it compared, but it is. That's totally what it like sounded that. like. Yeah. yeah. And so you go into this NBA draft thing or the theater draft thing. The or top something. schools go to this theater in Juilliard and we perform little scenes for all the casting directors and producers and TV folk and people that run theaters. And there's, I mean, there's maybe 500 of them, you know, the who's who of, you know, in both theater and TV and film, watching it was totally nerve-wracking. You know, I was 23 years old. My scenes kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> I didn't do very well, and I didn't get, I had just played Hamlet, 
This, this, is, this is a good story about how show business works. These agents, pretty good agents, had come and seen Hamlet. They loved it. They called me in immediately. They're like, oh, my God, your Hamlet was amazing. That was so great. And they talked about it. We talked about it. They're like, okay, you'll do these league performances, they call, and then we'll call you back in. And, and then my, I bombed at the league performances. Like, I didn't do very good. And then they wouldn't return my calls and they didn't bring me back Wait, what's in. a league performance? This is that Juilliard thing where okay. the NBA draft for actors is called, that's what they called it. What, what do you, and you, you go through this in the book, but this is you trying to be like Mr. Serious Guy, kind of? Well, it was me just trying to get an agent, right? That's okay. what it came, comes down to. And the, the, the moral of this story is like, these assholes had seen me play Hamlet and then they see me do a couple of, two minute scenes and because I don't do good in those they don't want anything to do with me but they had seen me play three hours of Hamlet and that's kind of how superficial the the business is yeah because in my mind it seems like if you can do Hamlet you can kind of do anything it seems like you'd think but you know getting to what your other point about like so I had this like wrong idea about what it was to be an actor and that's partially NYU's fault because I was still you know kind of nerdy weird uh, different kind of guy and I was trying to be like Mr. Theater guy you know and so I had this idea of like this is who I need to be and what I need to be and how I need to present myself and um, so it took me several years and a lot of hardship to kind of figure out uh, and uh, you know I had a seminal experience that kind of showed me my my road as an actor your first acting job um at least from what I could decipher from the book, was 12th night for Shakespeare in the Park. You got paid $210 a week. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of what you're doing out yep. of the gate. Yep. Uh, eventually, you joined something called the Acting Company. Yep. Founded by John Houseman. Is John Houseman the guy that uh, used to do those commercials? Yeah, he did the commercials. Uh, and what was that show that he was in? The paper chase. The paper chase. What was yeah. the paper chase about? Because I remember it was about that the show. lawyers in Harvard, like yeah, trying with was. a really tough professor trying. Yeah, he to get was their the law tough to, professor. Yeah, yeah, the ultimate tough professor. Yeah, he was like uh, when E.F. Hutton speaks. When E.F. Yes. E. Hutton, yeah, E.F. Hutton. Listen. So you. He worked with Orson Welles. He was a big theater titan. He started this company called the the Acting Company, and I did two and a half years of bus and truck tours of Shakespeare plays. Which is freaking hilarious in the book. You're talking, you're rolling into like whatever town in the Midwest. Yeah. Waterloo, Iowa. <laughs> you've got, you roll in at 9 p.m. At 10 a.m. you've got a show in the high school cafeteria. Oh my And at 7 God. p.m. you're at the downtown local civic club. And you're doing these Shakespeare plays Just. to places that have never seen Shakespeare before. Maybe or not for years or something like that. Audiences that, so it, was, it was cool. It was cool and, and hard and sometimes sucky, and but I loved it. You know, I was 24, 25. At that point, I was getting $515 a week. Ooh. So I was rolling in it. And plus you're getting this experience. Yeah. So you roll into Waterloo, Iowa. Yeah. What Shakespeare play are you doing? Is it like a variety show? Yeah, we had, uh, no, we did Romeo and Juliet um, and Twelfth Night. No, and Two Gentlemen of Verona. And then the next year we did Midsummer Night's Dream. So... Yeah. Did you ever perform to like seven people and four of them walked out? 
it wasn't that kind of thing, but we would do a lot of like high school theaters and high school like cafeteria theaters, you know, where the theater's yeah. up in the cafeteria and they oh open the goodness. curtains and they're all sitting at the, and like, we would have food thrown at us and stuff like that. We had fun though. We, we had fun. It was hard. <laughs> and you know. I picture when I was in high school, if we, if I was in that situation, I would have made it really, I wasn't, I would have been like, such a dick. I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. But I was just an idiot. Yeah. You know? We're like, school assembly. Yeah. Jocko, be there at 10 a.m. Yeah. to watch a two and a half hour version of Romeo <laughs> and Juliet. And you're just like, like who the kids are like. Things? Yeah. But um, the weird thing about Shakespeare, and I pointed this out when we, when, that was one of the first podcasts we did, was I think it was number 15 actually. But I was, because when I, when I, I studied a lot of Shakespeare when I went to college and it was like, oh, you're not supposed to understand this. You can't understand this. It's written in Middle English. It's, like it's, it's, it's not the same language, and you have to, there's some similarities, obviously, but yeah. you need to actually look up with these words and understand the structure. And, and then you go, oh, holy shit, this guy is incredible. But you got to get people through that transitionary period because they look at it and they go, oh, I don't know what the hell this means. And if they say, oh, oh yeah, I read Shakespeare, it's great. No, they're not, they're lying. Because you, you, there's words you don't know. Yeah, you have to look them up. A third the of the words you don't know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I can't imagine if you try to present Shakespeare to me in high school. I'm sorry, I'm such a loser. Well, you you cut out a lot of the stuff that just makes no sense, and then you, um, you try it. It's so hard to read Shakespeare on the page, and a lot of people get turned off reading it. But you've got to hear it because when you speak it with intention. And like you're like you're trying to get something from someone, and so you say blah 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 blah, blah and you hear it in context, it starts to make way more sense. And you 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 have that experience, right? When yeah. you've seen these productions yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff, for sure. Uh, so you're kind of the uh, other thing we would yeah. do on the road. Oh, that's is right, the games. We would do insane games to keep us sane. Um, one of them was pass the battery, so we'd have a little like double A battery, and it would have to go around to every single person in the cast. So over the course of the play, you'd have to figure out ingenious ways. You'd shake someone's hand, and there all of a sudden there'd be a battery in it, and you're like, oh! And then you you go to someone else, you put your armor, and you drop it in their pocket, and like <laughs> so the battery is making its way around. The other thing we would try and do is we would take we would find out the mascot of whatever school we were at. And then we would try and everyone had to incorporate that word. So if they were like the Badgers, you know, you'd have to say, I say thee, I pray thee, liege, for when, from whence thou come, surely thou, thou, thou art no Badger to say that thou, and we would always try and, and the kids would be like, no, really? Is the word Badger 17 times in this Shakespeare play? It was, that was fun. We did shit like, we would do withered hand where at some point everyone had to have like a withered hand on stage and bunny Hop, we would have to at some point incorporate a bunny hop. Um, we got in bad trouble, but we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. There was a lot of debauchery on the road, too. And uh, that kind of leads into this next section I want to read from the book. It says, here, for an artsy East Village actor, there was simply no room for God, morality, or devotion, or at least none that I could conceive of at the time. In my quest for this tantalizing bohemian street cred during my first year at NYU, I dyed my hair jet black and started smoking a pipe. The hair dye I got from a box of Clairol, midnight black, you know the kind so toxic that there's an emergency 800 number right on the box in case you accidentally dump the concoction into your eyes. I looked ridiculous. The first issue was that I'd forgotten about 
my eyebrows. The hair on my head was like Bruce Lee's and my eyebrows were light brown with ginger highlights. I looked like a serial killer who had just written his manifesto on the walls of his cabin with his own blood and feces. And the pipe, my Aunt Wendy, my dad's sister smoked one, always had. She was rebellious, artistic, pipe-smoking inspiration, and I always loved her rebellious, artistic, pipe-smoking spirit. As with most things in my life, I was simply trying way too hard. We were such a pretentious lot, us village artists. I remember having one ridiculous late-night conversation with a bunch of pot-smoking artists where the question was posed, would you ever do a commercial? I remember a friend of mine paused dramatically and considered this disgusting capitalistic question quite deeply, stroking his goatee and drawing on his camel light. I might do a commercial. And then he added heavily for soy milk. <laughs> so, so you guys were freaking yeah, we full were, on. We were douchebags. <laughs> no question. No question. Uh you, start- you you have to find you always find the most embarrassing thing about me in the book. Not the cool stuff. You find like the most humiliating. Oh, I thought these were segments. the cool parts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, get the book. There's so many. There's like like I said. I mean, I'm reading less. I don't know. Probably five percent of the book. There's all kinds of insane, funny stories. And like I said, your ghostwriter did a great job. Um, <laughs> damn you, Jocko! I wrote every word. Every word I say. Uh. At some point, you start, fast forward a little bit, now you're dating like a lawyer slash drug dealer. I believe you gave her the name Jesse. Um, your cocaine comes into the picture. You say, I spent countless nights in drunken stumbling and almost vomiting in taxi cabs, speeded speedily through parties and bars, wafted red-eyed and high through many late-night conversations, and woke up desolate, fried, embarrassed, and sad on countless mornings during those years. Good bohemian times. It's weird because, like I said, I was going to New York at this time. And, like, I would see these people. I probably saw you. Yeah. I, I, in fact, if I didn't see you specifically, I saw your people. <laughs> I saw them down there. They were down there. They were uh, looking exactly like this. This yeah. was you. This yeah, was your yeah. gig. Well, listen, so there's a bigger conversation here, which is... And this is a little bit in the Bassoon King. I talk about my spiritual journey. And I talk about spirituality more in the new book, Soul Boom. But I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith. It's a very beautiful faith. It's all about love and unity and peace. And I jettisoned that like so many of us do when you're 20 years old. You move to the big city or maybe you go in the military or whatever. Your college or you go get a job somewhere, whatever your life journey, wherever it takes you. And I wanted nothing to do with spirituality and I wanted nothing to do with God and morality and I didn't want to think about that thing. I just wanted to live a, what I thought of like a bohemian lifestyle, which is party, go crazy, make art, like, you know, live life to the extreme in that in that sense. And, you know, and, and that was good. You know, we talked about these hilarious times in the in the acting company and other theater that I did. And, you know, and then. I got more and more uh, dependent on drugs and alcohol. Uh, I really realize now that I was using them to medicate my anxiety. So I wasn't, I was occasionally like a fall down drunk, but I wasn't like one of those guys that every time they drink, they pass out in, in their own vomit or something like that. But I was, you know, year after year using a lot of drugs and alcohol to just cope and just get by my daily life. 
And I was really unhappy. I was really miserable. And this started a journey for me, um, which was a, a spiritual one where I was kind of like this. And, and I realized now that I was having a lot of mental health issues at the time. Like I would have anxiety attacks. I was depressed a lot. Um, I was experiencing extreme loneliness. Um, it didn't make sense to me. I was living my dream. We've, we've been through my life story. Here I am living in New York City. I'm working as an actor and from suburban Seattle, this loser D&D kid, this is incredible. And yet I was deeply, deeply unhappy. And why am I so unhappy? And why am I filled with so much anxiety? And that's what kind of led me to examine God and spirituality um, as a possible path toward recovery. I didn't at that point didn't go into 12-step programs, but I was I started to really dig deep into God and the meaning of life and you know why we're here because at that time there weren't podcasts to where you could go listen to, you know, you or or Rich Roll or someone that's going to make you like really think and learn Huberman and you know learn about how this stuff works and the, there weren't that many resources you know, in the, in the early nineties at this point uh, around this stuff, no one did therapy. Therapy was for really rich people, you know, and I certainly didn't have money for therapy and, uh, you know, you couldn't call up like better help or something like that. So that this is the only thing I knew to do from my childhood was like read about God. And I read the Bible. I read the Quran. I read, uh, the, I was a big reader. I read, uh, the, the Buddha, you know, the original works of the Buddha, the Bhagavad Gita, and started really thinking like, well, maybe because I threw everything to do out with religion and God and faith and spirituality out the window, maybe I threw the baby out with the bathwater and, you know, maybe this stuff could actually help me. So it was like, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Like I wouldn't trade it for the world. I had an amazing time, had, you know, it's chock-a-block with crazy adventures of New York and 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 partying and and it was it was fun and great until it wasn't anymore and I was pretty unhappy and I was trying to make my relationship work with now my wife we've been together for thirty years and uh, you know and that's what set me on this spiritual journey and and, and an interest in in spiritual topics so that's one of the threads that runs through Bassoon King that I really dive into and. And soul boom. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, you just mentioned your wife. So you, at some point you take leave, or I don't know what you call it in the civilian world. You go on vacation, I guess. You go on vacation and you go to Washington. And you had you knew her, but you look her up in the white pages, which yep. was very, <laughs> very romantic. And, yeah. And she's in there. Yeah. And so you call her. Yeah. Isn't it weird you used to have to like find a person's phone number? And she tells a story really funny. Her and her roommate were so broke, they were like trying to decide like, should we pay the extra 75 cents a month or whatever it is to have your name listed in the white pages? And they're like, yes, we're gonna make that investment. Who knows, someone might need to look us up and call us one of these times. So there she was, Holly Reinhorn. I remember she was hot and cool and uh, edgy and, and wonderful and gave her a call and got together and you were kind of like just kind of the romantic dream for her I mean you're like this actor guy living in New York City I moved to New York I went to acting school I was like professional actor hell yeah yeah that was just 
You yeah, rolled baby. in there. It you all, rolled in there big time. It all goes back to that first drama class, that first <laughs> drama class. Yeah. And and then she ends up moving back to New York with you. Yeah. It's like a year later. Um, you get it. Sounds like you got like the sickest apartment ever in Brooklyn. Like thirteen yeah. foot ceilings, like yeah, this really yeah. is dirt. Well, we we lucked cheap. into this eight hundred dollar a month apartment that was insane. Yeah, it was insane. We had you, huge parties there. Yeah, it was great. You roll into this uh, chapter in the book. the 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 chapter title is "I Bombed on Broadway," mm-hmm. which is, you know, uh, doesn't sound very good, but it kind of sets you in the right motion. And part of this, you know, you you just kind of talked about this. Here, you were a professional a- actor, yet you weren't happy at the time, right? You you're just not happy, which is crazy to think about. Um, there, I was not happy in Brooklyn, and I wasn't exactly sure why. I would wake up in the middle of the night deeply, deeply sad, alienated, disconnected. Then I would kick myself. Why are you feeling this way? I mean, look at what amazing woman you have asleep beside you. Think of all the incredible theater you're doing. You have everything you ever wanted, including a kick-ass van. We haven't even talked about your van yet, but you had a kick-ass van. Your dream has come true, and yet you're still not happy, jerk face. And fast forward a little bit. I thought I had started sneaking up. I had a thought that started sneaking up around me at this time. Perhaps the reason I'm not happy is I don't have meaning. I don't have purpose. Started asking my friends about God. This is kind of where what you were just talking about. Yeah. You go through this. Like you said, it's a, kind of what you remembered from your childhood. And like, there's got to be something there. Hmm. Let's start digging. And you start, that's what you do. You start digging. And um, as you're digging through that, you have a good story about Daryl Strawberry. You... Asked Dor- Daryl Strawberry if <laughs> what is the uh, Wakantanka, which is yeah. the Native American spirit, and you pray to Wakantanka during this baseball game yeah. for Daryl Strawberry to get a home run so you yeah. can win. So I, I had, I really struggled with the idea of God. Like I was really struggling with like God, Daddy, God. I call him Sky Daddy and Soul Boom. <laughs> like this idea of this man, patriarchal man with a big beard looking down at us all and judging us. And I just really struggled with that. I'm like, I'm just trying to figure it out. And I was reading a lot of Native American spirituality at the time. And and the Lakota Sioux word for God is Wakantanka, which literally translates to the great mystery. And it's the God of nature and the seasons and beyond time and space. And you can only know this God kind of through nature and um, through the wind and through the sun. And um, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I was talking to my friend about, it's like, I don't believe in God, but I believe in Wakantanka. <laughs> so he's like, prove it. And I was like, okay. The Mets were down, bottom of the ninth. Daryl Strawberry was up. And I was like, let's try it. And I literally went, oh, Wakantanka. <laughs> uh, grandfather spirit, great mystery. If you exist, please help us and have Daryl Strawberry help win this game. If you show, the, show yourself. I am not shitting. <laughs> Turn to the TV. Over the field, walk off home run ends the game. Yeah. And me and my friend Phil, who's one of my best friends, we still I was just talking to him earlier. We were just like, Yo. Whoa. <laughs> but it, it wasn't enough to convince Phil. He's still uh-huh. an atheist, but uh-huh. uh, that was as silly and stupid as that yeah. sounds, I was like, Okay, gotta keep going. <laughs> Go down this path. Let's see where this goes. Um meanwhile, you 
you get this role. You get a you get a lead role in a in a Broadway show, yeah. and you say this about the role. In the months and weeks leading up to the rehearsals, I grew increasingly nervous. The pressure was building inside. I felt an immediate stress mounting within me about how I would need to really shine in this role. A stressful voice in my head kept prodding, "This play could give me a better agent. This role could land me a Tony nomination. This is my chance to get an amazing New York Times review." The pressure continued to increase and build through the rehearsals and eventual performances until, you guessed it, I totally sucked in the role. I bombed on Broadway. But, and isn't it funny how life works, it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. In rehearsals, I was stiff and disconnected. I had, for some weird reason, decided exactly how to play the role in my head. All my choices were predecided. They were also broad, fakey, and strangely puppet-like. I could feel myself throwing out all my training and rehearsed the play by doing strained line reading after strained line reading. I knew I was sucking and I didn't know what to do. I could tell internally and also from the quizzical, almost sad looks I was getting from the rest of the cast. Joe pulled me aside after a couple weeks and spoke to me quite seriously about his concerns with me in this role. He urged me to relax and just explore and play and have fun in in the rehearsal process, but try as I might, I just couldn't. I was in a gigantic pressurized acting rut and I couldn't escape. All of a sudden, we were getting close to having an audience. I freaked. I began waking up in the middle of the night shaking and sweating. I was terrified. I knew that I was about to suck in my first big show. Holiday was in Iowa at the time. I spent many tearful hours in the middle of the night with her on the phone as she consoled and counseled me. That's when the prayers started. When all else fails, sometimes you just get on your knees and ask for help, and I did. Over and over again, I reached out for assistance from Wonkin Tonka, God, Creator, whatever. I was stuck. I was lost and terrified. I literally didn't know what else to do. The prayers didn't make me a brilliant actor all of a sudden, but I do believe they were a factor in a transformation I made as an artist and as a person at this pivotal juncture. I started to understand that I had been doing the role for all the wrong reasons, to impress people, to gain accolades, to gain fame. I was looking outside myself, trying to be something I wasn't for others. London Assurance, that's the name of the play you were in, broke me open like an egg. I didn't want to be that kind of fakey artist anymore, performing out of obligation, needing neediness, and a desperate need to be liked. I knew that I ultimately needed to be myself and screw whatever other people thought of me. I felt this newfound commitment to freedom in my bones, and it was a revelation. After this Broadway fiasco, I learned how to relax and breathe and play. I embraced the natural nerdy oddness that was me. I was never going to be the same, some formal idea of a classical actor man beloved by casting directors in the New York Times and rocking an ascot. As the previews went along, I did see some eventual improvement. I was able to relax a bit here and there and get a few occasional laughs in the role. Was I good? No, but at least I wasn't completely horrible. I got Almost, I got mostly poor to middling reviews, but at least I didn't get raked over the coals. More important, after the show closed, I was filled with as much great, with a much greater purpose and inspiration in my life and work. Yeah. Keep going. Read the rest of the book. There's only about like 170 <laughs> more pages. Uh, that's kind of this. This this had a huge impact on you. I mean, yeah, obviously, this is like you a know, pivotal this point. Is, this is a story that I tell young people a lot when I speak at colleges, and it and it's something you've covered on your pod a lot. But it's like what we learn from failure, you know, and and how important failure is in making us who we are. And we kind of in modern society, it's like failure is a weakness and it's bad and you're wrong and you should never fail, but. By sucking in this Broadway play, 
and kind of going through the fire. You know, I was on the anvil being pounded because it, you know, <laughs> I mean, you've been in firefights with mortars dropping on your head. I'm not comparing it to that. But I will say that when you your longing is to be an actor and you're doing your first lead on Broadway and you're doing eight shows a week for four or five months and then you suck and you have to go in every single day and perform and you know you're not good and you know the audience is like, uh, um, it's really painful. And then it, 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 it caused a lot of soul searching. I'm like, I was trying to be Mr. Actor Man of New York to get the New York Times review and like get some kind of accolades or a Tony nomination. And I was doing it for the wrong reasons and trying to be someone or something that I'm, I'm inherently not. And after I sobbed and talked to Holly on the phone, after I was praying on my knees, after I was like, I just went through the ringer on this thing, I was like, fuck that. I'm never doing that again. I'm never going through that again. I'm going to bring exactly who I am to the roles that I play. And if they don't like it, screw them. Mm -hmm. I have to be myself. This helped me find my authentic voice as an actor and as a human being. And I'm so grateful for one of the most painful four to five months of my life I've ever gone through. I'm grateful for it because on that on that forge, again, no mortars dropping on my head, but on that particular forge, it showed me a path. So my failure, my struggle, my pain forged me into someone that could eventually play Dwight on The Office. I never would have played Dwight on The Office if I had not bombed on Broadway. So what I thought was like the biggest failure of my life actually turned into the greatest success in my life. So embracing roles like Dwight, um, uh, where I could just draw on my own natural quirkiness and I and come up with my own vision of how to play the character. I wasn't when I started Dwight. I wasn't thinking about Emmy awards or money or stardom or any of that stuff. Um, that showed me the way. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a really important lesson for for young folks especially to learn. Sometimes it's kind of like you talk to young people and like I'm failing, I'm struggling, I'm hurting. Good. When we were talking earlier about giving, you're giving a hundred percent, right? And you you were saying, hey, you've got to give yourself a hundred percent to acting or writing or whatever it is you're going to do. And I, I've had conversations with people um, about two things that are somewhat similar to that, but writing books and doing a podcast, right? And right now, of course, everybody has a podcast right now and you can write books really easily. But when people would talk to me about it, they'd be like, well, I think I'm gonna start a podcast or I wanna write a book. That's the two things that a lot of people have said to me in the past 10 years, or I guess it's been seven years or whatever, however long I've been doing this stuff. And one thing that I tell them is, you've gotta do it because you want to do it. Like even this podcast, if if we were to, if someone said, hey, or if I said, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a podcast, here's what the podcast is gonna be about. We're gonna make it three, four, five hours long. We're gonna talk about war, death, genocide. We're gonna talk about the most horrible subjects. It's gonna be me, I'm gonna be reading from old books that are out of print, and that's what we're gonna do. There's no one that would have said, oh, that sounds like it's gonna be a hit. That, that sounds, sounds like a fun. Winner. Right. Yeah, sign me up. You've got, but I, I did it 
and the path that we went down was just because this is what I'm into. This is what I like. This is what I'm interested in. Same thing with books. If you're going to write a book and your goal of the book is to be a New York Times bestseller or your goal of the podcast is to be the number one podcast, you're going to be like Rain Wilson in uh, that play trying really hard to get a good review. And it's like it doesn't that's not what brings it. You're looking for something outside of yourself for validation and for happiness as opposed to an inner motivation. And you do, you do, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that, that write to me and talk to me about the exact same thing. And they want to start a podcast because they want the, they want the accoutrement Mm -hmm. of the successful podcast. They want like accolades and people looking up to them and they want to be invited on other podcasts and they want to be published and they want to be, get a speaking gig, lecturing gigs at colleges or whatever it is. And yeah, you got to find your authentic voice, which you have done masterfully. And I was able to do as an actor and it gave me some success uh, because I jettisoned all of that shit. And I was just like, I'm going to play weird, fucked up roles. (laughs) And this is who I am. And if you don't like it, that's fine. You don't have to watch. Screw you. And it's the same way today with social media and, you know, with podcasting and voicing your opinion and stuff like that. It's like, I got to be me. This is who I am. This is what I think. And I get a lot of backlash sometimes. And it's like, all right, that's fine. You can you can pull your hair out and threaten to kill me on YouTube. It's all great. It's all fine. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. I really don't. I've just passed that. So uh, I do want to be part of a much larger conversation of how do we make ourselves better people? Mm-hmm. And how do we make the world a better place? Let's just engage in that conversation. These these are good conversations to yeah, have. Yeah, yeah, and have fun doing it. Um, so now you get this, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit timeline-wise. The next section that I'm gonna go to is Welcome to Los Angeles. Uh, and I had to throw this in there. Hollywood, for the seven of you that don't know, is not anything like you think it is from the association with that famous grandiose name. There's nothing tinsely or fabulous or razzle-dazzly about that place. This was especially true in 1999. Busy and yet somehow completely destitute, it was popular, populated with drug addicts, strippers, schizophrenics, and Scientologists. Besides a wax museum, some sickly palm trees, an occasional confused Dutch tourist, and the stars on Hollywood Boulevard, there was nothing there to let you know that there was a show business industry in its history or in the vicinity. But if you wanted marijuana, wigs, a taco, or a taco, it was definitely the place to be. (laughs) It is weird for people that haven't been to California and Hollywood, it's really like you you wouldn't know that there's anything there. Yeah, it's different now. There's kind of more glitz. There's the mall there and some, right? It's mm-hmm. it's kind of a little better, you know, but you can still buy a wig and a taco mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> any drug you want probably. So, yeah. And you can still join Scientology readily if yeah, you want to. Yeah, oh, yeah. You can walk right in. They'd be glad to have you. But, uh, yeah, it's so funny because all the all – the, the magic gets made on the sound stages in the studios, but there's nothing in Hollywood that mm-hmm. has to do with that. And even then you go into a studio and it just it just looks like this. It's yeah. just like these rooms and there's a couple cameras and you know, some trailers and some dollies and a bunch of cables and lying around. It's nothing really that fabulous. And you would come out, um, you guys had had made a show, what is it, New New Bozina? The New Bozina, yeah. We did a, me and my friends uh, did a clown comedy, sketch comedy, 
weird surreal comedy piece that we'd created in New York and had done pretty well in New York and we brought it out to LA. And this was David was David uh, Costable. Yeah. He's on Billions and he was on Breaking Bad. Yeah, he was I was in Billions with him. No kidding. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. What a freaking good dude. Yeah. That whole place was I it was interesting. It was the first time I ever did anything like that. Yeah. And so I didn't really know what was going on and I didn't know how popular Billions was. And so I got hooked up. Tim Ferriss is a friend of mine, and he, they asked him if I would want to be on it. Like Tim and I were on the same episode. Anyways, I said, "Like, well, sounds cool, whatever." I was going to New York, and I went out there, and actually, I showed up, and David was like, he 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 was like super cool, but he he's like, I showed up, and I'm like, oh hi, and he's like, welcome to Billions, as if like. And I was kind of like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, I, was, I was like, that's a little strange. Because I had only watched, like, th- on the, my flight to New York, I watched the first, like, three episodes. So I really didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know how freaking good that show was. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I was hook, line, and sinker. And I've, I've um, watched the whole thing. But, yeah, I was. that was another thing. Like, I'm with those guys. And these guys are studying lines. Like, I'm sitting there. And that's the other freaking jacked up thing. So they, I had got a script, right? And I kind of thought like, well, you don't actually like read the script or whatever, like in a show, you just kind of make shit up. And so I hadn't memorized the, I don't know how many lines I had, but however many lines I had, I didn't memorize any of them. I thought I was just gonna be me and just talk because I was literally myself, right? Yeah. So I get there and now I'm watching what's going on with the, as they're filming other sections and I was, and they like, oh shit. They do the same thing over and over again. Over and over and over again, like 20 times. And I was like, holy shit, I've got to do yeah. the same thing over and over again. I'm totally a prepared. So now I'm like sitting there trying to memorize my nine lines or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, but what a good, what a great dude. I, I, actually, the whole, everyone there was awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah Brian Koppelman and Dave Levine have been just, they were just super cool and still super cool. Uh, but yeah. And then David from when he was in Breaking Bad and the whole nine yards. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's one of my oldest, dearest friends. And, it, it's great. He's had a great career, and we started doing these weird <laughs> sketch comedy clown characters. It's hard to describe what it was, but yeah, and it's that's what brought us to L.A. So Yeah, because like your director yeah. or something was there? Uh, your Our producer, producer. Had, had moved there to work in TV and film, and he brought us out, and we did the stage play, a bunch of different theaters, and we got a TV deal at Fox, and um, you know, just started getting the whole TV and film thing going. And meanwhile, you do five auditions. You eventually get almost famous. Mm-hmm. Great San Diego movie, by the way. Yeah, uh, Galaxy Quest. Those are my first two movies. The Expendables. That wasn't the not the movie you're thinking yep. of. It was a different show yep. called The Expendables. Yeah. Uh, and you say suddenly, I thought I had this whole LA thing figured out. I rolled into town and gotten a pilot, and a couple of film roles without a single hitch. We set up the new Bozina at Fox, do a pilot presentation, and made more money in a couple months than in all the previous years combined. I was in and feeling like a made man. Holiday and I decided to settle down in LA and make a go of it. She would finish her book of short stories, and I would be an actor who could actually pay the bills. Then within a few months, the new Bozina got rejected by Fox, and I was unemployed for a full year. Showbiz. Eventually do House of a Thousand Corpses for Rob Zombie. Yes. Yeah. Yep. 20th anniversary just passed. Hell yeah. 20th anniversary. Uh, you did the movie America's Sweethearts, CSI, Law and Order, couple pilots, and canceled shows that no one ever heard of to pay the bills and continue to build my career. 
you get you get you're one of the final actors uh, for Arrested Development to yeah. play to play Job. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. You say this about that. After several auditions, I was once again being tested for the project. There were two final scenes that we Jobs would be doing alongside the, the rest of the family who had already been cast. In one scene, there were one or two lines, in the, and in the other scene, there were a couple of pages of really funny dialogue and a great chance to show off what you could do with the character. We all filed in one at a time to show the head of Fox the first short scene. The other Jobs went in to do the second bigger scene. I waited nervously going over my lines and bits and preparation. I waited and waited and waited. I was sitting all alone in the waiting room and after 10 or 15 minutes I wandered out of the hallway. Everyone had left. I mean everyone. Actors, casting agents, Fox executives, janitors, everyone. I finally saw a casting assistant cleaning up in a corner and asked what was going on. I guess they saw all they needed to see from you. She chirped merrily and I slunk away embarrassed and miserable only having only auditioned with two lines for the best comic role I'd ever read. Yeah, that was, uh, I still, that just kind of staggers me that there were like three of us. The other one was uh, Michael, um, uh, what's his name from Succession, who plays Connor, the older brother, Michael Root, Michael Rudd, I'm forgetting his name. A brilliant actor. A brilliant actor who's on Succession. He was, um, and it was me, him, and Will Arnett, who was obviously brilliant. And uh, yeah, do the first little scene. And they're like, okay, go wait over here and we'll call you back in for your next scene. <laughs> and they just bounced. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait. I'm going over my lines and wait, and I wait, and I wait. <laughs> it's like, and a half an hour later, everyone's gone. And no one, no one thought to go over. This is how Hollywood works. No one thought just like the common decency to just be like, Rain, thanks so much. They're not going to see you for the next scene. They saw what they needed, and they're going to go in a different direction. Thank you so much for coming in. Like no one could just do that, and it was, it was humiliating. It was it was pretty humiliating. But it, it it's par for the course. You just keep going. And uh, Will Arnett was great for that, and I'm grateful I didn't get cast in that because sure. that wouldn't have played Dwight mm-hmm. if I had been cast on Arrested Development. He's had a great career. I've had a great career. And uh, it all works out in the end. I was up in LA uh, talking to a company, but wherever I was talking, there was an audition going on Uh for something. And there was 500 uh, teenage girls between the ages of like 11 and 14 lined up around the block. It's, with with their holding their pages and yeah, stuff. It yeah, it was like crazy. Yeah. One of my friends works in L.A. and he like runs movies and shows and stuff. And he says it's the worst thing. Like every person that walks in that room, you are holding their dream. Right. You are just holding their dream, and they seem like the nicest, and they're good for the role. But there's someone that's just a little bit better, and you just take their dream and just throw it away, and you don't even have time. Like. What you're saying, he's like, yeah, I mean, you had three people, but when there's 500 people in line, it's like, oh, here's your dream. Oh, yeah, smash it next. He yeah. said it's the, he hates it. He wasn't doing it anymore. Yeah. He has a casting director, and he just like won't do it anymore because it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. It's a brutal process. But you know, one thing you realize when you're, because uh, I've been on the other side casting on stuff that I've produced or I was starring in or whatever, and you, especially when you see people in the room, or you, now it's mostly on tapes, so you see kind of, on the cloud, they upload their auditions mm-hmm. or whatever, but you know in like 30 seconds mm-hmm. whether they're right or not. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing to do with that. It's nothing yeah, yeah. even to do with their talent or anything. Like, like you just see them and their vibe. It's all a vibe thing, their yeah. vibe and how they're doing the, the lines and stuff. Like, eh, nah. 
Yeah, and yeah. So that's what my buddy said. Like someone would walk in, and he did not even thirty seconds. He looked at the person like they can't play this role, but he's like, <sighs> "You've got to let yeah, them do their like, thing." They've know, worked for hours <sighs> or days on it, and uh, yeah, it's tough. Freaking it's, awful. By the way, your son was born two thousand four. This is in this time frame. Um, you got uh, the harrowing story of the birth of your son in the book. So get the book. Um, you end up in this in this show six feet under, and um, that, as you mentioned, eventually leads to chapter fourteen. Dwight K. Schrute, assistant to the regional manager. Um, you say I was the very first person to audition for the office. Literally, our incredible casting director Allison Jones, who casts all of Judd Apatow and Paul Feig's movies as well as Veep and a myriad of other brilliant comedies, had recently gotten to know me as an actor, and I was starting to get some notice because of my role on Six Feet Under. She called me into audition for both Michael and Dwight. And I was excited beyond words, as I loved the project so much, I sat in the waiting room clutching my pages, literally more eager for this audition than any of the hundreds I had been on in the past. Yeah. And that's just because you knew the, the story? I knew the British office. I had seen it early on. Thought it was amazing, and um, everyone was like, "Oh, they're gonna ruin it, and they can never make an American version." And blah, blah. everyone was shitting on it, especially British people. Mm. But um, I was like, "Well, why? Why not?" You know. And I still am like, "There's still people that are kind of like, oh, I like the British better." It's like, okay, you can watch all twelve <laughs> of the British series over and over again for the rest of your life, every single day. No one's taking that away from you. Meanwhile. <laughs> We went and made 200 episodes of a of a different kind of version, mm-hmm. and it needed to be different because they're British has subsidized television. They have no commercials, so they're getting literally government grants. They can do much shorter seasons. We've got to do long seasons, and with commercial breaks, we have shorter episodes. Anyways, the list mm-hmm. goes on and on. But I was a huge fan of the British show, and oh, man, I was I was so excited, and and it was one of those things where. You know, Wakantanka was smiling on me. <laughs> you know, like I knew from the second I read Dwight, I was like, "That's my role. I absolutely know how to play this role." Hell and yeah. uh, uh, I was like, "There's no one else that can do this the way that I can." So I did a terrible audition for Michael. I I went in and just did Ricky Gervais. I literally mm-hmm. was like, "Playing with you." So I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm a manager here, and uh, well. Uh, you know, it's hard. Everyone nobody loves me, and like world's best boss, and <laughs> and it was it was just really not right. And then I went in for for Dwight, and I was like, I can and do drink my own urine, <laughs> and you know, and they were just like, yeah, okay, <laughs> this guy knows what he's doing. But it was, st- but even then, like I I really killed the audition. But the callbacks weren't for months later, oh. and the callbacks were. This is back in the day, and they 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 spent so much time and energy and money on the casting. I mean, it was really they spent months on the casting. They saw everybody, and it was a really important project to NBC. And then they mixed and matched us over a course of a weekend, and they filmed us, which hardly so that a test where like the the studio executives decide in a in a test, a TV test or pilot test, who they're going to cast. It wasn't like coming into a room and performing for a bunch of executives. They just watched the tape, which is a much better way of doing it. So I got matched up with Bob Odenkirk, mm. 
who was up for Michael. He was like, it was between Bob Odenkirk and Steve Carell. Wow. Two brilliant talents, but Bob was a little dark. Yeah. He was a little dark for the role. Yeah, he could have played the British one, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, you know, God bless him. He's had such a great career. He's such an amazing actor. And, you know, as soon as you saw Steve Carell do it, it was just like, I hadn't seen him act before. And they sent us in to like improvise with each other. And I was like laughing in the in the audition. And um, I had never seen an actor like that before or since. I mean, his his <laughs> ability, he's just so facile. He can just improvise off of anything. And that's the, that's the amazing thing about, I know I'm skipping around here yeah, okay. a lot, but that's the amazing thing about about Steve is like you talk about learning lines. Like he would learn his lines, but he's the kind of actor like you could throw anything at him. I did it over 200 episodes and it would never break him and he would never, it couldn't, you couldn't throw him off. Mm-hmm. You could not, he had done so much improv, you could not throw him off. You know, if you're doing a scene and you're talking about how, well, we better go to the Italian restaurant on a lunch break and and you're like, and you just throw in a line like, you know, I, I really never loved my mother. And he would just be like, Dwight, what are you talking about your mother right now? We got to get to that Italian restaurant. It wouldn't even like phase him. He would just take anything and weave it in. And uh, that was incredible to learn from because I came from this Shakespeare background, right? Uh-huh. Theater background and memorizing lines and performing and stuff like that. And Steve was all about just like just mercurial and just being able to do to turn on a dime. Who's Greg Daniels? He's the showrunner. He was the main writer for our show. So kind so of he he shaped he took the English thing and shaped it for the American audience. And he's kind of when they showrunner basically means they make all the decisions. Right. So the casting, the edits, the cuts, the 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 final scripts, the budgets. They're really the big executive mm-hmm. producer overseeing the whole thing. And and is would you say he's the guy that like had the vision of? Because they were obviously putting a lot of effort into this. Yeah, is he the guy that thought like, "Hey, this is going to be if we do this right, we got we got a freaking gold mine here." A hundred percent. Yeah, he Greg Daniels is he, he doesn't get enough credit for what he did, but he's very meticulous, and he really just had lists of like, "Here's what I love about the British office, and here's what is not going to work for an American mm-hmm. audience," and he really wanted more heart. I don't know. If, here's a good indicator of that. Look at the difference in Michael Scott from season one to season two. So in season one, Steve himself was a little overweight. He would admit that. And he had, they had Michael Scott, like Ricky, slick his hair back, is thinning a little bit. And like, he was much more like, just unlikable, just mm-hmm. kind of like a greasy used car salesman a little bit. And, and they realized, even though season one is pretty brilliant and pretty freaking funny, um, they realize like we need to make Michael Scott more accessible, approachable because he's doing so many more horrible things. So they kind of like did his hair better and they dressed him a little better. They lit it a little nicer. Just look at the difference even in the lighting. And they made they gave him a little more heart, just a, mm-hmm. just a little bit more. Not all of a sudden he's hugging puppies, right? But in fact, they say that on TV like – you've got an unlikable character then you've got to show them early on being really nice to an animal and then the audience will like them and then they can forgive all the dastardly things they do but but it wasn't like that with michael scott but they just gave him a little more heart and a little more warmth and 
you felt for him a little bit. You realized like, oh, he's kind of a lost puppy dog himself. But in season one, he was a little, mm-hmm. it was a little more like the British show. Um, but so Greg Daniels is the one making those decisions and going, you know, and being really sure that, and he said early on, he said, listen, because at the time, I don't know if you remember this, but American com- television comedy in 2005 was n- not very good. Putting Seinfeld and Friends aside, which were brilliant, there were a, there was a lot of crappy shows out there. Um, I love Everybody Loves Raymond was great. There were there were some classics, and then a sea of crap. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, you know, if we can take the world of comedy and just turn it, it's like a comedy is like an ocean liner. If we can turn it one degree in the right direction. We can influence comedy in the right way, and that's that's what The Office did. It didn't do one degree. It did like five degrees and made comedy a lot smarter but it was so revolutionary what we were doing at the time single camera poorly lit like fluorescent lights really average to unattractive characters and even like jim and pam like like jenna and john are 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 really good looking but they're not like models right they're just real people they're real people who are kind of good look on the good looking side of things and at the time, they were casting all these like models in these <laughs> sitcoms and stuff, and that wasn't working out so well. So the, the fact that it's real people, handheld, like shaky camera, there were a lot of um, things that really broke. And we almost got canceled so mm-hmm. many times. I mean, we did not do well. We got terrible reviews. Go Google the early reviews of The Office. They were terrible. Like, oh, not as good as the English office. There's some um, haters on that English office. Oh, my God. It just never, it just never, it still doesn't end. It's still, it's just incredible. Well, British people have a different sense of humor. Like I said, I'm married to a Brit. So I I get some of that English humor. But Americans don't have that same sense of humor. Right. We needed the American office. Yeah. And we needed it bad. Yeah. (laughs) Like, The British office, if you're an American watching it, you're depressed. You can very well end up depressed. You're like, oh, this is this doesn't make me feel good. It's funny, but I'm like laughing at these people and I feel guilty about it when I'm done. It's like not a feeling. It's pretty cynical. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and the American office is it's American. Yeah. Well, and I think the interesting thing is about the office, which no one saw coming, by the way, was when it started to stream on Netflix in 2016, 17, and 18. I don't know. I don't even know when it started. Someone should Google that. Get on that. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Never been called sir before. (laughs) Uh, The, um, and all of a sudden you had, and this probably applies to your kids, you had teenagers watching the show over and over and over again. And all of a sudden I was meeting 14 year olds who had seen the entirety of The Office like seven times. Mm And this was way back now. Now they've seen it like seventy times. Yeah, that's my that's my kids. Hundred percent. They all of them. They just leave it on. But I think that little bit of heart that Greg Daniels, the reality and the heart that Greg Daniels put in every episode, and he always wanted. He said, "Listen, the show's got to be just 90 percent just comedy, but just that ten to fifteen percent of reality and heart that we that we sprinkle in mm-hmm. will go a super long way." I remember that even as a kid watching Mash. Mm. I remember because I was always interested in war and I'd get to watch the show and it was like funny and then every once in a while you'd be like like I'm a kid 
and I'd be like, oh shit, these guys are at war. I remember this one scene, Alan Alda, it was towards the end of the series, Alan Alda's talking about like, this woman, he's like, oh, she she had this chicken, and this chicken was making noise, and they were yeah. on this bus, and blah, 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 and she killed the chicken, and you know, and then you find out that she actually killed her kid to get the kid to be quiet. And I, I mean, I remember watching that as a little kid, so it was this funny show, but then it would have these impactful moments, and yeah. The Office definitely had plenty of those impactful moments for sure. You got this one section in here where you talk about Greg Daniels kind of early on, Pulls you aside and says, like, he told me in a very diplomatic way, he loved my acting during the improvs and he liked my acting much less during the scripted scenes. It's true. It's true. That's not, and I had already gotten the part and I was like, oh, God. And then you go and watch the videos and you're like, oh, I see it. Yeah. So I convinced the one producer who had a management company and I had a manager at the same company and I was like, you need to let me watch the auditions. He's like, I can't. Like, just let me, I just need to see what I did, that what Greg is talking about. Because we hadn't started shooting yet. We would be doing table reads and just rehearsing and stuff like that. So I got to go and watch all of my auditions. Wait, so the guy, you talked the guy into it? Yes. So he he showed, he had just on his little like laptop Mm -hmm. or whatever. And I got to watch my auditions and I was just like zoned in. I was like, and like, there's scenes that were scripted where I had my, you know, my lines, mm-hmm. and then there were scenes where they said, you know, you and John just have an argument about getting coffee. Ready, go. And I would look at the, and I saw it, and I mm-hmm. saw what he was, and I was like, and it was still a little bit of that theater actory kind of thing where I kind of like would do a, a line reading or I'd make a line a certain way or I'd decide kind of how a line should sound or something. And it, and it, it wasn't bad. It just was a little more presentational. I don't know how else to put it. But the improv stuff was just much more real. It's just talking and shooting the shit and, and being weird and in a real natural way. And I was like, and it really, it was like, I'm so glad he brought that up. I'm like, oh, thank God. Good. This is good. So then I just made the scripted stuff just sound more like improv mm-hmm. stuff. And then I'd improvise off the scripted stuff and, uh, and it ended up working working out great. You say this, after we were all cast on the show, me, Steve, John, and Jenna went out for lunch at a nondescript little sandwich place down the street from the studio. We had a conversation that grandiose as it may sound, is etched into all of our minds. We giddily discussed the very real possibility that this show could go on for eight years and that it would change the course of our lives and how these parts we were about to undertake would most likely be our most defining roles. Just think about what we're getting into. The journey we're about to go on could be amazing, I remember saying. I remember Steve, who was just coming off of doing Anchorman and the 40-year-old virgin, saying, "All of the role, of all the roles I'll end up doing in films I may shoot, I believe that Michael Scott may be the role I'll always be most known for. It was one of those moments when destiny, when our destiny was seen with complete clarity, like a country road from a hot air balloon, all while eating a tuna sandwich. But the weird thing is, like you, so you guys saw that, the magic. You guys saw some of that magic. We were like early on, we're like, this could really be something. Re- this could really be something, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, we had no idea that. I mean, it exceeded even that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's become this cultural phenomenon. Oh, I sure. walk into Target and like my face is on a 
mug and a hot plate and a and an apron and yeah. shoes and like we, we have a, we have a freaking lot of uh, office merch at my house. Oh, do you? Yeah. yeah, we got freaking pajamas with your head on it and yeah. shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the weird thing is, it didn't come out like you just mentioned. It didn't come out of the gate that strong. Not as at a all. matter of fact, it wasn't. It was like getting picked up ones and twosies, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. So the second season, the first season was only six episodes, and they kind of backdoored us in, and then. And it really was only because of the success of the 40-year-old virgin. And they were mm. like, hey, you've got a movie star on this show. Like, they're like, yeah, but it's so weird. These were the, the, the Jeff Zucker years. It was not a good time at NBC. They made a lot of colossal errors. And um, and so they were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll order five more episodes. Mm-hmm. And then we did. And then like, well, we can afford two more. And then, well, one more. And then. And then it just started to, and that second season started to uh, take off. And then this thing happened with iTunes. Yeah. Which, holy, I didn't recognize this. So uh, the first iPod, what do they call it, an iPod came out, but it had video on it. Yeah, first video iPod came out in 2005. And they put, what, the first season of The Office or the second season? They put The Office Christmas episode preloaded onto every video iPod. So every rich kid in the country, (laughs) you know, whose parents could afford a $200 or $300 video iPod player, MP3 player, he got it and he had an Office episode on there and they were watching it and they're like, these these kids are like, and that was was the weirdest thing too, is like, here's what we're doing a show about people working in an office. We thought the audience would be people that had worked in offices. And our biggest audiences were high school and college kids, which advertisers love, mm. by the way. So yeah, that that was another thing that kind of 40-year-old, so many things had to happen in the right way for us to have the run that we had. And that was another one of them. And then it goes like this. Then all of a sudden NBC put a giant billboard of us in front of their Burbank offices. Someone on the crew had taken a photo of that billboard while driving past, and I, John, Jenna, and Steve huddled around looking at it, laughing ecstatically. After about a 100 elated high fives, we settled back down to do the scene at hand, giggling secretly. A photo of that billboard was hung on the wall just outside of our set and stayed there for the duration of the show. We knew then we were gonna be on the air for a long, long time. We were off and running. So that's it. Yeah. You see the billboard. Then you made it. <laughs> you know, people don't understand about acting is um, <clears throat> to get on a TV show as an actor in any capacity is really, really hard to do. It's you. Even if you're really talented and trained, you've got to have representation. You've got to get the right things just to get a single role. If you get a, a a recurring role on a TV show, that's even harder. If you get a pilot and that pilot gets picked up to, if you get a pilot, it's so hard to do and it's a miracle that you get a pilot. And that pilot gets picked up to series, that's a triple miracle. And if the series gets picked up and does multiple seasons, that's a quadruple miracle. And then if it has a full run, like nine, 10 year run, then if it wins wins awards, then if it lasts 10, 20 years after you started it, like 
I mean, it's like hitting the jackpot over and over and over again. It's like hitting the roulette wheel. I put 20 black, boom, hit it again, hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. That's what it's like to do the office. So, you know, I'm just, even today, like 10 years after we have finished our last episode, like I'm just in awe of what we were able to do. I'm so grateful for the the role, the experience. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was a miracle. And with, with one of the greatest, like, ensembles ever assembled i mean the amount of talent in that room was just preposterous and so. there's, there's got to be some level i'm guessing of like the beatles right the beatles were only the beatles because of that group of people mm. and like when they all split off and they were doing their own thing yeah they made some stuff and blah blah but no one really cares about john lennon or even paul mccartney or like they don't care about what they did solo mm-hmm. really it's about the Beatles. Yeah. Same thing with, well, with Black Sabbath, right? You had Black Sabbath, then you had Ozzy break off, Tony. Like, I love those guys, but it's about Black Sabbath. There's something mm-hmm. special about that chemistry. Led Zeppelin, same thing, right? Yeah. You got Led Zeppelin. When Led Zeppelin is Led Zeppelin, and once you, once uh, John Bonham dies, it, it's just not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. So there's that miracle as well that you get this group of people yep. and if it had been a different you know michael scott or a different dwight or a different jim or a different pam it might have just been just a little bit of chemistry and then you don't get what you get yeah and maybe we would have done the six episodes and been canceled or canceled halfway through the second season if we didn't have that you know if bob odenkirk had been cast mm-hmm. and brilliant bob odenkirk's one of america's best actor writer directors Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Nothing against him at all. But if they had gone in that direction, you know, uh, who knows, you know. Well, he's also highly present in my house, as you know, Saul. Yeah. Yeah, very highly present in my house. Okay. So I guess we would have been winning possibly either way or maybe losing on both fronts. Well, he found a better he found a better outlet for his acting in the whole, uh, you know, Better Call Saul universe. Uh, Well, that's what you were saying earlier, like, when, when people like you're meant for that role like mm-hmm. he's meant for that role mm-hmm. it's hard to picture someone else pulling it off yeah it's hard to picture someone else pulling off the way it's hard to picture some and I guess now we're kind of all just it is what it is we that's just the way it is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but if you throw someone else in there it's just a miss could have been a miss yeah yeah you got nominated for three Emmy Awards mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how'd that how'd that work out I didn't, it didn't work out very well. <laughs> I lost two, two of them to Jeremy Piven. Who's Jeremy Piven? He was on uh, Entourage. He played oh, uh, okay. Ari on Entourage. Oh. Yeah. What? The, the agent on Entourage. Did, so is that the leading role? No, it was the supporting, best comic supporting role. Okay. Yeah. So you lost to him twice. Yeah. Have you ever sent him hate mail secretly? Um, okay, we can edit this part out. <laughs> no comment. I didn't send him hate mail per se, but he received some mysterious packages in the mail. Check. I want to. I want to break into his house and steal one of those. One of those Emmys. He should just give me one of them. I know. He's dude. got two. After yeah, he did great. And and Ari, that was great. Yeah. And just give me one. Scratch it out. Be, be easy. Yeah. Uh, you got a whole section in here, random office memories. Just go, people, go get the book. Um, freaking <laughs> hilarious stuff. I'm not going to try and do it justice. And by the way, you read the audiobook too. So I obviously suck at reading you, but 
I just did it for this podcast. That's the way I'm doing it. Anyways, get the audio book. If you don't want to get the book book because you're too lazy to read, get the audio book. Then you can hear all these stories um, from Rain himself. <sighs> Chapter 16, Soul Pancakes. After some long consultations and soul searching with some spiritual philosopher friends of mine, co-founders Joshua Homnick and Devin Gundry, we decided to create a destination for the web for people interested in exploring big ideas through the portals of philosophy, creativity, and spirituality. We wanted our endeavor to be a successful business venture and not a nonprofit because we felt there was a large young audience out there that was longing for positive content. And you talk about in the book here about, it's just at this time, what's on the web is just a bunch of freaking negativity. And you guys wanna do something positive and cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hence, Soul Pancake, how does that go down? Yeah, so, you know, I talked about, you know, what a lottery win it is to um, be on a show that's going to be going for a long time. So all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I'm like 39 years old, going into my 40s, and I know that I'm going to have five to ten years of, like, real paychecks, (laughs) solid paychecks. I've never had that before. Remember, this is a guy, first 10 years of my career, never made over 20 grand in a year, in a year. What do they pay you for a pilot? Like when you're doing the first, what'd you do, six, first, no, 13? Yeah, yeah. So pilot fees vary for actors. I mean, there can be a big star they bring in for a pilot and they pay him a million dollars to do a pilot. But, but you weren't a big star. I was not at all. So somewhere between, you know, a per episode rate for actors is somewhere between... 20 grand to 50 grand an episode, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of early on. Then you renegotiate your contract and then you start getting more. You start getting into the hundreds of thousands per episode and stuff like that. So So this was like exponential money for you. Oh my God. Yeah. So (laughs) what that did is, well, and I had already bought a house because I, we bought a a, a crappy little house in Van Nuys, California that was cost $260,000, mm-hmm. a little 1,100 square foot house where my son was born. And then and then we upgraded once the office was, was going. But um, the uh, there's a responsibility that I felt, and maybe this was my upbringing, my faith tradition, I'm not quite sure. It was like, hey, I'm gonna all of a sudden, I'm gonna have this huge platform. Like I'm gonna be this guy who's on this TV show. People know who he is. I've got something to say. I felt a responsibility to try and do something positive in the world. I, I don't know why. I mean, you talk to other people and they're like, oh, I just wanna have a nice life. I'm not saying I'm some saint or something like that. I'm not at all. Um, I'm a colossal screw up. But uh, I was like, what am I gonna do? And that's where Soul Pancake came out of a long series of discussions with some friends about like, what can we best do to make the world a better place? What's the biggest need? And what we went to was like positive, uplifting content for young people that dealt with life's biggest questions. We were doing videos on mental health stuff kind of before anybody was. And uplifting joyful videos, videos that asked probing questions. I had a uh, an interview talk series in my back of my van called Metaphysical Milkshake, you know, and we had Kid President. We had a lot of different shows. It was right at the time when YouTube, it was a lot of crap. It was a lot of like Kardashians and um, auto uh, credit score 
stuff and porn <laughs> and and just the kind of fails remember like fails oh, yeah. were really big yeah. and um it was just kind of the worst of humanity on the web like can we make something beautiful and uplifting and important but not you know it doesn't take itself too seriously so we made this uh it started as a web destination, quickly morphed into uh, making a vid- digital media, media content company, mostly through a YouTube channel. And we had a, a YouTube channel that pretty early on had two or three million subscribers. And, and we made over 3,000 pieces of content um, that uh, was very positive and uplifting, very shareable. And we had a lot of brand partnership deals and we took the company, we sold the company to a place called Participant Media, which is an even bigger media company. And they had it for a couple of years and then it kind of like faded away. But it was we had a long, good 10, 12 year run with that and uh, got over a billion video views and um, made the world a, a slightly better place. Uh, so I'm really proud of that work. Yeah, and you, you were doing charity work in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you say that the thing that you started in Haiti? In Haiti, it's called Lide, Lide, Lide Haiti. Yeah, got mm-hmm. it. Yeah, we still work on that, and that's mm-hmm. you know, it was a really interesting part of the book, um, uh, where they were asking these young Haitian girls, "What's your favorite color?" Yeah, and which is like the common question for every seven-year-old kid in America, like, "Oh, what's your favorite color?" That's just yeah. what you do, and these girls didn't even know what that meant it was like the foreign question there was to them. there were and these were older girls teenage girls and it it was very clear that they had never been asked this question before and if that's the case you know how are they being seen or how are they not being seen because we asked one girl and and she was like a deer in the headlights and she was like blue and and they were like oh, okay blue great oh mm-hmm. great and then what about you what's your favorite color and just like Blue. They all said blue because they just like, what's right? What's the right answer? What's the wrong answer? They had never. So we realized that. Um, and we, we came in after the earthquake, my wife and I, and we were working with Sean Penn and some uh, in his uh, re- refugee camp that he set up. He was doing amazing work. And we started doing these classes for in the arts and literacy for adolescent girls. And we saw how incredible, uh, what an incredible bonding community it created and the girls like we left doing our workshops and they still gathered and kept meeting and we started doing the workshops and they were so shy and self-effacing and insecure and by the end of like our two-week workshops they were like expressive and sharing their poetry they had written and their photographs they had taken and the drama they were doing and we saw like how powerful the arts are for creating community healing trauma, which I'm sure you know from veterans work, and, um, and uh, you know, opening the way to seeing these girls for who they really are. And um, I'll never forget that we were, when we started doing this work with Lide, this girl was like, you know, at first I didn't understand what you guys were doing, because other people come here, they give us shoes, you know, they give us places to live, they give us food. I said, but you... You give us hope. And that's that's really what we're trying to do is educate the whole girl. We're working with over 800 girls in 12 different locations. We have a Haitian staff of 40 and um, uh, very excited and proud to be a, a, a co-founder. But it's really Haitian-led and run. 
and we just support it. And I, I whore myself out as, as Dwight to raise money and send it over to educate these girls. And uh, it's funny because in a couple of weeks we're doing a dinner with, it's called the office dinner party. So it's mm-hmm. me and Steve and Angela are having dinner and you could buy raffle tickets to win or the highest bidder to go to this dinner. And we've, we've already raised a massive amount of money just to have dinner. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, I can see where you'd raise a massive amount of money yeah, to have dinner. Yeah. You'd office. want in on that dinner, oh, 100%, wouldn't you? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I'll definitely be there for that one. Uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. You you close out this book, um, uh, The Bassoon King. You close out this book with a with a section called 10 Things I Know For Sure. One, the deepest happiness comes from service to others. Like 100%. If you think you're being funny, you're not being funny. This is a heads up, isn't it? It's a real important thing because it's not just think you're being funny. If you think you're being cool, you're not being cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This, this applies to a lot of things that we try and do as humans. Well said. Uh, gratitude changes everything. Rome is the greatest city on earth. Yeah. So you put that in there as a thing you know for sure. Yep. Fair enough. Need to spend some more time here Have in you San been? Diego. No. But no, I, I'm. The, I've been to San Diego. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Person. I love San Diego. I don't want to leave my house. Like nothing. I don't want to go to Rome. I don't want to go to anywhere. I don't want to go to Paris. L.A. I don't want to go. I definitely don't want to go to L.A. Oceanside. <laughs> Oceanside, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you make a uh, uh, little shop for Rome. There, the opinions of other people are not something to worry about. That's number five. Mm, yeah, that's a very good thing to learn. The earlier you learn that the better off you're gonna be. Now, is there a dichotomy here where if I'm like, I don't give a shit what anybody says, I'm gonna freaking spike the punch or whatever, whatever yeah. thing you're gonna do. Yeah. Like, There's a certain point where if everyone's telling you you're acting like an asshole, sure, that's something sure. you might wanna pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, that's common sense wisdom. Like, you, we learn, we're social creatures, so we learn like, oh, I keep, when I greet people, I punch them in the balls, but people don't seem to like me very much. Hmm, maybe I should stop <laughs> punching them in the balls. Like we, you know, you learn that way. Yeah. But my sponsor in 12 Steps actually said this, and I, th- I just thought it was the simplest thing, and it's so, it's so profound. Um, he said, like, what other people think of you is none of your business. Mm. What you think about other people is all of your business. So it's always being mindful of, like, how am I – Am I treating people? Am I respecting them? Am I listening to them? Am I taking them in? Am I filled with resentment? Do I have a huge, I know people and they have like this resentment list. Like, oh, he's an asshole. I'll never talk to them. Uh, like this. And that. And that's eating. It's like a big cancerous tumor on their shoulder. You know, it's yeah. hard to live your life with all of that resentment. Like how, how am I feeling about other people? Am I keeping that clean? People are gonna, whatever they're gonna think about me, uh, it's fine. That's that's it's completely out of my control. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna try and be my authentic self, and and bring myself to every occasion with as much authenticity and integrity as possible. And I don't always succeed, but that's what I'm gonna that's what I'm gonna try and do. And that's that's what's in my control. Mm-hmm. Number six, Game of Thrones is our greatest teacher. A few things I've learned from the greatest TV show in the history of everything. A, get a wolf. B, get a dragon. C, women should rule the world. D, politics are a waste of breath and time. Dude, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I haven't watched it yet. 
What are you doing with no, yourself? I know. You hey. say you never leave the house. <laughs> I know. So watch fucking Game of Thrones, bro. What the and hell? My my middle daughter, who you met, she's like, she's like, says it's freaking awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, the last season. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. But I don't know. See, the weird thing is, I mean, there's like kind of a thread here of Dungeons and Dragons and like I couldn't get into that. And now and like Jason Gardner, who I told you about earlier, yeah. who's like full on Dungeon Dragon kid. He loved Game of Thrones. Freaking Game of Thrones all day. Yeah. I mean, but he's. But he, it's about it's not about spells and dragons as much as it's about politics mm-hmm. and the human nature yeah. and like and power. And it's it's all it's a Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. It's literally like a giant chess game. A little bit of magic here and there. Mm-hmm. But it's not like prancing elves and wands yeah. and Harry Potter and stuff like that. So Wait, are you bashing Harry Potter right now? Can I give you an unpopular <laughs> opinion? Yeah. I think Harry Potter sucks. Okay, we can edit this out, dude, because I don't – you – I know I'm going to get, I don't care the opinions of other people. I said unpopular opinion. It's funny. I've gone on podcasts before and I'm like, okay, unpopular opinion. And then I've laid out my unpopular opinion. And then people are in the comments are like, I can't believe he said that. That's so stupid. It's like, yeah, I said, it's an unpopular opinion. Uh I don't like Harry Potter. I don't like the books. I don't like them. And I especially don't like the movies. How come? It's endless. And who cares? And it's poorly (laughs) written. And it's, it's, it it's really really good for twelve year olds and all the adults that have read it like seventeen times. I'm really sorry. You need to grow the fuck up. Damn, because dude. it's all about like. I wonder if she likes me, and I, I'll pick out a new wand. And I wonder if the girl in my spells and potion class likes me. It's like well, that's great when you're twelve. Okay. It's great when you're twelve. And the movies are four hours long, mm-hmm. and they just. They they look like a stupid CW show, and they make me sick. Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and just tell you, please, when you get done watching the comments from this, go to rule five, <laughs> which is the opinions of other people. I'm not something to worry about. <laughs> Any other sacred cows you want to slay at this time? I've got so many. I, got, uh, I, could, I could get me started. Here's one. that I've, That would be a good podcast, by the way. What's that? Unpopular opinions. Just yeah. bring on a guest. Just say you get one unpopular opinion. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, I don't like sushi or whatever it is. And just like, go, why, you know, whatever, whatever it is, mm-hmm. whatever it is. I don't like sushi. Bruh. But Bruh. rule number seven, rule number seven. This is for you, Echo Charles. Yes, sir. Sushi is about the fish, idiots. Yeah. Meaning all the not sauce the sauces. and rice and stuff. Oh. It's not the sauces. It's not the rolls and the crispy onions and the fried dough and dressing it up with all of that crazy shenanigans. It's about the fish, bro. Right? You're with me. I'm with you. He's you a sushi. Some, uh, you want to get some sushi after this? The answer is yes. Right. The You're not invited. Is, I don't want to come anyway. <laughs> you can go read your <laughs> Harry go, Potter. Go watch Harry Potter. Actually, I haven't read Harry Potter. And I, see, anything that's magical and fantastical, fantastical, fantastical? Yeah. Sure. Uh, anything that's that, I, I have a hard time like just getting into it. That's just the way, I don't know. All right. Like, Fair enough. Once I saw the 19 sided dice, I was like, yo, this is too much for me. (laughs) Uh, Number eight, my son is my sensei. Beautiful, man, learning from those kids. Number nine, stories make the world go round. Mm. Very important thing for people to understand. You know, it is. We humans are storytellers, and the earliest evidences of human kind of culture is the cave art, 
right? And you think about shamans in the cave by candlelight and people putting their hands in like powdered dyes and putting their handprint on the on the cave walls and the shamans telling the mythologies, the stories of the hunt, singing the songs and and carrying those stories on generation to generation like humans need to gather like we're doing right here and tell stories. We do that in a movie theater. That's why we really lost something by just having streaming all the time. I went to go see Mission Impossible in the theater last night. Empty empty theater. I had my clown salad. Do you know what a clown salad is? Uh, I do not. Popcorn, peanut M&Ms poured oh, in the popcorn. Damn. I had my clown. Do you, wait, do you order that? Do they know what it is? Or do you mix it together no, yourself? I, I, it's a do it. It's a yeah. DIY thing. Check, check. Yeah. I brought in my clown salad. Who are you I'm, with? With the fam? Solo. Solo, solo operation. My wife's in China right now studying Check. Tai Chi. Okay. And uh, my son's off at college. Okay. And I was like a kid in a candy store. It was so. And no one was in there. No one was in there. No. It Wait, was, which one? The first one? Mission no, Impossible? Mission Impossible. The new one. The newest one. The new okay. one. Okay. I, Dead right. Letter Office yeah, number yeah, seven yeah. or whatever it's called. It's fantastic. I loved it so much. Have you seen it? No. I, again, unpopular opinions. Like movies with a lot of explosions and a lot of that kind of stuff going on. They're not my thing, man. This they're is they're a, Echo's thing. This is my favorite action movie of all time. Really? Damn. Favorite action movie of all time. There was one of the James Bonds that was really, really good. I forget what it was called, one of the Daniel Craig ones. But this was like... But anyways, the the moral of this is it's stories, right? We're huddled in a dark room and there's a... They call it, you know, the flickering myth. You know, the story that's in front of you and the story of heroism and, and courage and explosions mm-hmm. and trains falling off <laughs> cliffs and stuff like that. And... uh I, I just love it, you know. And the yeah. office is stories. Your podcast is stories. Humans gathering, sharing stories. Twelve twelve step meetings are sharing stories. Like there's something healing, powerful. We need to share and listen to stories and create stories. Yeah, I was going to say that as much smack as I talked about this podcast that we do. Mm-hmm. No, which is reading books from the historical stuff. But like, really, that's what it is. It's these long stories of war and. Heroism and loss, and it's and nerdy actors, and then occasionally, and then occasionally you bring in me and <laughs> Theo Vaughn. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had Gary Sinise on here. He's another actor. He's awesome. Who, who, have we had any other actors on here? I don't think so. Is Theo Vaughn an actor? Or is he a comedian? Nice. Terrible actor. Kinda, yeah. Barely a comedian. Yeah. He's just a funny guy who tells stories about snakes and toilet paper. Yeah. At one time, I met a girl. She had three legs. Yeah. We called her Three Leg Susie. Yeah. She's great. She gave a mean blowjob. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, number 10. The last thing of 10 things you know for sure is that I don't know anything. Mm. which is an important number 10, right? It's an important number 10. That's, again, tons of stories in Bassoon King. Um, But it seems like your next book, Soul Boom, it seems like you're trying to figure out what you do know or what you can know or what we're trying to learn. Soul Boom, why we need a spiritual revolution. Is it, you know, is this book trying to learn is it trying to figure things out? What are we doing in Soul Boom? Yeah, so when I wrote Bassoon King, there's kind of a thread that runs through it that a lot of people are turned off by, but I talk about kind of my faith journey and my spiritual journey, kind of it's woven through the funny stories. 
And the great thing about Bassoon King, and I told him when I was writing the book, I'm like, listen, it's going to be 85% funny stories. 15% is going to be faith, God, questions, and finding my spiritual path and whatever. And, you know, some people love that stuff, and some people are like, ugh. But, well, you can just skip those paragraphs. But after I did that, and then COVID hit, and... COVID kind of shut everything down, right? Of course, we all know that, but it shut down the whole acting industry too. I'm like, oh shit, what, what the hell am I going to do? And I had just been jotting down a lot of quotes and ideas and thoughts and stuff like that. I use the notes app on my iPhone and I'm always just putting in notes and if I can find a quote that I like. And I was like, you know, I do know something. I have spent 20 or 30 years thinking very deeply about spirituality and the big, big questions about like God and the meaning of life and the nature of love and what happens when we die and what is the soul. I've read a lot about this stuff. I've thought a lot about it. Now's my chance. This was my kind of my COVID project. And, you know, I, I, I wrote up, I went to my book agent. I wrote up a little outline and part of the first chapter and kind of the thesis of what I wanted to say. And I sent it out. We sent it out to 13 of the top publishers and immediately rejected by the top 12. Just immediately rejected. What about the people that published uh, Bassoon? Oh, they passed passed so fast it would make your head spin. Damn, dude. Yeah. They never really liked the fact that I put my spiritual journey in that they just wanted funny stories. Uh, They they really didn't want that uh in the book, but they begrudgingly allowed me to put some of that in. And uh, so... Finally, and number 13, Hachette, God bless you, Hachette, they came in and they were like, we love it, totally get it. I think it's important, totally see you doing that. We're on board. They've been a great partner. It's pretty rare in this business. Now, granted, part of the reason is because I'm a known name and they know I'm going to sell a certain number of books just because I'm the guy who played Dwight from The Office. But yeah, so this was this is really my passion project. This is my like, I can get hit by a bus and die tomorrow. I'm fine because in Soul Boom, it's like anything I've kind of thought about, felt deeply. Uh, I share a lot about my mental health journey um, and recovery journey. Um, and I truly believe, Jocko, that we do need a spiritual revolution, that we keep trying as a society in contemporary America to put Band-Aids on a cancer. And they're we have to go deeper as a culture, uh, as, a, as a global culture of humans, but as an American culture especially, to get to the spiritual roots of the diseases that are afflicting our society. And we're not doing that. We just talk about Democrats and Republicans, like, oh, I'm going to vote for him, or I'm going to vote for him, or we're going to pass this legislation that addresses this. And, you know, you know, it's like, you know, one of the examples I, I, I started off talking about pandemics, right? The global pandemics. So we're in the COVID pandemic. Everyone knows what that's like. But we're actually under a pandemic. There's a number of pandemics that are going on worldwide that are afflicting humanity. Now, there's a lot of different solutions for those pandemics, right? You've got income inequality as a pandemic. You've got, you know, 12 billionaires that own as much as half of the world's population. That's not fair or right. Now, there's a lot of different solutions. You know, already I can feel people getting a little prickly, like, uh-oh, he's a socialist. No, I'm not. God bless those billionaires. They worked hard. They deserve their money. But we've got to figure out as a way as a species, like, 
it's still there's still people living in garbage dumps you know like how do we how do we rectify this you know under god under the bible under um understanding that we're all beautiful divine sparks and shards of creation and and we're all light and love and heart and how do we take care for the poorest among us as jesus would have us do so these questions like income inequality it's not so much about i mean yes you need to pass some legislation that does certain good things right whatever that is but we have to go we have to go deeper racism is a great example like we've passed a lot of legislation anti-racist legislation over the years right we haven't solved it if anything it's worse now than it was a long time ago so but we have to go what's what's the cause of that where why why are we in this imbalance obviously there's slavery and stuff like that and we look at the past injustices but what do we do now putting putting that aside how do we learn and go deeper and again it's not going to be with a bill or the right politician or this that you can pass all the bills you want if people are going to hate other people and dislike them for the color of their skin and for their culture then we're screwed so anyways i could go on and on but um it's about uh, looking at using spiritual tools for our personal transformation, kung fu, TV show, personal transformation, using spiritual tools for social transformation. Star, Star Trek. Trek. Boom. Jinx. You owe me a Coke. <laughs> so, I mean, I could go on and on, but it's a, it's a passion project. It's something that I feel is really, really important and um, – um, and people have been digging it, so I feel good. Well, one part of the book that I think kind of captures a bunch of this stuff is you have uh, you spend some time with uh, with the idea that we create a religion. Like you're like, all right, blank slate. I'm just going to create a religion, the religion of soul boom trademark. Um, and you kind of go through, and, and again, this is this all builds throughout the book, and it starts off with sort of. I guess you might say the traditional things that religions generally contain and you go through these sort of initial things that yeah, this ten, 10 universal truths about religion that all religions share in common um, and and you you apply these to this new religion which you know is fictional that you created we created we put together so number one a higher power number two life after death number three the power of prayer. And again, this is coming from the fact that you research, you read all these different books, you've gone down all these, you've had this spiritual journey of your own. That's where you're you're putting these things together. Transcendence. Talk to me about transcendence. How does transcendence play into this? Yeah, so these concepts are it's really easy to look at the differences in religions, right? It's real easy to kind of say, well, Hinduism has a hundred different or a thousand different gods and it believes X, Y, and Z. I'm a Christian, and I believe in God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit and redemption, salvation, and resurrection, and et cetera. That's totally different, right? And that's true. Those are, and, and it's easy to look at those differences. But we need to stop sometimes, pause, and go to the underlying foundational uh, similarities that connect and bind all the world's religious faiths so that we can work together in even greater harmony. So this section right here, I'm talking about um, the things that all religious faiths have in common, um, which is harder to uh, underline at certain points. So transcendence is this idea that we are more than just our material selves. 
um, we have in all of us, in our hearts, in our souls, in our guts, a longing to belong, to find meaning, to rise above just shitting and fucking and eating and working and trying to have a good life, right? We, we have some longing for something more. And this idea of transcendence, which you, we can know through God, we can know transcendence through prayer, we can know transcendence through, through meditation, we can also know through art, you know, and great art, whether it's Hamlet at a theater or it's going to a Metallica concert or whether it's looking at a beautiful painting or he- hearing a beautiful poem or a dance, uh, whatever it is, like the art at its best is transcendence. And, you, and we all know when we feel it, that, that feeling of upliftment and, and inspiration. So this key element that we are more than just our material bodies, we have souls and hearts that long for some kind of meaning, bonding beyond just being flesh um, is part of every faith tradition. Number five, community. Mm-hmm. Um, at Soul Boom, our diverse community will embrace inclusion at every level. More on that in a little bit. A moral compass. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. People argue, people argue about this. Unpopular what's right, opinion. What's wrong? Unpopular opinion, but I do believe that our faith traditions and that God or a higher power brings us our um, bring, brings us our morals and our sense of right and wrong, and that there's that's different than ethics. So ethics is, you know, hey, it's not cool to take the drink that you want to take off the counter at Starbucks just because it's been sitting there, but I'm not going to do it because I mean it is like stealing or whatever. But morals come from a higher place, right? Like you know, it's the Ten Commandments come down from the mountain, and those those don't really change. A lot of things about religious faiths change. From, from religion to religion to religion, you know, eat this, don't eat this, celebrate this on this day, you know, give to the church in this way financially, et cetera. But this underlying moral compass about we are answerable for our deeds when we pass. Um, we, you know, the, the golden rule is a perfect example of this, you know, uh, do not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like that's in every religious faith in the world that increases compassion so um, we, as a society, we've jettisoned religion to a large degree, there, you know, especially in the, in the secular cities and whatnot. And that's understandable because religion has done a lot of bad shit. Um, but we've also lost a lot, and we see that in the decades that have followed since this has been happening since the 60s or 70s, uh, a lot of falling off of kind of basic human decency, um, common sense morality, leading with love and kindness and, and mutual support. So I, I think there is a um, there is a religious backbone and inspiration for uh, a living and walking a moral path. Mm-hmm. Be hard. Don't you think it'd be hard to get people to agree on what that thing looks like? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you can do the same thing around morality and you can break it down into like 10 basic kind of morals, you know, just even go with the golden rule, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't, again, it doesn't have to do with politics. It doesn't have to do with, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, 
it's leading with kindness, love, generosity, and compassion, and letting that letting that guide us. Well, that's the next one. Number seven, the force of love. Mm-hmm. That's in every religious faith. Yep. Um, you give a warning here that this is going to get all corny. Yeah. And uh, we we I try not to use the L word on the podcast. Sure. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, Increased compassion, certainly something that everyone could use. Service to the poor, mm-hmm. number nine. Mm-hmm. And number 10, strong sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Both the Kung Fu-esque individual answers we seek and the Star Trek-like big picture stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. we Culturally, we've kind of lost our sense of purpose. We've lost our, our goals and... Uh, I, again, I try and be as universal as possible. I would love for a Hindu to read this, a Muslim to read this, an atheist or agnostic to read it, a born again Christian to read it and go, I relate. I, I get that. And I want it to be inclusive of, of all of those different voices. But um, one thing that, again, we've jettisoned religion, again, for a very good reason, because a lot of them have been very corrupt and done really terrible, corrupt things. But in the doing, have we lost a higher sense mm. that there is God the Father and I am in service to his will, the capital H, and I want to make the world a better place and conform my own behavior and standards to a certain measures, to certain standards of morality and serve the poor and make the world better and bring light to the world just as Jesus did, brought light to the world in so many different ways, and 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 the apostles. I don't want to follow in those footsteps. And we can do that individually. We can do it as a family. We can do it as a community. And we can do it as a nation. And that doesn't mean converting everyone to a certain religion, but but honoring these kind of basic foundation, foundational aspects of faith. And we didn't go, uh, like you said, you talked about 15% of the bassoon king talks about the spiritual side and you give a pretty good which i didn't really cover but the baha'i faith this is very baha'i faith ish in the fact that seems like baha'i the the premise is very open-minded with like yep all religions have good aspects to them and that's all the kind of the there's a lot of similarities would you say that's an assessment that's accurate yeah this is a lot of it is very baha'i inspired i try and not make it a a baha'i book or it's not about the Baha'i faith or to convert people to Baha'i. You know, it's mentioned a few times in the book, but this idea that there are universals in in religious faith and that these universals are beautiful and true, we should honor those. And, um, you know, there's only one God and we're all ultimately in service to this one God. And let's work together arm in arm, side by side with our sleeves rolled up Hindu, Muslim, Jew, Christian, Baha'i, and make the world a better place. Um, that's that's really that's really a key part of the book, and a lot of that inspiration does come from the Baha'i faith, which I'm still a practicing member of. I came back around about 20 years ago or so, and um, kind of have dove in, and uh, I really it's a beautiful faith. I really love it. 
Uh, you go on to say this. There you have it. The soul boom takes on religion's fundamental verities. These elements alone are beefy enough for any upstart belief system, but for our ultimate goal of making soul boom as relevant to the present moment as possible, I offer up an additional 10 principles. The goal of these next 10 qualities is to show how this new faith community will embrace the ideals needed to remake and progress our modern world. Again, this is a like a thought experiment that you're basically doing. Yeah. Just to yeah. let people know you're not, not a real like religion, literally trying no. to convince me to be a member of the soul boom. But again, it's important thing. to understand that there's a lot of young people that have just rejected religion. And they're like, oh, religion is bullshit. Oh, can't take it. And it's like, okay, but what have we lost? And if, if it allows you to think about religion in a different way, well, what if we just took the best elements mm-hmm. of different religions and put them together in a stew? You know, would that work for you? So it's just, it's kind of, Reinvestigating, reimagining, rebooting the concept of what a religion itself is. Yeah. And I love this opener, no clerics. Like, what would you think about a religion with no clergy? So, this is, there's not going to be some people that are in charge of the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, the Baha'i faith has that. The 12 step meetings have that. The, the 12 step, the 12 steps and AA is the most successful spiritual religious movement of the 20th century of the last 150 years by far. And how um, many people are on AA or 12 step? Do you know? I don't is there know. a number? I'm sure there is. Can you get on that echo? Yes, sir. Echo yeah. doesn't do that stuff. He doesn't. Did, the other pods have someone Googling in yes. the corner like, yeah, bring it up right here. <laughs> other podcasts have people that sit there for a long period and they go, you know what? I could probably serve a purpose here. So they say, you know what? I'm going to get a computer. I'm going to start Googling some stuff if anybody asks me. But you know what? Echo, he's over there. You know, he's made a couple notes and whatnot. And he pressed record a few hours ago. He did. He checked the mics. We're getting no information from Echo. He's security. If someone came in that door, he'd be all on them. He's a black belt. Yep, protecting protecting you, homie. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder how many people are into 12-step. Yeah, I, it, I mean, there's got to be in every city thousands. thousands. Yeah, yeah, no question. Yeah, it's mid, tens of millions. How, when did you get into that? Um, I kind of got into it backwards when I started doing therapy and I was really unhappy. And then um, I realized that I had been using drugs and alcohol for a super long and porn and you name it to kind of like soothe, escape, medicate my pain. And then my therapist was like, you might want to check out the 12 steps because there's a room full of people that have gone through the same thing. So I was already, it was kind of weird. I kind of, they call it white knuckling it where you, you get sober without, without the support of 12 steps. But I, I was sober at that point And then I, but then I started going to meetings. So do you, really you don't do any drugs or alcohol right now? I don't know. How long have you been clean for? It's been a long time. It's about 20, 20 years. Nice. 20 years, yeah. Nice. Uh, and that 12-step, you said you got into it backwards because yeah. you... I had already been sober for, I think it was a year and a half before I entered 12-step. Was and there then, a rock bottom to that? Oh, you, you want to go there, don't you? <laughs> I mean, let's do this. You already talked about freaking <laughs> Harry Potter, you know? <laughs> Oh, because I insulted Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah. Now no. we're bringing the now uh, we're bringing the thunder. Yeah. So my story is a little different, and I would love to indulge you and say, "There I was, Jocko, covered in my own vomit, lying in the gutter, and my life wife had left me. Mm-hmm. My left eye was gouged out by a hobo with a spear. But I don't have that. 
I don't have that story um, so much as just a lot of time of of just being. For me, it's mostly about anxiety. So I have an anxiety disorder. For a while, I was on medication. Now I don't go on medication for it. But I was trying to medicate in all these different ways. So it just was years and years of unhappiness, of unbalance. There was you know, difficulties in my marriage, difficulties in my life from from this stuff that I was using. And you know, I went into therapy and um, was just deeply unhappy and um, felt really lost and and then realized that this is what was wrong with me. So I, I'd love to bring you that mm-hmm. hitting bottom, kind of that beautiful podcast hitting bottom story. But it's not really about that so much as um, like I was imbalanced. I was unhappy. I was trying anything and everything I could to medic. Even, even career ambition can be a medication mm-hmm. for anxiety and, and, and hating yourself, right? So part of it for me was like, trying to get that next level as an actor was like, that'll make me feel better. And that's a culturally sanctioned one. You know, we live in kind of a workaholic world, right? Where it's like, you're nothing without your career success. And and that's not true. You are something, you are beautiful, you're special, you're a child of God, you're a spark of the divine. And your mission is to bring out your greatest possible Jocko, you know, your greatest possible echo, your greatest possible Rain Wilson as under the eyes of, of the all watching, all powerful God and and which is love. And so it was it's been a long process in therapy and in 12 step and in service. And um, but, you know, I used to be crippled by this stuff. And now I wake up grateful and um, and content and and focused on doing the next right thing and this process of you know this threefold process of therapy 12 step and then my spirituality my as a bahai and and studying and writing spirituality the meditation and prayer that i do that this combination has really made my life so much better and uh, i'm just i'm so grateful so anxiety yeah what what is that like what does that feel like what is it what do you when you're like i have anxiety what does that feel like what are you thinking about what's going through your mind i actually actually really love this question and it's a really important question because people don't people don't ask that question so we're not able to kind of start at the very beginning so for anyone interested in this work, and you should have him on the podcast before he dies, Dr. Gabor Mate, and I know he's been on lots of other podcasts. He is the authority on addiction and trauma. And the way he speaks about it is like, he is, uh, he's incredible. I mean, I, I, he's, I, he's the Albert Einstein of addiction and trauma. And um, he's been a lot of, on a lot of other pods and he's so, so brilliant. So. There's a couple of different ways that anxiety works. So number one, there's normal anxiety. Like, oh, I'm doing this podcast here in San Diego. I wonder what the traffic's going to be like to LA. Like, oh, I'm supposed to be on that call at six. Am I going to make it? Like, that's anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? But that's normal anxiety. And that's going to come every day. That's going to come 20 times a day to you, right? Young people don't quite understand that. It's okay, to have that kind of anxiety, to worry about the future and, oh, is this going to be okay or is that person mad at me or whatever it is. So that's one part of anxiety. 
for me, picture this toddler, and we had a lot of laughs at the size of my head and whatnot, but there's nothing more traumatic or sad than a toddler being abandoned at a year and a half and not having a mother. Have you ever seen a year and a half year old, when your kids were a year and a half, what was their relationship to their mom? Yeah, 100%. Just all about yeah. the mom, mom. I was like a like a foreign being. Yeah. I mean, maybe a year and a half they were starting to be okay with me, but that for, yeah, they, they, it's just all about the mom. Yeah. So for me to have that taken away, there's a, something working on my nervous system that is like, where's my mom or where's my place, where's my meaning, where's my, how am I gonna be held, am I gonna be safe? Like, and that's primal, right? That's in the hippocampus, that's in the base of the brain. You know, that's the animal flight, fight, response stuff. It's physiological. So that showed up in a lot of different ways throughout my life. And it, it showed up in anxiety attacks in my 20s where I would literally, so funny, I was talking to this young woman and she was saying like, oh, I had an anxiety attack because I was so afraid that my tax bill was coming in the mail. And I saw it and I had an anxiety. It's like, you didn't have an anxiety attack. An anxiety attack is you think you're going to die. Your heart is pounding. Your lungs can't get in enough air. You're sweating and you're on the floor and your muscles are tensing without you telling them to do it. That's an anxiety attack. And I used, it, they're still very common. I used to get them by the dozens in my 20s. And guess what? A little, a little vodka made me feel better. You know, a little hit, a little toke made me feel better and kind of took that edge off. So I thought, but it was a short term solution. So there's that kind of anxiety that has to do with um, trauma. And a lot of people have that link to anxiety and trauma. And maybe they were abused as children or, or beaten or had a, a, a difficult time, whatever, bullied even. Um, so those are two different kinds of trauma. I mean, anxiety, excuse me. And then um, the thing that uh, I had a therapist say to me once, which I really loved, which was trauma is merely an unidentified need. So I'm, I keep saying trauma. Anxiety is merely an unidentified need. And I love that. So if you're feeling that like unsettled, shaky, fearful, feeling inside, the next thing is like, you don't have to be a victim to your anxiety. So how do you proactively tackle anxiety? Here I am, I'm having this. It doesn't have to be a full on anxiety attack, but I'm feeling it. How do I, what do I need? Do I need a hug? Do I need a nap? Do I need to work out? Do I need to get into nature? Do I need to put my phone down and the screens down and away from me? Do I know, need to go to the beach and watch the sunset? Do I need to call a friend? Do I need to get some therapy? Do I need to, you know, stop drinking caffeine all day long? Do I, you know, whatever it is, there's so many different ways to, do I need to meditate? There's so many different ways to, to tackle that. But it's, it's, and I love this idea that anxiety is, um, what is the canary in the coal mine? It's, it's, it's there to help you. It's saying uh -huh. you need something. So it's a good thing. If you feel anxiety, oh, it's a good thing. It's telling me I need something. But what, what you don't need is, you know, a shot of whiskey and, a, and, a, and an edible to soothe it. Because then you're not really getting at the, the real need that's underneath that. Mm -hmm.
So when you go into therapy, they're starting to talk about like what is the need that you have because you can't identify it yourself. Yeah, they, I needed a lot of help. I needed years of help to kind of identify those those needs. I was really not good at it. Can you think your way out of anxiety? So if I'm me and I'm 20 years old and I graduated from high school, didn't go to college, I got a girlfriend, I'm starting to think like how am I gonna pay for her and I don't really have a good job lined up and all of a sudden I don't know where I'm gonna be doing in five years and she's starting to look at other guys because like, so this is to me like what I think would cause anxiety to a 20 year old me, right? Like I don't know what the future holds, everything seems, I don't know what I'm gonna be doing. And if I just think about day to day, like, hey, I'm going to the ball game tonight, I'm going to whatever, then I can kind of, it's okay. But as soon as I start thinking about the future and like, what's going to be, where am I going to be? How am I going to get money? How am I going to pay for this? And is that like an example of where anxiety comes from? Well, that's that's one of the aspects of anxiety. That's kind of the first kind, which is, and it's very real. Like, how am I going to pay this rent? Mm -hmm. You know, and am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my girlfriend? Fear of the future can be an anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? So in the 12 steps, we learn the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. There's certain things you can't, there are certain things you can control. Show up to your job and do a better job. Go to your girlfriend, tell her you love her, and be good to her. That's in your control, but whether she leaves you or whether you get fired, that's out of your control, mm-hmm. right? So there, that, and it's called the serenity prayer because you gain serenity mm-hmm by using that particular tool. So anxiety can be, and it usually is a little deeper than that. It's kind of like something is wrong inside. I'm in imbal- something is out of balance and I'm af- and I am deeply afraid for myself. And oftentimes you can't really put your finger on what it is. And that's why you see so many kids in their teens and 20s right now living in anxiety. And it's an anxiety-filled world. Right. So we've got climate change. Climate anxiety is a very real thing that, you know, young people are feeling. There's political discord and and rage. Um, Social media is really divisive. And, um, you know, we live in this technological world. A lot of kids are being raised by all their different screens. They got their phone and their iPad and their laptop and their TV. And that's how they're being raised. So, you know, this we've seen anxiety go through the roof. But um, yeah, I guess, so we've talked about a lot about not a lot, but we talk about depression sometimes on this, and we talk about that people get stuck in uh, the way I've described it is like people get stuck in like a cloud, like a storm cloud, right? And like let's say you are all depressed and you're sad and you're bummed, and I'm looking at you from the outside, and I can see that the storm cloud is just around your head. You just need to like come to hey, mm. you know, rain, come here, walk three steps forward, and you're gonna be out of this thing. But you look in 360 degrees, you don't see a way out, right? It's all around you. And it's the same thing with addiction. Like you can see people that, hey man, drinking is ruining your life right now and you need to stop, but they don't see that. Or this girl that you've been going out with that's a psycho or this guy that you've been going out with that's a psycho is ruining your life. We can see it from the outside so clearly and yet they can't see it. Um, So when it comes to anxiety, if I'm like, hey, listen rain like the things you're worried about you don't need to worry about these things but it's like impossible for me to tell you that i can't explain to you that you're addicted i can't explain to you that this girl's horrible for you i can't explain to you that you don't need to worry about this thing in the future i can't explain to you that you don't need to worry about like hey you know who cares about the reviews that you get it doesn't matter you're like doing great it's gonna be great you're like no 
Like I can tell you that, but it's like something that you have to discover for yourself. Is that what happens? And if that's what happens, do you have a pathway to talk yourself through these situations? Or is it what we talked about? Is it the 12 step? Is it the faith? You know, is that what we're doing? I love it. Again, such a great question. And you had asked before about, can you think your way out of it? Yes and no. So you had Ryan Holiday on here, mm-hmm. right? Love Ryan and the stuff, the work he's doing, the stoicism stuff. I've learned so much from him. He would have some really key things to say from the Stoics that I don't mm-hmm. really yeah, know. He'd be quoting like every one of them 14 times yeah, in the next yeah, five yeah, minutes. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure, because <laughs> I'm sure that the Stoics dealt with this exact same thing. And probably let's let's all go to his YouTube channel and check out, you know, what he, what he would say. So... And there, and so much of stoicism is like just about having wisdom and thinking clearly. So, so in some in some regards, some thinking can help. There's a type of therapy, therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. And for people who are skeptical of therapy and think it's too ooey gooey, that is a very cog, uh, CBT cognitive behavioral therapy is very meat and potatoes. Kind of like, oh, you're afraid of flying? Okay, let's look at the data around flying. Let's pretend you're on an airplane. Let's let's talk about that. Why don't you journal about like, it's really about getting the stuff that's what they call limbic, which is at the base of the brain where you're in that animal fight flight response and getting it up whoosh, into your conscious cerebral cortex, mm-hmm. of which I have a gigantic one. Yes, and um, um, <laughs> I was thinking about renting out space here. <laughs> Like a little billboard, a little neon we'll billboard. We'll put Jocko like, Fuel on there. I could you some money for that. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Done that, deal. Oh, my God. That'd be a great science fiction thing, isn't it? You rent out space on your forehead for advertising? Oh, my God. This is great. Yeah. We're doing there this. There you go. Okay. It's on. Um, so that's very much about thinking. But to, the, the problem with thinking is that, and this starts to get a, a little bit crazy, do you ever meditate? No. Okay. So in meditation, there is this element where you're, you're, the Buddhists call it the monkey mind, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, it's like a popcorn machine up in your brain, right? You're talking about someone in the fog and they're not able to see it. So you meditate and then your thoughts are still bouncing around. And you kind of let your thoughts go. And then you hit a certain point and it's really not that difficult to do where you're kind of up above yourself, not not floating above hippy-dippy stuff, but you're just literally seeing yourself in your thoughts, and you're a little detached from your thoughts. And maybe you have some thoughts, but you have this other part of yourself that's kind of like witnessing the thoughts, and that's the witness part of ourselves. And that's our higher self. That's our, that's our true self. So then you can kind of look down on your thoughts and like, oh, I wonder if I could call them back. Oh, I didn't return that text. Oh, shoot, I was supposed to pick up a mango for dinner. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And you realize, oh, that's not me. That's, that's my thinking brain, which is really important. We need that. But that's not who I am. So meditation gets you closer in touch with your real self, your present self, your ancient self that wi- is the witness. So... I would say that thinking can be very limited, as we know, because it's very hard to think yourself out of a situation. But even, even like what you talked about, like you have to find it for yourself. Yes, you do have to find it for yourself. But we can do that in community. And we can do that in relation with each other. Mm-hmm. So therapy is simply a process of like you're paying someone. You ultimately gain their trust and they trust you. So you're not... 
no bullshit. No one else is listening. You can lay everything out on the table and be like, I hate this motherfucker. And I blah, blah, blah. And one time I did this. And when I was a kid, I stole that. And you could just lay it all out, get the shame out of the way. And the therapist is just so present for you. And then the pres- the therapist is very keen at seeing all those behaviors, you know, the girlfriend, the drinking, whatever it is. And it isn't going to tell you what to do, but is going to tip little breadcrumbs, lead you down the path so that you make that decision yourself. Mm-hmm. In the 12-step program, it's a similar thing in that you share at meetings. So you turn your anxieties, your fears, your issues into stories, and you share them. And then you pick up the phone. A lot of the 12-step meetings is just staying in touch with guys from the program and then laying it out. I, I do it all the time, every day. I vent about something. I'm like pissed at this or I'm afraid of this. And, and, and you share. And there's healing in that. And sometimes you get feedback or you solicit feedback if you trust someone enough, what do you think? You know, And so that's part of that healing of anxiety too. So there's a lot of tools out there and um, there's a lot of people who know this stuff way better than me, but it's, it's the disease of the modern age. Okay, so I'm glad I really like dove into this because, okay, so I, I wrote a book called Leadership Strategy and Tactics. In this book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, I talk about this idea of detachment, which I call a superpower. Mm-hmm. And I, I explain where I discovered it for the first time. I was doing some training and I was uh, assaulting a tar- uh, training target. And in order to figure out what was happening, I had to like take a step back, literally take a step back off the firing line and look around. And I was able to see what was happening and I was able to make a tactical decision when no one else really did, even though I was really young and really junior. And when we got done with this training evolution, I was like, wait a second, how did I know what to do when no one else did? It's because I took a step back, I detached, I looked around, and I could see. And then I started doing that when I was having conversations with people, when I was starting to feel like I'm getting mad about something, I could just learn to detach. And so, and that's why I'm curious about this stuff because when, like we're talking about anxiety, I literally don't know what it is. And the reason I don't know what it is is because I'm taking a step back mentally looking at it going, oh, you're freaking out, that's your ego talking, that's your emotions talking, you're worried about something that you can't control. And I've always kind of wondered why I don't know what it is and why I'm able to deal with things because I am able to deal with things. You know, I've been through some pretty relatively hard things and I'm like okay with it. And now I'm, from hearing what you're describing, I'm like, oh yeah, I have seen those things in my brain, but it's from a detached perspective. So I see myself, oh, you're getting caught up in the fact that you have lost some friends and you can't bring them back and you should be mad about that. Oh, that's that's your emotions. And you're getting too emotional and you're letting that, or, oh, this person did me wrong and I'm gonna make them, oh no, that's just your ego talking. They actually won and beat you fair and square and that's why you should just congratulate them for doing well. So. When I was when I was asking you, can you think your way out of it? That was the wrong way of of describing what I was thinking, because to you, thinking is like getting wrapped up in the emotions and the ego and all that chaos. To me, thinking is like, hold on a second, take a step back. What I should have said, can you detach and look at it and see it from the outside? Because that's truly what we want to do. You know, when I'm looking at you and I see that you're caught in a storm cloud, what I want to be able to do is like, hey, bro, just just come over here. Everything's gonna be okay. You just come a little bit forward, but you, like you said, 
I have to get you to see that for yourself. I have to get you to see that this woman that you're involved with is, is a train wreck or this drug that you're using is a disaster or this job that you got is you need to get away from it or whatever the case may be. I've got to get you to be able to see that. I can explain it to you all day. You won't listen. You can't. It doesn't change your point of view for me to explain it to you 20 times. At some point, I can try and explain it. At some point, you've got to step out and you've got to take a look at it and go, holy shit, Jocko, I see what you're talking about. This is bad. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to get rid of that girl. I'm going to quit this job. Whatever that thing is, I'm going to lose my ego. I'm going to stop thinking, comparing myself. I'm going to stop reading the, the reviews in the New York Times about my acting or whatever. And that, the shit doesn't matter. The shit doesn't matter. Okay, I get it. I'm going to put my ego aside. So to me, that's a very powerful thing. And again, it takes work. I, got, I stumbled into it as a young frogman. I stumbled into the fact that, oh, taking a step step back and looking around is very beneficial, and I added it to everything in my life. I haven't, I was actually, one of my questions I was going to ask you is like, what do you do in therapy? Like, what do they do? And you've kind of explained it now, so I don't have to cross that. I've written it down. Look at this. Three times I've written down. Therapy, question mark, therapy, question mark, therapy. I don't know what the (laughs) hell happens in there, but I'm like, how how does it help you? Now you've explained, like, oh, they're asking you questions. They're, they're, They're luring you out of your brain. They're luring you out of your brain so that you can see what it looks like and go, oh, shit. Let me, let me amend that a little Please bit. Do. Because if you're just talking from a physiological perspective, like Huberman might, you know, you're, you're not luring it out of the brain. You're luring it from one part of the brain to the other part of the brain. So, so much of anxiety, fear, aggression, depression is happening at our lizard part of our brain, and it's just firing down there. And then, and and again, therapy may not be your bag. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, you might do it in church or or through a, a group or just with friends or whatever, but you're physiologically taking all of that activity in the brain stem and you're moving it up into the cerebral cortex. So by talking about it, you're then able, because this is where all the higher functioning stuff happens. So you take it out of the lizard brain and you move it into the into the angel brain. Mm-hmm. Trademark, Rain Wilson, mm-hmm. 2023. Well, Boom. you said it on my podcast, so it's actually So how my, much IP do you own of my angel brain? intellectual property. Thank you. God, Thank you. I never should have come on here. <laughs> Uh, but you, but but that, that's part of the process. Yeah. So part of the talking and therapy, it's like, and it gets a bad rap. But part of it is to take you know your fear, your shame, your anxiety, your depression, um, the those deepest darkest things that are like going on way down there in the shadows in the corner of the closet. Bring him to the front of the closet, shining a nice light on it, and then you're able to make some decision. Okay, once that's happened, now. What are you going to do so you're not a victim? Yep. What choices are you going to make? Because it can't, some therapy is bad because it just stays there in the talky talk. And it's like, talk for a while, get it into the light. And like, what what are the three things you're mm-hmm. going to do every day to make this better? And a good therapist will lead their client toward be, making proactive decisions where they're no longer a victim. Yeah, that, that was another thing that I found when people would ask me about like grief. And one thing is like, I unfortunately have had to write a lot of eulogies, right? And I realized that in doing that, oh, that was a way for me to process. That was a way for me to think through. That was a way for me to bring some of those uh, emotions to the surface and be like, okay, I can see them now. I can let them out. 
here we go. And that's why, you know, what you're saying about therapy is something that I've done through writing. Yeah. And even if it's just writing a, a eulogy, which is a horrible freaking task, you know, it's been 17 hours. Hey, they want you to talk like, or, you know, hey, are you going to speak? Yeah, yes, I am. It's like, okay, it's been 17 hours and now I have to write and I got to get these things out on paper. And that stuff is so helpful to be able to do that. Um, which well, is part of journaling is a very valuable tool yeah. that does that exact same thing. And that's what you're talking about. And then in 12 steps, you do step work. So you're doing that same thing. But again, that's always a process of taking it down from the limbic system to the higher part of the brain. There's more to it than that, but that's yeah. one of the elements of it. Okay. Uh, going back to the soul boom religion here. Number 12, diversity plus harmony. Number 13, centrality of the divine feminine. Talk to me on that one. So in some of my reading and research, I noticed that um, the humanity put uh, kind of the feminine divine at uh, the center of conversation, of worship, um, early on in humanity's history. And then around... 3000 5000 BC it became all about the conquerors and the god of you know the god of Ur or the god of Babylon or the god of Baghdad or the god of Judea or whatever that that conquered then you oh you guys have to worship this god and it's usually a battle god and a war god and you know the Greek war gods and stuff like that so um but before all that it was much more of goddess and uh feminine qualities um, nature. It had to do with birth. It had to do with the seasons. And um, a connection to the divine was found through kind of feminine, more feminine qualities. And I do think that we, you know, I'm sitting at a table covered in knives, mm-hmm. but I do think that we've <laughs> kind of, um, we've over masculinized our, our contemporary world. And I don't mean that to be at all like some kind of criticism of masculinity, masculinity and leadership, honor, integrity, being a provider. Knives. It's an occasional knife, an occasional <laughs> gun when necessary. I don't know about having 45 guns in a closet, but um, but this stuff is really important, right? But we've just got, we've just skewed in the balance a little bit. And so it would be good to kind of re-examine some of that, some of those feminine elements especially of, of the divine and worship and connection to like mother earth and just like the beauty of nature and the birth cycle and springtime and what happens with flowers and with, with baby rat. We have all these rabbits in my property and all these baby bunnies hopping around, in the, you know, and it's like the Easter bunny and literally is the spring and it's these little East there Easter bunnies everywhere, you know, but a reconnection to that, mm-hmm. I think is something we could benefit from a conversation about. Um, number 14, cooperation between science and faith. Number 15, profound connection to the natural world. Mm-hmm. I surf. Usually when people ask me if I meditate, I say I surf and I do jujitsu. Because from what I understand, that's a lot. Can of, you do both at the same time? No. <laughs> well, uh, no, I can't. You need to detach a little bit more. I detach harder. <laughs> 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 profound connection to the natural world. No, but you're, you're absolutely right that. You know, we think of this as meditation, but 
walking in the woods is meditation. Mm -hmm. Walking on the beach is meditation. And certainly surfing is meditation, the act, but also all that time you're out there like on your belly, just like, you know, like it's, it's so soothing and healing. Also, it's important to understand that walking is a, is a meditation in and of itself. They've done studies about what we stopped walking mm. 70 years ago. <laughs> Humans used to walk for 100,000 years. All we did was walk around all the time. And there's something healing about walking and it literally heals the brain. Like your left hemisphere and right hemisphere, the impulses go back and forth while you're walking and it's, it's brain healing. And they've done studies about how walking reduces anxiety, how it de- reduces depression. Because then you've got kids all day sitting like this and they're not using their legs. So that's a different kind of meditation as well. There's a lot of physiological ways to do it. And I play tennis and I find very meditative because in tennis, you've got to just look at the ball. Mm-hmm. That's it. You can't be thinking about your email you need to write. You're just like, you just have to see the ball. I imagine in jujitsu, it's all yeah. about being completely in the moment. Like what's your opponent yeah. throwing at you and what's your in and stuff like that. So all of a sudden you're out of an hour and a half session. You're like, what, what an hour and a half just went by? Seriously? Like, holy shit. You know, and I feel that way coming out of a, out of a tennis game. I never heard that thing about walking before, but it definitely makes sense because it's one of those things where it's like, uh, it's like when you were a kid, like go for a walk, like to calm down. Right. Yeah. But you need to go for a walk around the house. And then you think about when everyone got locked down during COVID. Yeah. Oh my God. I never thought of that before. They're like, yo, you can't even walk anymore. You just sit here in your room. <laughs> Wiping down your groceries. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Not crazy. Uh, Number 16, centrality of justice. What is that all about? Uh, I think that uh, there's, we think about justice in terms of like the court system, right? Or Congress or the Supreme Court or something like that. But there is, um, there is right and wrong. It's connected to morality. Mm-hmm. There's like right and wrong and justice. What's, what, what is right and what is wrong is inherent in uh, belief systems. And for me, it would be really important to, if you're creating this made-up fake religion, to have justice be a part of it or conversations about what is, again, it's just what is just, what is fair, what is right and wrong. And then how can we use spiritual tools to help you know, move that forward, not necessarily the court system, but how can we rectify injustice by using greater spiritual powers? Mm-hmm. Number 17, a life of service. Number 18, practical spiritual tools. What's your top spiritual tool? Well, you know, I talked about meditation that's one of the tools about like detaching from your thoughts. That's a, that's a spiritual tool that literally I can sit down in five minutes and my life is a shambles. I'm like, and I can just kind of go like this and I can breathe and just detach with love from my own thought process and I can gain greater clarity. Right. And really anyone can just taking some deep breaths that just taking some deep breaths is a form of meditation. Who taught you how to meditate? I just taught myself. Cool. No big. It doesn't have to be fancy. You don't need a fancy teacher or an app or anything like that. Although there's lots of great tools out there. And there's, a lot of them are free on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Russell Brand has a great, uh, he does some meditation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, talks on podcast. And um, 
I will. Here's one from the Baha'i Faith. Uh, the son of the founder of the Baha'i Faith, whose name was Abdul Baha. He said, if a man has 10 good qualities and one bad quality, focus on the 10 and forget the one. If a man has one good quality and 10 bad qualities, focus on the one and forget the 10. And that's a lot easier said than done, Mm -hmm. right? So we work with people, right? And maybe they're just great all around, but they've got one asshole quality. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't listen very well or they interrupt you or something like that. But otherwise, they're they're kind, they're good guys or this. And isn't that funny how we just are like, God, this guy always interrupts me. <laughs> and we don't look at like, oh, he's compassionate, he's kind, he's smart, he's funny, he's this or that. We just look at that one thing, right? And and likewise, you got to work with people that have, the office is a great <laughs> example of this. You know, they have 10 bad qualities. You know, they, they sometimes... Sometimes I have dealt with people that have tried me so much and tested me so much. And I'd love to hear the, the military version of this when you're with a platoon mm-hmm. of guys like in you, each other's sweat and you're shitting in the same bucket mm-hmm. and stuff, what that's like. But, you know, I've had to work with people where it's literally like everything they say and do drives me batty and bugs the shit out of me. So I just have to find that one part of like, oh, they have kind eyes or... Oh, they're very well groomed mm-hmm. or or they seem to be patient or whatever it is. You find that one thing like focus on this. It's a practical spiritual tool to make your life better and make your day better. So you're not spending your whole day going like Jocko does this and Echo does this. And why does Bobby always do that? And you're just spending all your time focusing on all of the, the negativity around you. It's a way to focus on the positive. Had a guy named uh, Captain Charlie Plum on this podcast. He was a pilot in Vietnam. He was shot down on his 75th mission, which would have been his last mission. He was shot down and captured, and he was put in the Hanoi Hilton for six years. Jesus. And he had this, they had a rule. Those prisoners of war had a rule. And the rules, because they would be put in um, prison cells, and they'd have a roommate. And usually they'd have a roommate for like six months, a year, year and a half, and then they'd get another roommate. Sometimes they were in three-man rooms, two-man rooms, four-man rooms, but this is the deal. This is what they're dealing with. But they had a rule that if your cellmate did something that annoyed you, it was your fault. And to me, that answers the question you just gave. Wow. Like like you, you and I are living in a cell, and every night while I'm trying to go to sleep, you're like picking your nose and like flicking your boogers onto the wall near my head. It's like you know me. <laughs> exactly. You seem like a booger flicker. I've sensed it immediately. But I don't sit there and go, why is she doing this? Instead, I go, I, this is my fault for letting this annoy me. It's my fault. And that's just a, a great way to do it. It's a great way to turn it. And it's a survival skill. Because yeah. if you're going to sit in that cell and just be annoyed by everyone for six years, Jeez. I went to that Hanoi Hilton last oh, did you? year. Did you? Um, yeah, when I was arrested by the Lake Forest Park Police Department mm-hmm. in uh, 1981. Um, no, I went on vacation to uh, <laughs> uh, to Vietnam, which is did you awesome. Have, did you have flashbacks when you were in the Hanoi Hilton of the Lakeshore Police Department? I did. Holding cell? Like, oh, man, they got me. <laughs> Where's Terry, man? They killed Terry. Terry, come back. It's coming. Um, in the words of Theo Vaughn. Everybody's got their Vietnam, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But uh, yeah, was, uh, Vietnam is a great place, by the way. And 
and the Vietnamese people are so awesome and beautiful and they love Americans and they really actually don't like the Chinese, but they love Americans yeah. and they totally, because people go and I even went like, are, am I going to look weird? Like we invaded your country and bombed your, by you the know, way, yes, you are going to look weird, but well, anyways, oh. you were saying <laughs> they looked up at me and like, who is that giant white Macy's day balloon of a fleshy corpuscle above me. But, uh, yeah, it's a great place. People are so warm and wonderful and, and Hanoi is a gorgeous city, but the Hanoi Hilton, wow, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's uh, it's like visiting a Holocaust memorial or something. It's just anyway. Yeah, six years, six years, yeah, totally insane. Um, and all right, number nineteen, emphasis on music and arts. Yeah, I think all too often we lose the f- sight of the fact that. Uh, so much of religion and faith and spiritual celebration at its best incorporates music and dance and arts and and drama and storytelling. Look at the success of a lot of the Christian films uh, recently and, you know, how uplifting music is at church and stuff like that. So in this fictional religion of soul boom, think that arts need to be a part of it. I, I access... I access so much of like heart-based spiritual feeling through art and through through music, and um, I could never be a part of like some kind of boring practice that doesn't feature the arts. Yeah, you pointed that out earlier, uh, talking about the veterans, and there's a lot of like art therapy mm-hmm. that guys will go to, and they'll start doing whatever, freaking yeah. crochet or paint or whatever, and it like makes them feel better. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, and the last one I can is see you crocheting. Yeah, crocheting is a big one for me. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Number 20, humility. And last but certainly not least, Soul Boom Faith admits that it doesn't know the best way to do anything. We don't have any absolute answers. We we're in a humble posture of learning. We provide but a few markers, guideposts, and clues along the winding path of the spiritual game of life. A morsel of meaning. A uh, soup con of serenity? Is that the word? Soupçon. Soupçon. It's a français. Okay. A kernel of the eternal. I like that one. Hey. And plenty of questions along the way. So you, you, you know, to me, and I've always write and say humility is the most important characteristic for leaders and for people to have. And it's what we're lacking a lot of in the world yeah, right now. Yeah, absolutely. Because I actually think I know exactly what the answer should be, and therefore I hate you because you don't agree with my answer. Everyone does. Just look at Twitter <laughs> or X. All you have to do is read X, and everyone knows the best way. Yeah. Yeah. So Soul Boom, our fictional religion, is a humble religion. Yeah, I think that one of the things that has turned so many young people off from religious faith is kind of like this kind of like certainty and judgment um, pronouncements, this is the way it is. So we just have to, you know, as we walk our spiritual path, keep open-hearted and keep questioning and um, and stay humble and, you know, not always think we know the best way. You know, yeah. it's hard It's hard for me because I know a lot and I usually do know the best way. I'm kidding. But, uh, but it, no, it really is important. And I love that you say that about leadership because it's, I know it's part of your dichotomy, you know, mm-hmm. of leadership, but... <clears throat> The, uh, you know, humility and service and really surrender. And that's an interesting thing about 12-step recovery, too, is that you find strength 
and surrendering. That's like weird mm-hmm. and it's counterintuitive. Like strength is willpower. Like you have a, you know, alcohol problem or a sex problem or a shopping problem or an eating problem or a relationship problem or like you just got to will yourself out of it and, you know, and will and determination are important qualities, human qualities. We wouldn't have, have our civilization without it. But sometimes there are things that you just have to, that you have to surrender. And then in that surrender, you find great strength. And uh, and that's that's an interesting one as well. Yeah, that's an interesting one too when it comes to like leadership from a, a humility perspective. You have to have a like a high level of confidence in order to be humble. So it's always the people that lack confidence that don't act humble. But if I'm actually confident and I'm like, oh, you know what? Rain, it sounds like you got a better plan than I do. Why don't we go ahead and use your plan? Yeah. Whereas if I'm if I lack confidence, then I'm like, you know what, my plan's better, we'll go with my plan. Yeah. And yeah. that's problematic all day long. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and you do have one bonus thing, which I think is a, a big hit here for your religion. It's uh, potlucks. Potlucks. Because potlucks play a huge part in bringing people together. It's one of the greatest contributions <laughs> to human civilization brought to us by our Native American brothers and sisters. The uh, Everyone brings a hot dish and... Uh, my dad had one recipe. It was a tater tot casserole. Nice. And it was um, uh, cream uh, cream soup and uh, I think a layer of tater tots and then more cream soup and then cheese and the tater tots and then cheese bake on 350 for like 20 minutes. You just put the frozen tater tot yeah. and then it's – it's so good. I thought you were going to say potato chips on top because I know my mom would make like the whatever kind of casserole she was making, Put whether it was tuna chip. casserole, hamburger helper casserole, or a chicken canned. There was potato chips on top. How about this? Crinkled up. Clown crinkled salad up. on top. <laughs> so this clown salad's a thing. It's a thing. It's a nerd thing. Okay. You wouldn't understand. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um... All right, so that that's kind of like one small section of Soul Boom. And uh, again, really cool read. You did the audiobook, which is which is great. I listened to the sample of the audiobook as well, and a ton of stuff to ponder in here. A very idealistic book. Yeah, it is. It's a very idealistic book. And I actually caught myself being like, oh, hold on a second there. Who's a freaking think everyone's just going to... And I caught myself being like uh, kind of a reactionary to some of your thoughts in there. And then I thought to myself, wait, wait, why can't, why not be idealistic? Why not try and to, do I have to agree with everything that is said before I say, oh, wait a second, what, what does he mean by that? I, caught, I found myself being a victim of my own, what I just talked about. Like, well, he obviously has never been in that situation before, otherwise. No, it's like, oh, what is he trying to say? And are we not better to have an open mind? And this is, again, this is one of the things I got asked recently, you know, talking about going to war somewhere, it was China or Russia or whatever. People were asking me, oh, what would you be thinking about? And I said, uh, you know, the most important thing that I would be thinking about if we were to go to war there would be having an open mind because I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know what the enemy's gonna do. I don't know the way things are going to unfold. I don't know what we haven't thought about. And where people get trapped is they have a closed mind. In, in battle and in life. They have a closed mind. They already think they understand. Kind of like, interestingly, you said playing that role where you bombed on Broadway, you already knew 
in your mind how you were supposed to act and that's what you were gonna do and you were gonna stick with it. You had a closed mind and not an open mind. And not a humble mind either. And not a humble mind yeah. either. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the, at the end I put in seven pillars of a spiritual revolution and because I really do think it needs a revolution and one of them is to foster joy and to squash cynicism. So being cynical and pessimistic and negative is an easy fallback position. Anyone can do it. You can just be like, ah, oh, that's a bunch of shit. That's never going to work. Ah, oh, that's bullshit. That's an easy, that's an easy answer. It's an and, easy way to live your and life. And I'll join right in with you because that's easy too. Like you want to complain about something? I'll just jump yeah. on and complain yep. with you. We're brothers now. So <laughs> if, you, if we think a little bit deeper, um, you know, squashing that cynicism and instead turning that to joy. Like I'm not helping anyone. I'm not helping myself and I'm not helping the world staying pessimistic and cynical. I need to bring joy to the world. I'm going to bring joy to the world, Mm -hmm. but I want to bring, I want to uplift people. I want to inspire people. I want to come into a room. One of the things, you know, my dad passed during COVID. He died of heart disease, but when he passed away, um, and in my grieving process, I thought a lot about his best qualities, like, and something that I want to emulate is like every room he went into, he made a better place. Every room he went into, even if it's like the cleaning lady or the hotel maid or he, and the, the, the Starbucks or whatever it is, like, he was always like, hey, brother, nice to see you. Like, how's it going? Like, oh, that's a nice watch. What What, what is that like? Or how do you shave your head that way? Like whatever it is, like he's he's curious and joyful and uplifting and like and at his remembrances and memorials, like that's what was was shared. Like he always made each room a better place. And I'm so fortunate that I got to he was fucked up in a lot of ways. He made a lot of mistakes, he had a lot of issues, but that was a just a beautiful quality that he brought. So if we're gonna have a spiritual revolution, we can't when you're pessimistic and cynical, you sit back, right? When you're joyful, you're proactive and you're making choices to try and make things better and positive. And it's, we talk about a lot about giving service, right? And service mm-hmm. to others, but spreading joy is maybe the most important service that we can do. So we can go into room, you can make someone laugh, you can compliment them, and you can go into when someone is sick and 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 tell a joke or sing a song and bring them some jello or whatever and you've uplifted them and made them better that's one of the best services that any human can give to another human so if you're feeling a little bit lost squash that cynicism just try and give a little bit of joy each day and guess what you'll feel happier Mm -hmm. by giving joy to others and then the cycle repeats and we can spread this like a virus and yeah it's a little bit kumbaya and a little bit a little bit idealistic and and hippy dippy but i believe that world peace is possible and i believe that humanity can mature i think our lives can get better and we can make the world a more beautiful and joyful place we've just got a lot of work in front of us got some work to do on that yeah on that front i was talking to some young uh fr- some young seals the other day and or, 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 or yeah yeah and they they kept going back in the water now i was talking to these young seals the other day and you know, in it, one, even once you're in the SEAL teams, you still do a bunch of training. And I used to run that training. and But I, I had been through that advanced training. I'd done seven deployments. So seven times I'd gone through this cycle of training. And one thing I did, I always did, 
was no matter what we were doing is I took it as seriously as I possibly could. Like, not seriously, like, oh, we're not gonna have fun, but like, okay, this is what we're doing. We're gonna do our best at it. Not being like, oh, we gotta do this again, or oh, this isn't realistic, or oh, I can't believe that. No, it's like, oh, this is what you want us to do? Cool, we're gonna knock it out of the park. And just that reframing, hmm. that t- taking a positive attitude on what you have to do, it just makes all the difference in the world. And you can immediately change a whole platoon. Their attitude, if you have a shitty attitude, your whole platoon's attitude will be shitty. If you have a good attitude, like, oh, this, hey, this training might seem a little bit strange, but it's gonna, I bet we can knock it out of the park. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I think we can. And it really does Hmm. spread. So what you're talking about on a large scale definitely happens on a small scale as well. Hmm. Um, The, so, so that's soul boom. I don't know, you might have to, if we're gonna go in depth on Soul Boom, you have to come back, bro, because I mean, this is get, already getting long. But you have other stuff going on right now. You have a podcast, Metaphysical Milkshake. Yeah. Is that not a podcast? It is a podcast. It's kind of, that one's kind of is it, is it winding sunsetting? down. It's sunsetting, okay. yeah. And uh, I did it with uh, Reza Aslan. We talk about big metaphysical questions about the meaning of life and love and pain and wonder and being a human being it's been great but um i think i'm gonna move and try and do more of a soul boom podcast that's a little bit more about spiritual ideas okay so but in the next couple of months at some point so tv show yeah this thing is not sunsetting i'm the the the, uh geography of bliss that's correct so what's up with geography of bliss well it's on the peacock channel and you can stream it and i travel around the world looking for happiness and it's a wonderful, delightful show that I am not allowed to promote because we're on a strike. And please support the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America in their quest for ever more fair revenue streams from these streamers studios. So that's what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, how long is that strike going to last? Oh, dear God. You know, it's really hurting a lot of working uh, class families people think about oh hollywood elites on strike boo hoo hoo but the majority of i think it's like 80 percent of screen actors guild actors make less than twenty thousand dollars a year so it's a lot of working class families trying to feed their kids and pay their homes while being actors and writers and working in showbiz a lot of writers you know the you look at the end of a show and like the writers that are there like you know they make a good living don't get me wrong but they you know it's it's about middle class homes so the entire business has changed so we've got to understand this is not just a strike of like oh i want a five percent raise not a three percent raise it's like show business changed do you remember what show business was like seven years ago it was completely different than it is now everyone had cable you watch network television and then there was this net netflix upstart and Oh, should I pay my $9 a month to watch what's on that one? Mm-hmm. Um, but this whole subscription revenue streamer kind of thing is a whole new thing, and the contracts don't reflect the new business model. Mm. So, so so that means the people that wrote them and act in them are not getting the pay that they yeah. sh- think they should get. The office, I forget what the number is. Echo can Google it. Yeah, Echo. And then, uh, Pull that up, Echo. He'll, he'll, he'll Google it tomorrow, and next Thursday we'll hear from him. Like, hey, I got that information you wanted. Um, the, uh, uh, but the office, when it was on Netflix, I've, there was some number that came out. It's like 17 billion hours of the office streamed yeah. or something like My that. My family alone streamed 1 billion. I mean, it was, and yet, 
the checks that we got in residuals from Netflix for those years, I don't want to say any numbers, but it was it was pathetic. I mean, it was it was pathetic. Like yeah. you couldn't pay your credit card bills from it, and we were being watched billions of hours. Now I'm fine. Yeah. Steve's fine. John's fine. We're all fine. But like some of the guest stars on The mm-hmm. Office and people that are, you know, the more workaday actors and stuff like that, not the fabulous mm-hmm. stars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that's a that's a real struggle. That's a problem. So we have to we have to figure out how to make that more fair and equitable without shutting down the streamers. You know, so I, I hope they're talking. But it's probably what month is this? this is early September? But it's, it's not going to get fixed till December or January. Probably it's already been a couple of months. Is there like a head of the union of the SAG union? Yeah, or of the Fran writers? Drescher, the nanny, is the head of our union. And it, remember and, her. Oh, hi. I'm Fran Drescher, the nanny. I don't echo. That was a it's mediocre a, to poor uh, imitation, but yes. The nanny. Oh, hey. He says one thing. Okay. The whole pod. He hasn't listened to anything. Okay. I said, look at the oh, 10 good so. qualities. Oh, there we go. Not my Fran Drescher impersonation. <laughs> I, I, oh, Fran Drescher. I knew exactly who it oh, was. Thank hi, you. Echo uh, whatever, bro. So well, what I'm saying is okay. if we're trying to, uh, uh, what do you call it, indicate who Fran Drescher is, that wasn't as accurate as maybe it could have been You know, to, to trigger the, the the memory is for us. But so if you heard her real a, voice, you'd be like, Is a TV like, oh, show yeah. called The Nanny? The Nanny is a TV show. He has I a sitcom know. from the yeah. 90s, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so she's like the head of the union. Yeah. And she's talking to all the different execs. So they have a, um, a producer's coalition. It's not really a union. It's called MPAT, I think, and Association of, I don't know, Media Producers or mm-hmm. something like that. And they have a couple of uh, key negotiators talking on behalf. But here's the other weird thing about the strike is the streamers have a very different business model than the studios. Mm -hmm. You think about like Warner Brothers has HBO Max, but it also puts movies out in theaters. It also has Harry Potter. It has theme parks. And it makes TV shows that it sells to networks and to streamers as well. But Netflix has its own business model. You know, it doesn't it doesn't actually make anything. It's just the the platform. Mm-hmm. And then Apple and Amazon, they're making billions of dollars selling shoes and computers, and then they make some content on the side. They don't care about these contracts and stuff like that. They're they're trillion dollar corporations. So it's a very weird it's such a weird time when you have like Sony, mm-hmm. which is very specifically a studio. There's no Sony streaming platform. It's a studio okay. that makes content. Working with Netflix, which is only a streamer, working with Apple that mostly sells phones, and they're all like working together, but they kind of have different interests. Mm. Whoa, it's a weird time. Mm-hmm. So and so and the other thing is because, like I said, I've been on a couple of these TV shows. There's a whole there's. I can't imagine all the other people out there. Yeah, the work. crew. The crew, the people that make the set, yeah. the people that feed you. For every you, show you watch you and there's like 12 actors or 14 speaking actors on a on a roll, there's 200 people. It's crazy. 250 people, the camera loaders and the people doing the, the snacks and the, the people cleaning up afterwards, driving the trucks, the Teamsters, and those guys are hurting too. It's hurting a lot of people. And you think hopefully by the end of the year there's been some progress made. I, ho- I hope so. What's the outcome? Like, what's the most positive outcome for the writers and the actors? Is like a slice of the 
yeah, a bigger a bigger slice of the streaming mm-hmm. pie in a in a fair way, um, because we used to get a nice fair slice of the network pie. That's all been worked out. Mm-hmm. If you go still now and go do a network show, you know you're gonna you do Bob Hart's Abishola or you know FBI or you do you know uh, you know Law and Order mm-hmm. or, you know. Chicago or whatever <laughs> on network TV that's all been worked out and you get paid very fairly and residuals get paid fairly and compensation and pension and all that's oh but, but when so, law and order goes to a streamer you don't get jack you don't get jack yeah and God. they're and they're getting like suits is the number one show on Netflix that was made on TBS or TNT 10 years ago and people love this show suits oh, okay Actually, David Costable was on Suits. Okay. So, but those guys aren't getting paid diddly, and it's being watched for billions of minutes oh, on damn. Netflix. You open your Netflix, and the top I shows, saw, I saw Suits is right day. up there. But they're making hardly any money. Oh, because it wasn't in the contract. But ten yeah, years ago, for, to there was stream no it on thing. internet streaming. You know that what that wasn't really a thing up until five or seven years ago. So. Damn, and so. those contracts are already signed, sealed, and delivered. Yeah, we gotta so. Oh. Stakes are high. It sucks. Um, hopefully, everyone can find a solution. All right. Um, does that get us up to speed? Does that like? Are we there? Yeah. We there yeah. for the most part. Yeah, I think we're good. Any more insults you want to throw out at people, Echo <laughs> Charles? Uh, where, so, where can people find you right now? So, you got soulboom.com. Yeah. And uh, Instagram on soulboom at soulboom. If you're interested in spiritual conversations, I'm going to be trying to build that out over the next year. You're on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. At Rain Wilson, there's two ends. Two ends, because your parents yeah. decided an extra end was necessary. Yeah, I say the extra end is for extra nookie. So. <laughs> you, you're you're on Facebook as well, um, and you got this other TV show which we can't promote because you're on a strike. Yes, the geography of bliss I will not <laughs> be promoting on Peacock about finding happiness around the world. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Echo. Yes. Any questions? Hard hitting questions. Yeah, hard hitting questions. Hey, why did they put the office on the iPod there? Like, why did that deal go through? Was that just. That's a great question. I have no idea why. I think NBC must have just done a deal with them to, yeah. to put it on. But I don't know. Maybe it was an Apple thing. Maybe Apple was like, we need to put a show on that we think people will like. And maybe, and maybe NBC was just like, oh, you can have the office. No one's watching it. Put it on for free. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I need to dig into that. Yeah, it seems kind of like a random thing for such a big deal. Even yeah, you know, like something. Yeah, why didn't they put CSI on or yeah. something else? I don't know. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Um, did you hear? You know the movie Office Space? Yeah. Did that? Is it true that that's like a? You know a, what do you call like a spinoff or like a movie version of the Office? Was it inspired by the I think Office? It was before the Office. I think that came out in like two thousand two, but I don't think. No, the office is very, and you can look at it. It's so specifically spun off from the British office. Yeah. But I love Office Space, classic comedy. Yeah, yeah. So many great characters, and there's definitely they have a similar vibe at the center. You know, the, yeah. the awkwardness and the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then Dwight, right? Dwight, are you allowed to be Dwight officially, like at certain events and like all this, bro? We did a um, how's this kid? So I did a show called the Hinata Laranja show. You yeah, might be familiar yeah. with it. So we do like parodies of one certain of the one things. of the best. I mean, I don't know. Is it good if you don't if you're not in that world? Is it good? It will be a percentage of good for okay. sure because the you know like a 
that that whole idea is funny, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that trolling idea. But yeah, if you're in the jujitsu world, it's gonna be you're gonna get the full the full experience for sure. But one of the parodies we did was remember the Incredible Hulk, the original, sure, the OG uh, Lou Frigno. Mm-hmm. So we did a parody of that intro to that show, you know, David yeah, Banner, yeah. Or whatever. And so for the Hulk, we used this real famous wrestler for because he's a black guy, right? So he turned into the Hulk. So we used a big Who'd black. You use? Um, his name was. Ezekiel something. Okay. He was like a super fan. I'm okay. not in like WWE, WWE guy. Okay. Yes, exactly. So boom, when he turned in the Hulk, I you know digitally morphed him and did all this stuff, colored him green and what. But it was this famous wrestler, and so we're like, yeah, it's gonna be perfect when we do the credits, and boom, we'll get all this exposure right through WWE or whatever. And you know, it comes back, hey, we can't use that name because that name belongs to the WWE. Oh, whoa. So Man. you got to make up. So we just made up some funny name or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's a famous wrestler guy, Zeke something. Mm-hmm. And he like, I think he like retweeted it real like incognito. So does WWE own The Rock or own Hulk Hogan? Bro, I don't know. Uh, See, or that's the or thing. what is know. it? The Grave the grave Digger? What's yeah, that guy? Grave Digger, yeah. Undertaker. Undertaker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Grave Diggers, Monster Trucks, right? Uh, I don't know, cause cause you know Stone Cold Steve Austin, who I've been on his podcast, but right. he when you look at like his Instagram and stuff, it's not he doesn't often refer to himself as Stone Cold Steve Austin. So maybe there's the same similar thing going on. And well, I would I, imagine, I do know that know. I do know that NBC Universal owns Dwight Schrute, hmm. Dunder Mifflin, Schrute Farms, The Office, like all of that stuff. They own all that, mm-hmm. right? Um, if I went around dressing up as Dwight to like make money, they could come after me or something like that. If I, although there's so much merch out there with Dwight that people make on Etsy, like you can go to Etsy and find thousand and and NBC isn't profiting from it, but they're not shutting it down either. So yeah, they could probably, they do, they do own that. So yeah. Yeah, so because yeah, you do it wild. in like charitable situations, right? Yeah. Like how you how you said. Yeah. So yeah, it feels like I do some Dwight T-shirts, and I suppose that I sell for charity. But I suppose NBC could be assholes and come after me and say yeah. you can't have it. And everything that goes on in that show, if you would have made up Shroot Farms, it's still owned by them yeah. because they're mm-hmm. paying you at the time, and that's yeah. just the way it works. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Kind of like when you said Angel Brain earlier on this podcast. Yeah, and we now own, it's my property. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. No big yeah. deal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Angel Brain T-shirts. <laughs> sure. Shirt locker all day. The um. So what if? And I don't want to go too deep into this, but we're talking about it. So Shroot Farms. What if in Shroot Farms? Uh, what do you call it? like um, like the myth or the, the the idea of it? There was maybe a, a worker in Shroot Farms. Never materialized, but let's say as an idea. Then you made a shirt, you know, like on Seinfeld. I right? remember Seinfeld. Yeah, there was uh, George would pretend that he was like an architect or whatever. Yeah, and import ex uh, Vandalay or Vandalay like Industries was yeah, one yeah, of the things yeah. he'd purport to be like this guy of right Vandalay Industries. So people yeah. will make shirts saying Vandalay Industries, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of part of the ethos, part of the you know, well not the ethos, but part of the myth, you mm-hmm. know. So I wonder how deep you have to go with Dwight and his whole, you know atmosphere yeah i think anything that you did that's related to shroot farms Just or something like way, that huh? in any way i think they are they're gonna own yeah, that. yeah yeah you can't do that and they will stuff. come after you yeah yeah 
What about spinoffs? Are they must have proposed a thousand spinoffs? Well, for you. we tried to do a Dwight spinoff, and they passed on it. What? And they would have made a bazillion dollars off a Dwight spinoff. We did one episode in like season seven that was called Shroot Farms, and what we were looking at was. What if Dwight left Dunder Mifflin just to focus on the bed and breakfast at Shroot Farms? And God, like Faulty Towers, sort of. Yeah, right? a little bit. Faulty yeah. Towers, running an inn, you know, yeah. running a, an agro inn where oh, you get to see God. a working farm. Oh, my and, God. That'd been epic. And the episode that we made, it was, it was really hard to make a 21-minute episode that introduced a lot of these different characters and stuff like that. But ultimately, there were new people that came in. Um, to run NBC at the time and they were like they wanted to get more into big splashy multi-camera sitcoms and the office was kind of waning and it's mm. in the last couple of years especially without Steve and so they were like yeah we're done with the whole office thing but if they had done Shroot Farms and we had done even a couple of seasons this would be streaming all the time 100%. would it have been as funny as the office no <laughs> and that's okay because even if it was 67% as funny as The Office, it would have been really good. Been damn funny. But that's not going to like all the people that listen to this podcast, tons of them. Yeah, ton. They're going to re- reignite that idea. And you just yeah, don't. I, I, I've talked to them a few times about like how do we do a reboot of Dwight or Shroot Farms or do we want to? And, you know, just mostly for me. So I've had some creative conversations and with some of the producers from The Office and stuff. And, and it's like I just – you know, I had 10 glorious years. We made a great show. I'm really enjoying the other stuff that I'm doing, mm-hmm. other acting and writing and whatnot. Do I really want to go back there? Right now, I don't really. Got but it. who knows? Next year, who knows? Maybe I'll be like, yeah, that would be really fun. You know, maybe that's a it's a Dwight movie. Yeah. You know? I'm trying to think of, is there examples of this that have happened? Well, Frasier is the famous spinoff from Cheers. Got it. Yeah. Yep. Right? That's the one that really worked, where yeah. Frasier was maybe even better than Cheers. Mm-hmm. So there's there's been a few. Joey was a spinoff of Friends that only lasted a year okay. or two, didn't do very Tenacious well. Tenacious D movie came out, right? Right. Two of them, as a matter of fact. That's off that HBO series, you know. There's actually a lot of them that, that started and kind of, even like Seinfeld had a few, like, Kramer had one. Yeah, but it wasn't any character from Seinfeld. It oh, was yeah, just yeah. Michael Richards like having a... Based off of it. Almost yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. inspired character. Yeah, that's yeah. true, huh? He wasn't it was similar Kramer. to Kramer, but it, he didn't... His name wasn't Kramer. Right, right. Know? It's like Cardoza yeah. or something. How often do you hang out with the office people? There's a lot of them I see a lot. I see Oscar, Brian, Jenna, Angela. You know, I text with John and Steve and uh, BJ. I hung out with in New York a while back, so... I see them here and there, but mm-hmm. we're we're spread out. We have a nice text chain, and mm-hmm. you know we have a good we have a good time. So, yeah. text chains are freaking awesome. Yeah. Like you know what I mean. Like my family group text is just like awesomely <laughs> epic. You know what I mean. Yes, That's funny. Do. And like the jujitsu group, yeah. like the jujitsu training group is like an awesome text thread of shit talking and stuff like this freaking I think there's gonna be a book or a movie or something that's just nothing but bubbles popping up with words in them (laughs) (laughs) and then memes and Mm -hmm. and emojis and yeah Yeah. echo anything else that is it oh wait wait this is like off the topic I guess (laughs) you ever watched MacGyver sure that wasn't one of your jams I guess that's a little bit 
What's the opposite I, of ahead of your time? Like later. Yeah, it was a little, it's a little yeah. late. MacGyver's a little 80s. bit late, but still, it's it's in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was like in acting school in New York, yeah, okay. and I wasn't really watching yeah, MacGyver then. There's a whole period of stuff that I kind of missed around that. That's like what you guys said about the '90s. Yeah. Whatever show was in it with the girl in the '90s, the nanny. The nanny like yeah. that that chunk of t- period when I was like in the SEAL teams, going on deployment. There's no TV. Like there's just a whole era yeah. that I missed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. But yeah. what about it? Echo no, no, no. Just seeing what up. Because that was one of those ones that when you're in it, well, I was like a teenager at that time, but or a kid or whatever. But when you think you're like, man, this is the most clever, smartest show ever. Like he doesn't carry a gun. He just figures things out with the stuff around yeah. him, you know, like that kind of stuff. And then when you grow up, you're kind of like, bro, none of that was you and real. <laughs> like, bro, you can't even do any of that. You yeah. Know? Do you watch MacGruber at all? Remember those? Um, no. Wait, what's MacGruber? That's like the takeoff on the guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That from Saturday Night Live, and then they made that into a show, too. Yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw parts. It's pretty but funny. The movie's yeah. funny. Watch MacGruber. The movie is very funny. It would be probably, I would think it's way funny now, because yeah. back in the day, MacGyver right. was You the took truth. it seriously. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, he used <laughs> chewing gum and yeah. a piece paper, of yarn paper to clip. dismantle that nuclear bomb. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's kind of harsh sometimes. I, I got my, during COVID, got my youngest daughter all hyped to watch E.T. Like, oh my gosh, like we're going to have a night tonight. Classic. If I would have known about clown soup, what is that? Popcorn and M&M's? Clown it? salad. Clown. If I would have known of that about that, I would have done it. Clown soup is something very, very different. <laughs> I don't want to describe it here because it's kind of, yeah. <laughs> it gets a little dark. So I get my daughter all hyped for E.T. And you know, she was whatever, 11 or something at the time. And we sit down to watch it and it is so bad. I mean, it's it's so bad. What are I you know. talking about? I know, I know. Go no, watch it. No, it holds up. Go it watch does it. hold up. I watched it with my son. It's when? great. When? 10 years ago. Okay, it still held up probably 10 years ago. If you go watch it right now, it's rough, man. That's all I'm saying, it's rough. But there's a factor with this, though. So, and you talk, kind of we were talking about it earlier, where this there's this factor, I think, that, hey, it's not a secret or nothing like that, but back in the day, when you went in the movie theater, the lights turned out, you know, turned down, it was like, bro, you're locked in. Mm. So your attention span kind of was required for the whole two hours, <laughs> right? And we were all cool with that, because think about how you watch TV, right? Same deal. Where, bro, you can't pause, DVR, watch it later, watch it when I want. Bro, it was on, and you watched the yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And, okay, maybe later on you got the VCR, you record it, okay, but that's a pain in the ass. Generally speaking, you're just watching it go. And if you missed it, you miss it. So you better be paying attention all two hours, by the way. Yeah. No, it's different, Hell's bro. Yeah. Our brains are trained different. And the kids, that's now how I'm, they develop now. Yeah. So now they don't need, bro, two hours of this Sometimes BS I find myself effects. watching a show and watching a YouTube video at oh the same bro. time. It's you true. need help, bro. You need no. more therapy. No, yeah, I true. really do. That's real. No, I think that's kind of common. It's real, right? I mean, and then if like I miss something in the show, I'll pause it and then I'll just go back. Like, what did they <laughs> exactly. say about the thing? Exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Now think of now think of like writing and producing and stuff. Now it has to accommodate that a little bit. Back in the day, didn't have to accommodate it. Bro, you character development all day. Bro, you ever watch Predator? Mm-hmm. The first one? Yeah. Bro, you don't see the Predator till like freaking like an hour into it or something like this. Bro, try to do that now. They'd be like, bro, this, this movie is boring. Uh, I just, feel, I just now, after I just called you out, I immediately had like uh, internal angst and, and regret because you know what I'll do? I'll look at Zillow and watch something. Yeah. Like my wife, Lori wants something, I'll be looking at Zillow, You're like, like checking properties. Yeah, yeah. You know real. what I mean? I've got like nine locations around the country yeah. where I'm seeing if there's a good deal today. Attention not oh, required, my friend. Yeah. Just rewind that one. Or watch it freaking when it's more convenient. That's why yeah. I do love going to see movies in a theater. Like it's, mm. 
it's it's old school. We need to we need to get back to that. Sometimes go yeah. go see him. I would my kids know this. I would go to like see movies when they were little. We'd go to see whatever movie yeah. and I would 100% fall asleep. Like, you know, I was just tired. I was working all the time and just like I'd go in there with dad's taking a nap and whatever it was and we just the last movie we went to see as a family was It 2. Yeah, yeah. You familiar Chapter with this? Chapter 2. Hell yeah. yeah. Dude, I'm sorry, but that that, that was not a good. Movie. That was freaking. <laughs> the I first like, one was pretty good, but the yeah, the one, first yeah. one wasn't too bad, but the second one, I, I so I slept and when I woke up, I was like, "This is absolutely." I bad. remember going to see Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too with my son, who was like eight years old, and it was so loud. It was just like mm. and meatballs and thing, and I just was like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I slept through half oh, of the movie. For sure. And it it was an assault on the senses, but it couldn't stop me. <laughs> clown salad couldn't keep me awake. Oh, just no clown soup. That's what we're hoping. Anything else, Echo Charles? Yeah, that's all. Uh, no, nothing else. So cool to meet you. Right on. Thanks for coming. Rain down. Wilson. Any closing thoughts? Um, I'm not kissing your ass. I love what you do. I love this pod. I love your authentic self and the stories you tell. And you serve a really valuable role. And um honored to be on your podcast thank you for having me well um thanks for joining us and you know you talked about bringing joy to people and uh thank you for putting smiles on a lot of people's faces including my face including my family um like i said you know we were going through the war and we had a little office and that could make us smile even in the worst of times thanks for what you've done um Thanks for what you're doing. Charity, the writing, the producing, the acting, everything that you're doing, bringing a little bit more joy in the world. Much appreciated. Right on. Thank you. Thanks. And with that, Rain Wilson has left the building. You good, Echo Charles? Yes, sir. Good stuff. Interesting stuff, right? Yeah. Very interesting journey. Yeah. Yeah, I can... I think a lot of us kind of can nerd out on on the show business side of things, especially when you watch it, you know, when you watch a show and then like you're so familiar with the show mm-hmm. and the characters and all this stuff and you don't know anything, not one single thing about the behind the scenes. Yeah, or even know? about that, what that person's actually like as a human. Yeah, it's crazy. Right? Very Like crazy. that's an actor. That's yeah. not who they are. Yeah, it's not Dwight. Now, now there's some, you know, elements in there, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Like Rain even said, he called on elements of his own life to form the character of Dwight K. Schrute. But it's still not, he's not actually Dwight K. Schrute. He's Rain Wilson. So it's very interesting. And it's weird now you think about all those people in that show. And it comes across in the book, um, you know, when we were talking about like different rock bands Mm -hmm. and how, but a lot of times rock bands like, the truth comes out right mm-hmm. and this guy's an asshole and this person like was an egomaniac and this person was like a closet drug addict and this person was stealing all the money like there's all these always or oftentimes these horrible backstories yeah. about what's going on behind the scenes you yeah. know what I mean yeah totally. in this in reading the books like it's like everyone's cool they're, yeah. they're all just like good people they're all yeah. so it gives you a nice feeling right yeah, totally. and they all felt good and they all liked working together and they all did a good job and they all just enjoyed it, you yeah. know. So it's kind of a good news story across the board. Yeah, fully. But yep, I felt that same thing. Uh, and you know, I mean, now he's on this little uh, spiritual journey, trying to find happiness. And I'll tell you, I'm all about being happy. Yeah, 
gotta be healthy. Gotta be, gotta it's part be of healthy. It. If you're having health issues, you gotta do your best to get them squared away. Mm-hmm. And you wanna maintain your health. Pretty much, that should be one of the highest focuses of your whole life, should be being healthy. Yep. If it's not, it's gonna hurt you, yes. right? It's gonna hurt you. If you're not doing everything you can, because look, you might be out of shape right now, but you shouldn't surrender. You should get back on the path. Yep. So, so he, he mentioned tennis. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was. I saw this article. It wasn't tennis. It was table tennis. Okay. This article is what yeah. I was talking about. Where table te- Actually, you know what? Yeah, it was article said table tennis is one of the better things to do to maintain cognitive function. Interesting. Yeah, it's a fast sport. Man. Right. So your brain, your hand-eye coordination, and the speed and the mm. kind of the intensity of the hand-eye coordination uh, development slash maintenance slash uh, stimulus mm-hmm. is like table tennis. And I would imagine tennis even more because you're actually running around with your body more. Yeah, but it's not as quick. Yes, that is meticulous, right? Yeah, that's true. But yeah, they said that like as far as cognitive function goes, bro, it's like one of the best things to maintain it. This tennis. It's like, damn. Okay, well, table tennis is what you're talking about. Ping pong. The article was about ping pong, but he said he plays tennis, which to me is not very far off. Do you know who Jewel is? Yeah, Jewel is a singer, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was on Joe Rogan's podcast, mm-hmm. and she was talking about she runs like a school mm-hmm. or like some kind of a camp or school, but to help kids, mm-hmm. and they make the kids play tennis. Mm-hmm. And she she didn't even play tennis, but she's like, it's a psychological game. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. good. Now look, would I prefer they did that jujitsu? Of course, jiu-jitsu. I would. of course, I prefer they did that jujitsu. What? <laughs> sure. Of course, yeah. nothing better for the children mm-hmm. than getting them the jujitsu. Mm-hmm. But tennis also psychological warfare is happening. Right, you see John McEnroe be smashing his racket and whatnot. Sure, you know what I mean. I think they're frustrated. There's something about tennis when you you can one miss, like in jujitsu, you make a mistake. Look, most of the times you can recover. Yeah, yeah, true. You know, occasionally you get caught, like you make one mistake, but you already made seven mistakes. Yeah, you know, very rarely does someone just catch you out of nowhere. Mm. You know. And you make two mistakes, and now you're in a bad position, and now you can't recover. Now they got your arm. Yeah. But you had three or four chances to correct that situation. In tennis, you hit it in the net. That's it. Mm. It's instantly dead. Yeah. And then you can win a bunch of points in a game and still lose the game. <laughs> and you can win a bunch of games in the set and still lose the set. And you can l- win multiple sets in the match and still lose the match. So you can pull, it's, it can be frustrating for some people. Got to watch out. Wait, so why did Jules start this tennis thing? Because it was good psychologically. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's because you got to, like, focus. You got to. Now, look, again, do I prefer the jujitsu? Mm. Jujitsu, I think, is the number one thing a person could do for life just to help them. But kids, even more so. Because mm. kids, they're going to be. They're gonna be scrapping. They're gonna be bully situations. Like these things are happening. Yeah. So, uh, that's what we're doing. We want to be healthy. On your path to happiness, it's gonna be a big part of it. Yeah. And look, sometimes you get sideswiped. You know, you get side. You get hit from the. You get t-boned by like a disease. You know, some health issue. That's worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. But the healthier you are going into that, or if you were born with something where it's like, hey, I got this thing going on, mm-hmm. still. Being as healthy as you can be is the best possible thing you can do. Mm. So we're working out. Yes. Sir. When we're doing jujitsu, by the way, mm. you're gonna be sweating. Yes. You're gonna need to hydrate. You're gonna yes. need to rehydrate. Get yourself some 
Jocko Hydrate from JockoFuel.com. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bro, that's in my everyday rotation. Every day. Jack. You think, oh, only when you sweat a lot or whatever. No, every single day. You know when I have it? Sometimes I have it and I'm not sweating. Sometimes I have it because it tastes good. Yeah. Like, like at night, go. I'll kind of want something sweet. Yeah. But I don't want to have a whole milk. Right. So I'll just have just a little hydrate. It's like a little juice. Yeah, little juice. It's like a little juice, but it's good for you. Yeah, I have one in the morning with creatine. I'm on creatine, by the way. Mm. Oh, yeah. So I mix it, hydrate the creatine. <laughs> Are you threatening me? No, no. Just putting out work. Right so on. Yep, hydrate creatine. Good. Greens. Get your greens on. Just You can just have greens once a day. It's a nice little way to kick things off. It's a nice little uh, bridge. Mm. For me, I don't. Do you eat breakfast? No. It's a nice little bridge. A 10 o'clock bridge to get you to lunch because it's a pain in the ass to stop everything and has that make a Sammy right sure, at sure. 10 o'clock. No, get a, get a little hitter of greens, yeah. you're good to go. All right, so there you go, jockofuel.com. Check it out, get some milk. I just had a milk in the break. I had a milk, see, uh, milk, good to go. Joint warfare, super cool. Everything you guys know the deal. Go to jockofuel.com, get some stuff, or go to Vitamin Shop, or go to GNC, or go to the Military Commissaries, AFES, Hannaford, Dash Doors, Wake Fern, ShopRite, HEB down in Texas, Meyer up in the Midwest, Harris Teeter, Lifetime Fitness, Shields. And by the way, if you've got a gym, a jiu-jitsu gym, CrossFit gym, weightlifting gym, whatever you got, if you got one and you wanna sell Jocko Fuel there so you can help your students and your clients get better, email jfsales at jockofuel.com. Get yourself some stuff. We'll set up a wholesale account. Or if you go to one of those places and you want them to have it, tell them. That's how you can make it happen. There you go, jockofuel.com. Get some. some. (laughs) Also, Origin. If you want American-made stuff, from like you don't want to support all this crazy offshore slave labor type stuff with your products, which you probably are. One way or another. Mm-hmm. It's hard to avoid nowadays. It's true. But, hey, you need some relief from that. OriginUSA.com. When you get your jeans, you'll know that everything about these jeans, everything from the cotton that was harvested <laughs> all the way to the person who made them. Mm-hmm. With pride, by the way. Mm-hmm. Skill and pride. Made them here in America. American made. You can get a gi, jiu-jitsu gi, and it's going to be hands down the best gi that you've ever had in your life. Yep. It's not even going to feel like a gi. Yep. Imagine if for your whole life, you were wearing a burlap and wool suit head mm. to toe. You yeah. know, wool like real itchy. Yeah, like burlap. a straight jacket or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, sure. Let's say you were wearing that your whole life. Yeah. And then one day you put on like a rash guard and how good you would feel. Or like feel a cotton shoot t shirt. Yeah. That's nice. what it's like when you, if you've been wearing a normal gi yeah. and you get an origin gi, that's what you're going to feel like. Oh, yeah. That level of different differentiation. And they keep, keep getting better too, yeah. by the way. So I had the Rift gi. Remember the Rift came yeah, out? Yeah, we we're yeah. all like, oh man, no way, no way anyone can top this one right here. Because like the cut and like the, the fabric, yeah. like the form, the whole deal. It's topped. Oh yeah. So I would just use that every mm-hmm. single time. Yeah. The Rifki, the Rifki, the Rifki, and then the Nano Pearl came out. I was like, ooh, okay. So you guys just keep getting making them better and better. I get it. I see what you guys are doing. We ain't playing. OriginUSA.com. Go get yourself some gear, whatever you need to wear on your body. And don't forget about JockoStore.com. That's what Echo Charles made up. Yeah. Well, 
it's your name, but yeah. But you made up the name of the store. Yes. Super creative. JockoStore.com. Yeah, yeah. That's where you can get that your guy. discipline equals freedom. Hey, you want to uh, you want to sport the X flag, Defcore. Mm-hmm. That's where you can get it's it. Good thing to represent. The idea of good, which is very prevalent nowadays. Yeah, you know, Rain said that at one point. He went through his whole experience, and he's like, oh, I went through all this good. And I was yeah. like, wait, is this a reference to the good thing? Yeah. And, but I didn't, like, say anything, and then we just moved on. I had some other thing, but yeah. maybe he was in the game. Maybe he was saying good yeah. the way we say good. Very possible. I think he was. But how's and this? even if he wasn't, it was an alignment because he went through this terrible situation, mm-hmm. freaking f- bombed at Broadway, mm-hmm. did crap, yep. and he was like, all that stuff happened, and he went, all this bad stuff happened. Good. Because that led him to the rest of his life. Yes, sir. That's what happens. Imagine if he went down the other direction. I can't believe this happened today. Right. Yeah. Drinking. Doing cocaine. Exactly. Yeah. Shit could have gone wild, bro. <laughs> but he <laughs> got it back together. It's true. It's little, so, yeah, man, yeah, the story. alignment, exactly right. So mm-hmm. it actually doesn't even matter whether, whether he was referencing your thing or not. Is it even your thing? It's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's the thing. So, yeah, if you want to represent, we've got some shirts. We've got, you know, some cool stuff on there. Jockelstore.com. Also, the shirt locker. Mm-hmm. People seem to like. Been a lot of requests lately, hasn't there? A few there? requests, yes. <laughs> yes. Sure, Locker. What it is, if you don't know, a new shirt every uh-huh. month. The designs are cool. People kind of like, well, sometimes we go a little bit um, deep, you know? We should make a freaking uh, something like you were talking about going off. How many levels do you have to go off of the office? Right. Like how many levels before you're clear? Yeah. We should do something like that. What, like, from the office or just yeah, yeah, from the office. Yeah. Go far enough away from the office. Make up our own thing about the office. <laughs> yeah. Like, like the Shroot Farms. Like, there's another farm that mm. competes with Shroot Farms, right? And we can make their T-shirt, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> like the truly the best beats in Pennsylvania. No matter what any other places. Say yeah, no matter something. what other yeah, yeah. places say, <laughs> and we can make a cool. And we can yeah. do that. A bunch of those kind of. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't want to get too crazy, but let's face it. You know, it's not nothing, you know, the world's real best boss right here, you know, mm-hmm. like sell a coffee mug. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So we just need to go yeah. off one more level, one level of di- one level of removal. Uh, of removal. Yeah. Plausible deniability. We don't know what you're talking about. We just thought it'd be funny to have a beet farm in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. What I mean, are they going to say? Sue us. They're not even going after the Etsy people. Or the Amazon people. I wonder, you know how you look at Jocko t-shirts and there's a bunch of freaking rip-offs yeah. on Amazon? Jocko uh, Navy SEAL inspired t-shirts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That literally say Jocko on them? Yeah. yeah. Well, don't get those t-shirts. But they, he said they don't go after, you know, whoever owns. NBC doesn't go after the Amazon people that are selling Dwight K. Schrute t-shirts. Right. They should be. It kind of sucks for him. Yeah, you figure, right? yeah, you know, what What they call it, name likeness, right? Yeah. Name, image, likeness, or whatever kind yeah. of a scenario. I guess the image and likeness yeah. kind of thing. Right, well, either way, hey, look, to me, hey, man, if you could go on the other spectrum or the other side of the spectrum where it's like, hey, if you made it better than how we mm. made it, bro, that's your right. Get the better one. Up to you, you know, but either way. Let's, let's, um. Let's just keep an open mind and we can we can request ideas. If you have a good idea for a one level removed office t shirt, yeah. we'll make it. Yeah. And we'll send it to Rain. And we'll be like, Rain, you don't need to take any of this shit from NBC anymore. You're gonna be in the game. Yeah. One layer removed. Boom. Prove it. Yeah. Prove that we're talking about shroot farms. We're not. 
We're talking about the best beats in Pennsylvania. Yeah. You know, not what the other guy sells. Yeah. Well, we don't <laughs> like beats, bro. We like beats mm-hmm. all day. But yeah. yes, that's what you're going to get. We love beats. Yep. It's uh, true. There you Sherlocker. Go. Sherlocker. Get some. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to Jocko Underground. Subscribe to the YouTube channels. Subscribe to Psychological Warfare, which is actually an iTunes thing that we put out a long time ago. Long time ago. And for a while, I was like, oh, I'm going to make another one. And I still haven't. Looks like I need more discipline in my life. Yeah, Psychological Warfare out there on iTunes and whatnot. Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer. Making cool stuff to hang on your wall from an American hero. American made. That's what we're talking about. Also, books. Clearly, today we covered The Bassoon King and Soul Boom by Rain Wilson. Good reads. Funny reads. Check them out. Final Spin. I wrote a novel. A lot of people think it's one of the best novels ever written. That's what I've been hearing. So get on that. A bunch of other books. You guys know what they are. Get the Warrior Kid books. Warrior Kid 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Mikey and the Dragons. These are books for your children. Help them. Help them figure things out. Also, Echelon Front, we have a leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com if you need help with leadership inside your organization. Also, we have live events. We've got... Well, the Dallas October muster sold out a while ago. The next one's in San Diego. It's not sold out yet, but it will be. So check that out. Women's Assembly, I think there's a couple seats left. No, there won't be by the time this comes out. It'll be over. So anyways, echelonfront.com. That's what we do. We also have an online training academy at extremeownership.com. Learning the lessons of leadership for business and life. You can do it online. You really can you really can get educated online. It's a true thing. It's not uh, a fantasy. It actually works. We've had incredible feedback on that. Go to extremeownership.com if you want to be educated about leadership online. And if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their families, you want to help Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got an incredible charity organization. And if you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Also, Heroes and Horses, Micah Fink just got his latest class out of the field where they went into the wilderness and got lost and got found. Heroesandhorses.org. If you want to connect with us, Rain Wilson is at soulboom.com. He's also got an Instagram and a Twitter, at Rain Wilson. He's got a Facebook, at Rain Wilson. He's got a TV show, which we're not allowed to promote. But if we were promoting it, it would be called The Geography of Bliss. It's on the Peacock Network. <laughs> and if you want to connect with Echo, he's at Echo Charles. And I am at Jocko Willink. Just be careful, because there's an algorithm there, and it'll grab you by the throat, and it'll put you to sleep. And when you wake up, you'll have wasted your life, and you don't want that. Thanks again to Rain Wilson for joining us. We got him stuck in traffic on the way back. He's got a long drive. He's sitting in traffic. It's miserable right now. Apologize for that, Mr. Rain Wilson, but thank you for joining us. Sorry it took so long. Appreciate the lessons from your journey, and thanks for making us all laugh and feel a little joy along the way. And thanks to the members of our Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. We can live our lives because of the dedication you have made with your lives, and we thank you for it. Also, thanks to our police, law enforcement, 
firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, and all first responders. Thank you for your dedication to keep us safe here at home. And to everyone else out there, I'm gonna leave you with a couple quotes. A couple quotes from Dwight K. Schrute. Number one, whenever I think about, whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. There you go, that's quote number one. This is actually important. I said something similar recently. Don't do dumb shit. It's a very similar thing. This one takes a little bit more thought. But it's a good thing to think about. And then, here's another quote. In the wild, there is no health care. In the wild, health care is, ow, I hurt my leg. I can't run. An eye, a lion eats me, and I'm dead. Well, I'm not dead. I'm the lion. You're dead. So there you go. Don't do dumb shit. Don't do things that an idiot would do. And then be the lion. (laughs) And that's all we've got for now. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko.